Hello, and welcome to SoberCast, where we provide AA speaker meetings and workshops in podcast format. We're an ad-free podcast, and if you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by visiting SoberCast.com, look for the donate link, and drop a dollar or two into our virtual basket. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Have a great day. The topic of tonight's meeting is working step 12 with the sponsee. And uh, Tim will share anything between 30, 30 and 45 minutes on the topic, after which the floor will be opened for questions rather than the typical sharing. And with that, I will now hand over to Tim. Thanks. Uh, Tim, alcoholic. Uh, Alistair, can you hear me properly? OK, good. I just changed my audio setup, so I needed to check. Uh, well, this is a big topic. Uh, now, the thing is, I haven't I, I specifically haven't planned this because it's too big a topic to do an outline of. Um, and there's no need to because, I, you know, it doesn't need to be squeezed into one week. So we can we can do this at whatever pace suits people. But what I am going to do is come at this systematically so that we know what we've covered. Um and where I'd start off is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. Uh, now, that doesn't look like it's something you can take someone through. It's something that's supposed to happen automatically as the result of doing the steps. Except it doesn't always happen. Now, don't tell anyone this will frighten all the newcomers. But sometimes you get to step 12 and, ooh, there's, uh, there are some pieces missing. And I'll tell you some experiences that I had. Um, I think I did have a spiritual experience the first time round. Uh, the test, this is the test. If you suddenly discover you really want to help people, even though you don't like people, that's a if you like people already, you can't really test it because you want you wanted to help people. You're, but if really people are not your thing and you discover yourself feeling not even wanting to, but feeling this overwhelming obligation to not run away after the meeting. If there's someone suffering in the meeting, you just you feel you feel this like magnetic pull that it's the right thing to do to go up to them, to offer them your number. You're looking round automatically at the end of the meeting for who's about to run off. If you're going for fellowship, half of you, you've got one eye looking at where you're going, the other eye looking at who's in the room, who's feeling left out, who might want to be invited along. It happened automatically. Um, now, uh, I won't do the full history of my first 15 years in, in recovery. Um, but I did a, a very, a much more thorough round of steps when I was about, about 15 years sober. And the same thing happened when I completed, and this is the interesting thing. It wasn't when I was halfway through amends. It was when I completed the last amend. There was this rather overwhelming shift, and the, the same thing. I went to I went to a meeting, and my perception of the meeting and the overwhelming kind of uh, groaning need for help in aggregate of the people in the room was was, was really struck me. So a, a spiritual experience is not feeling all lardy dar and going through the you know tripping through the tulips. It's it's awakening. Yeah, we've lost you, Tim. Okay, I think I've got you back. Have you got you got me back? Good. 
Um, it's this, it's this overwhelming sense of responsibility and connection with other people. You feel what is going on around you, and that's why you have to do something about it. You have you develop automatically an empathy for what people are experiencing, uh, and you can't just be an island. I don't want to be political about this, but Noam Chomsky. Is it, is it Noam Chomsky or is it someone else who says uh, reality skews left because once you become aware of how people in other parts of the world or in your own country are suffering, you've got to have a very hard heart indeed to turn a completely blind eye to it. So the more in touch with the reality you are, the more you're aware of how, of now exactly what you do about that. That's a political question, but the, the awareness that there is that there is need out there. And I think this, this, should, this, this should happen automatically, but bemusingly, it doesn't. And also, this fails to happen on a, I'm afraid, on a fairly regular basis. Now, it doesn't mean you just throw the baby out with the bathwater at this point. So, well, you know, bugger that. Um, sometimes a few things need to happen. Um, sometimes people need to have a second surrender in recovery. So, what, okay, so what happens a lot, and I did this in some ways over the first eight years, is you think, now I've got my marbles back. Uh, you know, AA is very, very good. It's got me sober and it's made me a marginally nicer person or at least less disagreeable person. Uh, there's the opportunity to go and make something of myself in the world. And so I, I focused very heavily on my career um, in my first eight years. And so my concern for, for the, the initial overwhelming concern for other people faded as I became reinterested in my own affairs and what brought me back to the table really um, at around nine ten years back to the AA table was the failure of that system so sometimes people get to step 12 and there's a bit of a sort of uh, it's a bit of a damp squid so what's supposed to have happened hasn't happened and sometimes you need to wait for life to, do, to, to, to fill in the missing piece. And it's, it will either be adversity or unresolved, very deep conflicts which come to the surface and make themselves felt, or people going all out with a life on self-will, which then fails and then they crash and then they're, now, now you're interested. Now you really give yourself to the path. So often, I, I think it's like with, with fairy lights, with Christmas lights, and the, I think the new ones are different, but the old ones from when I was a child. Um, if there was one bulb in the chain which didn't work, the whole chain didn't work. So you had to go and test each little bulb one by one. And then when you found the right bulb and twisted it, the whole chain lit up. And I think it can be like that with step 12. That if you get... if, if uh, you get there and someone hasn't fully woken up it's not because the whole thing is dead in the water it's because there are a couple of bulbs that need um, uh, twisting there are also some um, basic points which come out of the earlier steps which sometimes people understand them intellectually but it hasn't gone all the way through and it can take a while for it to click and the two in particular 
uh, I remember a friend of mine in the middle of step four and five, he said his big realization, it was he had a, he had a nemesis. It's a good word. He had a nemesis, not just an enemy, not just someone that got up his nose, but a nemesis at work. And he was doing the inventory in the step five on the nemesis at work. And he, he said, my realization was this. Oh, I'm the asshole. I have no idea I was the asshole. So suddenly realizing that I'm the asshole, that's a spiritual experience. Um, sometimes people get to step 12 and that's not there yet. <laughs> the other thing is, uh, now people work on this at, at different speeds and get this point at different speeds. And this is something which runs so counter to the way the world operates. People are entirely forgivable for not getting this point, especially even in AA. This, this is not always well understood in AA, that I'm, I never react to a situation. I'm only ever reacting to the story that I'm telling myself about the situation. And the story that I'm telling myself about the situation is generated by algorithms programmed into me when I was about six. And, and the, the, the invisible bit of my brain, the bit under the bonnet, is processing situations that occur around me using old algorithms and churning, basically churning out a story where I'm innocent and everybody else is guilty and it is a world of woe and they need to be destroyed. That's the basic plot. And even though you're suffering, you know, as... as um, Annika Jawa says that you're still the hero of the dream. You know what? Even though it's a nightmare, it's still all about you. So it's deadly because it's so attractive. Uh, and so sometimes that lesson that I'm creating my own suffering um, uh, hasn't got through, uh, not fully. So it's understood intellectually, but it's not there all the way down. Um, and also another thing people can be forgiven for thinking is uh, because it's so widespread in the in, in the various fellowships and then society as a whole. That once you've discovered all of these problems and psychological difficulties, you have to sort of do something with them. And my experience is that you don't. Once you know what the problem is from the first 11 steps, the job is then to abandon self, stop being a human shield for your own ego and get out of the way and it honestly i i think that i mean therapy and things like that have been great for helping me get into touch with what's actually going on not providing solutions but helping to thaw me out and to sensitize me to stop me running on auto autopilot and to get me to to see what is actually going on but then the steps do something with that analyze that systematically and I think that the, the real awakening in beginning of step 12 is the realization is um, all of that stuff that I've uncovered and discovered needs to be discarded. I don't need to do anything with it. It's the, as my sponsor says, the bloated nothingness of self. And the way I do that is by, by um, uh, getting involved in service. Now, once 
people understand that the only solution, the only way out is the only way to heal is to throw yourself completely unreservedly into a life of service. And it's a sandwich. The, 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 the bottom of the sandwich is a, is a slice of bread, which is uh, looking after yourself. So you've got to look after yourself physically and, and uh, spiritually. And, and uh... Tim, we've lost you again. Right, I'm back. Can you hear me again? Yep. Okay. So um, once you realise that the solution involves uh, service, as, as I, I don't know how far I got into the sandwich analogy, bottom layer, bread, looking after yourself. If you don't have the bottom layer, the filling goes everywhere. So you've got to have a bottom layer, uh, which is looking after yourself. And then you've got the filling and then you've got the top layer, the top layer of bread, which is, is you know, enjoying the world having a bit of fun but the 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 key element of the sandwich the bread is just the vehicle the filling is being of service uh people a service is hard so i only did it because i realized it was the only way out uh so sometimes it's a tedious process when the first first nine steps are completed there's a tedious process of people coming to the realization that service is the only way out and you don't have to like it you just have to recognize it there's a difference between liking it and recognizing it you just have to recognize it and do it and then you discover all of the well i discovered all of these emotional difficulties gradually melt away because you can't be bothered you haven't got time you spend enough time you spend enough time away from something that when you come back to it you realize you see it for what it is, but you need the time away to see it for what it is. And I think that's what service does. So if someone if, if there hasn't been a kind of loud pop in step 12, beginning of step 12, where the person wakes up and is just desperate to be of service. If that hasn't happened, if you wait, life will present the circumstances where the person all of the other options are knocked on the head one by one by one until that's the only one that's left. When that when service is the only option that's left, it lights up somehow. So you you stick you stick with people. You don't drop if they're not sort of super interested in service. You don't drop them. You 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 keep them on board as long as they're willing to be on board and hope that life does the job that you're unable to do. Um. And eventually everyone gets it, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Um, and sometimes other obsessions or compulsions are the great persuader. It talks about alcohol being the great persuader. And I think other obsessions or compulsion, compulsions, what Clancy refers to as the, the obsessions of the mind. He doesn't go into detail, but you know what he means. Um, everyone's got their own. So. Uh, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to other alcoholics. So how do you sponsor someone through that? Well, first of all, you, you've got to understand what the what that actually means, carrying the message. There are two. So there are two types of service. Uh, this service, which is the direct carrying of the message, and then this service, which enables the carrying of the message. So the direct carrying of the message will be sponsorship and sharing in the meetings and talking to Susan and Clive after the meeting. 
and uh, going to rehabs, going to treatment centers, doing encounters with alcoholics in, in the world outside. Then anything that enables services, all the service structure stuff, running a group, um, and also talks to professionals, which enables the message to be carried, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly. Now, uh, the first thing to make clear is that although the second type, the service which enables the message to be carried, is terribly important, it's not the high-octane stuff. It's not the good gear. Uh, so it, get, it does get you out of yourself, but, this, the, but it's administrative largely um it's sponsoring other people who have similar psychological problems to you but you can see how ridiculous they are in someone else whereas they seem so important in oneself and real and you see it in someone else and you think oh they're completely nuts therefore i must be completely nuts and things melt away uh the second thing that happens when you see people, and this is why sponsorship is so important, you, you see people who've done the most appalling things, uh, but they're the same appalling things that you've done. And you look at them. Um, what was the phrase that someone used the other day? The, um, <laughs> the infantile charm of the hapless. <laughs> so you see this poor old soul you know, wandering through the world, messing things up and hurting people. But you see this sort of innocent child who's doing it. You don't see this evil monster. You see this poor creature who's condemned by whatever is going on inside them to behave this way. And then you think, oh, my God, I'm like that. So I'm not the monster that I thought. Just because you, you are not your own behavior. Uh, and there's a story which is very long, which um, is, is uh, uh, it's one of the Baal Shem Tov stories where, where the punchline is when you hear your own story told back to you, then you're healed. And I think that's why we sponsor other people. It, and then so the most useful thing that someone who is, let's say, one year sober, two years sober, three years sober and new to step 12 but still full of psychological maladjustments, the most useful thing they can do is sponsor other people and see their own maladjustments reflected in the people who are attracted to them. That will do a thousand times more good than any wise words that you can pass down the tubes. So whenever they come to you, you pick them up, you turn them round, you wind up the key in their back and you push them in the direction of sponsoring other people. It's, it's the... Now, one has to engage with the problems and the psychological stuff a little bit, but it's about 10% of the deal. It's got to be 90% action, 10% psychological, you know, unpicking. Um, so you point them in the direction of helping other people. And uh, but what do I encourage people to do? Uh, some people naturally attract sponsees. I've talked about my friend Melody. Uh, I think she had a homing beacon installed in her. And whenever, wherever she went, there was this, you know, the character, is it character, the character Linus in Peanuts, who's got the blanket and all the flies follow him wherever he goes. She was like that, but with sponsees and little and like sort of wet the waifs and strays, wherever you, wherever Melody went, there were these people following her you know, in various degrees of mental breakdown. Pig pens, Evan says, not Linus. Um, and, and so she, she, some people have just got the personality that attracts 
people in trouble uh, and it be basically people who are very, very kind. Um, another character type which attracts people is people who are sort of disciplined and structured and have some um, uh, or apparent authority. If you're if you've got one of these two character types, then you're lucky. So people will will run after you for sponsorship. Um, if you're not particularly, if you don't sort of exude lots of motherly motherly warmth, uh, and you're not like sort of clear sergeant major type, then um, neither of which are particularly you know admirable qualities. You either have them or you don't. Then you might have to work a bit harder. And there have also been times when I've I I, I generally haven't had a huge amount of trouble finding sponsors, but there have been times when I have. So I just pass on what I did. I made myself omnipresent in local meetings. I just went to very large numbers of meetings, got there early, shared a lot <laughs> uh, and stayed late. And eventually something sticks. But I made it my mission every day. I treated it as the most important thing I did every day was to get to a meeting, get there early, talk to people, talk to as many people as possible, get numbers, exchange numbers. Um, so if you haven't got sponsor, if the sponsee hasn't got sponsees, they can be putting all the time that would be going into sponsorship into placing themselves in a situation where they might acquire sponsees. And sometimes sponsorship is misunderstood. One doesn't have to have the formal title of sponsor to be sponsoring someone. And you can be sponsoring. So I, I remember saying to my sponsor many years ago about ex someone. I said, I don't know if I should stop sponsoring him. He said, you haven't sponsored him for years just because you're, you're you know, if they're sort of you know, someone held up, you know, a, a baseball bat above them in a dark alley and said, who's your sponsor? If your name would, you know, creak out of their mouth, it doesn't mean you're actually sponsoring them. It just means you're the brass plate. So often people worry that they haven't got enough sponsees. Maybe they've got one or two or no sponsees, but they're talking to a lot of people and helping a lot of people. And that sponsorship in, in, in substance, if not in form. So always make clear to people that they're doing, that the point here is to be making the effort. You get the points for effort, not for the, it's not like, you know, the first World War I planes where they sort of stamped the enemy aircraft they'd shot down on the side of the, on the aircraft. It's not about collecting numbers uh, of people um, or accumulating a large number. It is about collecting their telephone numbers, but it's not about accumulating a large number of sponsees. But, but what it also, what it talks about, my sponsor is very strong on this. He, he says, he talks about intensive work with uh, sponsees uh, from page 89. And also it talks about on page ooh, 19, uh, um, most of us, many of us spend much of our, or most of us spend much of our free time engaged in the kind of work we're going to describe. So although it's got to be extensive time-wise, the real value comes from it being intensive, which means being super present for it and super engaged. Um, also the other thing, if, if you're sponsoring a bunch of people and you've got sponsees who are just starting their sponsorship journey, don't expect them to hit the ground running, like instantly getting a lot of sponsees. Often people who are very new to this, it takes a long time before they get the first one that takes. 
So they may have to spend, you know, six months to a year of getting, you know, no one gets beyond two days or four days or a week or two weeks. And, and lots of people who are very, very iffy about AA are most likely to gravitate for sponsorship to people who are just at the beginning of the journey. And they're often the ones they can relate to the most. So naturally, people who are new at sponsorship are going to get the sponsees who are least likely to stick. Whereas if you've been around for a while, you're most likely to get people who are um, uh, who already know what they want. So they're going to someone who's got you know track uh, a longer track record. But the main thing is put the time that the people should be encouraged to put the time in, put the effort in. And somehow it will if, if you it's Lord Kitchener, if I dare, I'm not sure you're allowed to quote people from with the word Lord in front of them anymore. I get, I'm supposed to pull their statues down, I think. But anyway, Lord Kitchener said something to the effect of if you don't let up in your fight with the enemy, if you don't let up, eventually if you don't cave they'll have to cave if you don't surrender they'll have to surrender someone's going to have to surrender and um, how this applies is if you if you desperately want if you treat it as the number one priority i must i want to be useful to god and to other people eventually it will click if you hold yourself up against that and you pay attention, you pray, you meditate, you talk to people, the blocks will be removed one by one, and then it will flow. And it's rather like, um, uh, it's like a dam or something where there's one last piece in place. Once that last piece is removed, the whole dam collapses. So sometimes people are frustrated because they haven't got enough sponsees or they've only got one sponsee and they've actually removed nine of the blocks, but there's the 10th block that still has to go. When the 10th block goes, the whole thing starts to flow automatically. What you can do as well is encourage your sponsees to work with each other. So you, you get sponsee A to pre-process a chapter of the book with sponsee B so that sponsee B is getting practice on how to talk someone through part of the book so that means the work gets shared around so it doesn't it's not like because you, you can't have this turn into a ponzi scheme where everything kind of goes up the goes up the the structure um uh the 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 work should be shared out amongst all the people in the group pretty equally because everyone needs to be useful so you can't keep that's why i always get sponsors to work with each other and that's super helpful because people get to practice without having like the full responsibility of a sponsee um i think that's the main thing i want to say about sponsorship or uh, uh about sponsoring someone with like the beginnings of sponsorship i think there's more i'm going to make a note of this um Actually, why not? I was going to go on service, but there's there's, there's a couple more things to say about um, how to sponsor someone through their sponsorship of other people. I, I think about 90 percent of my calls to my sponsor over the past 10 years have been how to handle a sponsee in response to which I'm tearing my hair out. I'm, I won't say because of which in response to which I'm the one that has the problem i've got a problem with the sponsee it's not their problem they're not doing it they're just being themselves i'm just having a reaction because of a pre-existing psychological maladjustment 
which has come to the surface because of this person in front of me. So it's not about that, it's about me. Um, and I think the real, the real um, uh, gold in sponsoring other people is helping them sponsor other people, helping them troubleshoot sponsees they're either having this massive emotional reaction to or seem to be getting nowhere with and there you've got to have you know very minute discussion so exactly what is going on what have they reported to you and it's it, you know, it's not breaking confidences it can be done perfectly anonymously um you know i've got a sponsee who i'm talking to someone who and you don't you don't you don't find out who they are so it's sticking to principles not personalities but that's how uh, you figure something out you don't learn how to sponsor people in the abstract you you the the the, the you know you know the way in german they you, they have all of these words they're phrases they've acquired from English, or they think they've acquired from English. No English person uses them. So a projector is called a beamer, and a mobile phone is called a handy. And in German, if if you go to any sort of German HR thing, they used to work in Germany. And they 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 use this phrase learning by doing. And of course, now I've never heard anyone in this country say learning by doing, but but, but the Germans have picked this up and think that's something that we say that is very. Very good. This learning by doing. Uh, so, but this is it's very useful. Because this is how you, you learn how to sponsor people by sponsoring other people and then running to your sponsor saying, I want to push this person down the stairs or they want to push me down the stairs. What do we do next? Uh, how do how do we not kill each other? Should I continue sponsoring this person? You know, or they've called with the same problem 18 times in a row. I don't know what to say. That's where the real benefit happens. Um, and my sponsor, who's annoying, uh, says things like, uh, what is the gift that you are waiting to unwrap in this person who is being presented to you? I mean, just a horrible question. I don't want to know that. I want to know what I can say so I can fix the situation. I don't want to look inside and say, what, you know, what's the gift that I'm unwrapping here? And the other thing is, whoever is being attracted to you is not by accident. There is a clear if, if you want evidence that the universe has some kind of structured system, you watch who gets attracted to you as a sponsor. And the people that are attracted to you, they really are attracted because, because you're vibrating on the same wavelength somehow. So something unresolved in you is resonating with something unresolved in them, which is why they've come to you. And then you get to work through the stuff you haven't resolved in you through by trying to help them. And um, I can't, I, I've gone through so many different phases of sponsees. Um, I, I think I may be going through an angry young man phase. I haven't had one of those for a long time. It's one of the ones that comes around the mountain occasionally. Um, um, uh, I went through a long phase of very, very distraught women between 55 and 75. By the time I figured out how to sponsor a very distraught woman who'd been in recovery 20, 30, 40 years, between 20, you know, between 55 and 75, by the time, and very difficult, by the time I figured it out, once I figured it out, 
and the the last person in that category i kind of we it it was working and it resolved itself i was like right i can handle this type of sponsee now do you think anyone in that category has asked me since then no <laughs> so this is it's like a computer game once you complete the level you don't get to do that level again it's really annoying. You'd think you'd have a period where you get to practice the thing you've learned how to do, but no, you get sent an entirely new category of person, or as I say, comes around the mountain more than once. So you'll get to practice on whatever the category is. Again, it, it looks, it feels so like there is a curriculum here. And I think there is. It's whatever is at the top of your consciousness which needs dealing with is going to manifest, whether you like it or not, in the people around you. Um, because as Earl Purdy says, the reason you're attracted, you know, you're attracted to situations is because you projected part of yourself out there. And you'll say what you're seeing in there is what you're seeing inside. And that's why you're attracted and you can't get away from it because it's you you can't get away from. Uh, listen to the recording if that didn't sink in straight away. It took a while for me as well. Um, so I think sponsorship is a really interesting thing. The other just so we can park the other topics. Um, there's the question of how to sponsor someone through the traditions and the concepts, uh, the short version of which is don't just they're going to read the stuff. Um, how to sponsor someone with the group and the service structure and then um, how to sponsor someone with problems in other areas. Uh, so those are the topics to park. Um, if Alistair, you can make a little note of that, but I think I'm pretty much done. Um, so uh, I don't know if you want to see if there are any questions. Thank you very much, Tim. Um, the meeting is now open for questions for Tim, which can be done by the raised hand function in Zoom, or you can message me through the chat function and I will ask Tim directly. If all else fails, just wave at the camera and I will try to come to you in turn. Um, and we do try to close around the hour mark, but we're not particularly strict about that. Uh, and with that, I'll open it up for questions. James. Thank you. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for that uh, presentation. And my question is, do you have any suggestions for when sponsees are, they're at the point where they're ready to be available to sponsor others, but there's resistance and it's not so much because they don't, maybe they don't want to, but it's resistance of the whole, oh, I'm, uh, I, I, I don't feel ready. I'm not well enough. I don't, I don't, what am I supposed to do? Have you got any um, yeah. suggestions for how to respond to that, please? Yeah. Okay, so sponsoring other people is like a sort of training program for yourself. Uh, so it's not the thing that you do when you graduate. It is the training program. And I've not graduated. I mean, even in the last six months, I've had situations where uh, things have got have come in below the radar and I haven't figured out until I'm like excessively engaged. So you you never get you never take the first hundred people you sponsor are definitely the hardest. It starts to ease up significantly after 300. Let me just so there's that prospect. So there is hope. There is hope here. Um, Brian, my old sponsor, Brian, says the first 20 years are the worst. So it's you're never going to stop learning. So I'm not ready. I'm I'm I can do it, but I'm not ready for it because you don't know who you don't know who's going to call next. And each person is an entirely new situation. It's not painting by numbers, this. So no one's ready. 
but it's rather like a sort of wartime situation. Right. You've never been an air raid warden. Well, I'm afraid we've got incoming. <laughs> we've got an incoming Luftwaffe and we need to do something about it. So you, you're going to be the air raid. warden. no one was trained to be air raid wardens before they had air raids. They had to, they had to learn it on the job. And I think it's like that with, with sponsorship. There is no way you, it's like swimming as well. You you can't really learn swimming um, in a in a, um, you know, fr from a book, you know, planking on a sort of chair or something you just have to get in the water um in computer courses they used to they used, they used to have to say this to people you can't break it by pressing a button so if you pressed your sponsees buttons you haven't broken them the buttons were already there and they're being pressed all day long you're just one of a stream of people pressing those buttons all you're seeing is you pressing them you're not seeing all the other people now one one should aim to be kind and temperate and moderate and so on but um it doesn't matter if you leak uh because you're you're not a, we're not professionals so it's okay to be a human god the people who've sponsors and other old times who've leaked on me who've, i've exasperated if you go to someone's house when you're two weeks sober at 11.30 on, at night and beg to be let in, you will exasperate them, you know, just in case you haven't tried. Them. And it was right for them to be exasperated and to let that show because I was then learning how people, ordinary human beings, respond to my behaviour. Professionals will keep a, a, a facade up and won't show it. So people don't get to experience the consequences of them dicking professionals around because the professional has to remain professional. One of the amazing things about sponsorship is you get to see the human reaction to your engagement with them. So you don't have to be you don't have to be like super poised and professional. No, you have to be yourself. Now, obviously, this is a journey. Um, I've some people are naturally much nicer than me. It's take. I mean, this is after 28 years work. So you can imagine what I was like when I started off. Um, uh, you, you don't have to be all like super nice and pleasant and love. You have to be on a journey towards being more pleasant and moderate and temperate and genial and approachable and all of those things. But you don't have to be fixed, in other words, to sponsor people. Um, um, Tom Weston says if everyone in his first meeting had been serene, pleasant vegetarian joggers, he wouldn't have gone back. So um, maybe it's the humanity and the spikiness and the fact that if you're if you're still, as someone else says, pardon my French here, if you're still all piss and vinegar, that might be, those might be characteristics which the person can relate to. They couldn't, I remember going to ask someone to sponsor me, I was like eight years sober, and he was so nice, and he was so placid and peaceful, and he was an organist, probably played really quietly, and I, he freaked me out. I wanted someone with a bit of punch and pizzazz to someone with an edge so if your sponsor you still got an edge good um as for you know well i'm still effed up what do i have to offer um okay so your job 
there are different types of sponsors for different purposes. So um, my sponsor specializes in doing profound psychological rearrangements of very messed up people. But he, that's his personal deal. He's good at that. So he does that. Other people, their job is to show them the mechanics. This is where you go every day. This is what you do. This is how you share at a meeting. This is what this bit in the book means. This is what the complete, no, no psychological stuff, no getting in there to the detail, just showing them the practical ropes. So uh, there's a great line in chapter seven where it says, Having had the experience yourself, the experience of the 12 steps, having had the experience yourself, you can be a much practical use to the other person. So whatever experience the person has can be deployed in the sponsorship. And it doesn't matter if you're not great at like unraveling psychological doodars. Send them to someone who's good at that for those types of topics. But there's, there's whatever the person has learned they can pass on. So someone, I don't think people need be frightened about it. And that what you can tell them is if you're frightened of sponsoring someone because you don't know how you're going to respond to a particular thing they throw at you, all you do is you get them to write on a piece of paper above the chair where they sit and take sponsee calls. Um, I'm going to think about how to respond to that. I'll call you back later. And then they get to call you as their sponsor to say, they've just said this. What do I say next? And then you tell them what to say next. And then they go and say the thing you told them to say. And then five minutes later, they've had to do the same thing. I'm going to have to call you back. And then this goes back and forth. You know, gradually, people so people can always press the pause button and retreat and come back for further information. Um, by the way, if you're ever talking to someone, they say, I'm going to need to call you back later. It's because they need to call their sponsor, probably. <laughs> so you've just thrown them a curveball. So, you know, kudos to you. Um, <laughs> uh, I think we should get points for making our sponsors talk to their own sponsors. Uh, that, that there should be we should, rather than chips for length of sobriety. You know, how many times this week have you caused your sponsor to pause a call halfway through to like regain their composure or go and have a, you know, some white bread to calm them down? Um, <laughs> so so there's nothing to be there's nothing to be frightened of. And if it doesn't work out, I mean, the sponsee, if it's not working for the sponsee, like the grand sponsee, the grand sponsee will figure that out and go somewhere else. And if your sponsee, if, I mean, sometimes, you know, there's a great line, have the grace to know when you're out of your depth. Sometimes I've had sponsees where I'm just out of my depth and I'm like, I kick them upstairs to Joe or to someone else. I just can't, I can't deal with it. I don't know. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Um, so your sponsee, if it gets too psychologically fraught and entangled, can step away from it. So there's no risk. As, as Clancy says, there is no such thing as dictator, dictatorship sponsorship. Because as soon as the sponsee says they're done, the dictatorship is over. There's no there's no reprisal. Um, and often when you've got a tangled situation which doesn't work, um, I'm getting better at this. I'm not as good as I should be. Let go now because they'll I, I can't tell you how often i've really struggled with a sponsee 
And it's so embarrassing. They go to someone, you think, my God, they've gone to them for sponsorship, and now they get sober. Now they get well from, from being told what. I don't know what they're being told, but it worked. And all you know, the, the, the aggregate wisdom that I had to offer did nothing. Useless. And they go to some Charlie that tells them to not to drink and go to meetings and to trust God, and suddenly they're fixed. <laughs> So if it's not working, maybe it's not meant to work. Just try someone else. There's always there's always plenty more. And it's not any. This is where I think we all work out our psychological quirks in sponsorship. Because if if something goes super wrong, there's no harm. You don't want to be working out those quirks in intimate relationships or relationships with colleagues or bosses. Because if you mess that up, you're really messing stuff up. Whereas you can mess up stuff in sponsorship, and people kind of bounce like dough. They bounce back into shape as long as they're going to you know a hundred thousand meetings. I think that was something else I've forgotten, but if, if it wants to come back, it'll come back. So if we see if there are any other questions. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. Uh, Sarah Rivka, you have a question. Um, yeah, hi, thanks. Uh, thanks, Alistair. Thanks, Tim. I have a question. Um, I've had the experience where a sponsee calls me up and tells me a story about something that happened and then says to me, how do you think I handled that? And I I used to answer the question, and then lately I've been feeling like there's something wrong with that. Um, I shouldn't really be giving an evaluation afterwards, or maybe I should be. I feel like it's a game, but I'm not sure. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's a that's a really good that's a really good question. Okay. Um, it can be a setup, but it's not always a setup. There's a legitimate situation in which that occurs and a not so legitimate situation. Where it occurs legitimately, sometimes people are just faced with a situation suddenly. You just have to respond. And they're doing, they're performing due diligence, as lawyers would say. They're making sure that what they did was, was fine and to learn from it, to maybe react better or differently next time but very often this occurs in a pattern where what someone is doing they're doing what they want to do they don't want to run it past a sponsor they don't want to check it against the principles of the program they want to do what they want to do and heaven forbid they should pray um but what they want to do is do what they want to do and then they want to get um uh retroactive co-signature or papal, you know, papal blessing, uh, papal dispensation, where you say, well, you were, you know, you know, it wasn't ideal, but you know, I forgive you and all that. They want to be, they want to come clean and be forgiven. So often there's a psychological angle. This is very close to the question where they say, um, I've decided to dot dot dot. What do you think? And that one. I've stopped answering. I'll say I'll talk about this, but only if you undo your decision and are willing to go back and look at this. Have you really made your decision or are you just considering it? If they said, no, I've made the decision. I'm just curious what you think. I won't I won't give a view. I say you have to ask me much earlier in the process when you're still identifying if there's even a problem to solve, because for a decision to be made, you've got to have a situation which calls for a response 
You've got to identify what the options are. You've got to weigh them up. And then between those options, you make the decision. If they're bringing you in that late in the process, the problem is that uh, they're not letting you play with a full uh, deck of cards. Because if you're really going to assess the situation, you have to assess whether there's a problem that needs to be solved. What are the options? Have you missed some? Have you got an option which shouldn't be on the list? Have you? Do you know what I mean? You're not being. You, I think one should be brought into these things. I don't go to my sponsor saying, I've decided to do this. I say, right, this is the situation I'm presented with. Um, th these are my thoughts about how I could handle it, but the whole thing is up for grabs. So I think with si situations to deal with, I think that either the whole situation is up for grabs or the thing is is none of my business. But I've, one's got to be able to look at all aspects of it because otherwise what happens is you're painted into a corner where um, you're, uh, it's also the, 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 the framing of the question. So uh, the question that they pose often gives you two, two possibilities, both of which are disagreeable or inappropriate or not in accordance with the programme. And the sponsor wants you to pick between the two, whereas uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a, the variety. Um, well, I've robbed a bank. Um, I was just in the middle of like, putting banknotes in the uh, in the in my in my duffel bag and we can hear sirens and the question is you know do I go into the vault and lock it behind me or do I take one of the bank tellers hostage which of these two do you think would and they painted you into a corner you know you can't assess this situation because the question is why are you robbing a bank in the first place but they've already presupposed that they're already there um, so, so I don't think that is valuable for me to comment on situations where the, the horse has already bolted. You want to you want to be brought in as someone to give input uh, whilst the horse is still in the stable. So, uh, to, but so that's a very long way of answering your question. Generally, uh, no, I don't think one should get involved. I think your instinct is right, but occasionally there's a legitimate reason why might, one might want to give input in that situation. Thanks, Tim. Uh, anyone else with a question for Tim? Hi, um, thanks, Tim. I think this is going to be one of these. Uh, sort of, is it not the case that uh, parliamentary type uh, questions? Um, the the situation I'm I'm thinking of is uh, out here in the in the in the sticks uh, where there's no daylight, as you can see. Um, you might, a lot of the meetings are kind of generic in nature. It's it's not like there are a mass of meetings and a few sort of good sharp ones and that's where people gravitate um they're all a bit a bit generic and i've i've picked up people to sponsor over the years through those through those meetings and there's a feral attrition rate if you get them sober in the first place uh you get them to step five and they kind of disappear at that point they might make a few amends and disappear at that point very few of them in my observation go on to sponsor although lots of them seems to seem to wind up running meetings and, and and that's their that's their form of um their form of service and it struck me re recently i it, it struck me quite forcibly the little word or in, in 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 the first paragraph of the chapter to agnostics that we're dealing with a mixed population here um and about half the population i i would have said 
um, are people who've not got the full deck of cards when it comes to alcoholism. They've got one part of the problem or another part of the problem, but they haven't got the whole thing, <laughs> as I did. You know, I, I, I couldn't stop myself from drinking once I'd started, and I couldn't stop myself from starting, as opposed to or. So I sponsored a fair number of people who I think with hindsight didn't really need to be sponsored because they had um, the capacity to recover uh, by non-spiritual means, uh, to a certain degree, and that's exactly what they've what they've done. So the sponsorship process, you know, going through the steps, as it were, has been overlaid onto that as a sort of bonus feature, I, I suppose. Um, I don't think it's done any harm, but I'm not convinced it's been the best use of my time. But have you come across that distinction yourself in your extensive sponsorship life? Um, how does one spot the difference, and does it really matter anyway? Uh, it's a um, wonderful question. Um, okay. So I think a lot of people work the steps as a psychological, social, and material program. And they do the same instructions as you, as you and I do. Exactly the same, but, but the angle is different. The purpose of it is not to be released from the matrix. It's to get on better in the world. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not bad. It's just, it's just different. And now I'm, the jury is out for me on the question of reincarnation. However, <laughs> however, I think some people on this journey, on this journey through the material plane, their job is to be totally involved in the material plane on this route through. Other people are so done with materialism, but are weirdly here for some reason and are in just the most awful psychic pain until such point that they release themselves from themselves and find a way of being a channel for the higher power in the world and that's that's why one is on the plane and maybe there are lots of progressions one goes through um so i've known a lot of people um, in my early meetings the people who were well psychologically and socially and spiritually and all those things fell into two groups Group number one is people who were a mess when they got to AA, but basically sorted themselves out and had great lives and yachts and they set up companies and they're basically, that's great for them and they love it and they're happy and it, it, it genuinely works. It's not fool's gold. They've got gold. And then there are the kind of freaked out, psychologically maladjusted psychos like me now if you're sponsored by the wrong type if you're one of the psychos that like me that needs the spiritual awakening and the complete release from the material world a sponsor who's of the first type is like a chocolate teapot they do not know what to do with you they just don't get it you do the steps in a in a psychological social and material way and you're just as crazy as you were before. And they don't understand why. But the curious thing is, it can work the other way around. 
So I've had a lot of sponsees over the years who I gave them a spiritual program with practical instructions, but for them, it was a psychological, social and material program. And they're out in the world and they're doing stuff and they most of them still go to meetings and, as you say, run meetings and do a bit of service, sponsor a couple of people, blah, blah, blah. And they're on a completely different that their experience of the world is very, very different than mine. Um, uh, and you asked, and that's fine. Now you asked, is it worth sponsoring? Absolutely. Weirdly, it works that way around, but not the other way around, um, in my experience. Uh, uh, because otherwise they're gonna die of alcoholism drag you know scores of people into hell with them as they do it so it's always worth it you know that it's the, the if someone stays sober it's a benefit for thousands of people over the course of their life so of course it's, it's always a, and I certainly I am not the person to judge if someone comes to me for help I give them the help or help them find someone who's suitable for them sometimes that's the job I, I don't take everyone that asks me to sponsor um but don't try and force it, force the spiritual stuff on people who just don't want it. If they want to go another path, you haven't failed. My sponsor says your job is to is to take them for it's like a relay race. You're, you're taking them, you're accompanying them on this stretch of the race and then someone else or some other situation is going to take them, take them further. Um, the biggest difficulty and this is a common one is you've got someone in category b who thinks they're in category a in other words you've got someone who is who need desperately needs a spiritual solution and material solution and they throw all the psychological social and material stuff at it and it doesn't work and they're still in the same cycle oh there i seem to be back yeah, I lost so, of it. um, the the lot. How last much have you lost? The last twenty seconds, perhaps, Tim. You were just oh, okay. the problem is if someone's in category B. Yeah, category yeah. B. yeah. okay. So it, it's where people are, are trying to, uh, uh, someone whose problem is essentially spiritual. In other words, it's their position in the universe. They're at the center. They need to be the servant of the higher power. But it's trying to tackle the problems from a psychological, social and material point of view. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't psychological and social and material problems to solve, but it means that that's not the prime focus. Uh, but there, all you can do is say, I think the solution here is spiritual and hope they, they get it. Hope they get it. There's one last thing. Um, my sponsor's uh, uh, my sponsor his daughter is in AA, and uh, she had in 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 rural semi rural Texas had a sponsor who was a, um, a Harley Davidson riding uh, lesbian. So not your usual profile of a sort of Texan female sponsee. And someone said, you've got the wrong sponsor, little missy. And she said, yeah, but I've got the right higher power. So whatever force brings two people together, you have to figure that the higher power is working through it somehow. So the weirdest matches seem to work. I, we're, we're at eight o'clock and Roop's got a question. So maybe we can bring Roop in.
Yes, Rupert. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Thanks for the um, presentation. Um, I'm working with three sponsors at the moment, and I'm finding that having got three steps one to three, it's like, um, well, I'm not herding cats, but it seems to dissipate in step four and five. And yeah. it's one of the experience in terms of, you know, the roles you've played or you found effective. Do you just let them go at their own pace and let them come back? Or do you just try to set some structure? What do you do? Very, very simply, uh, step four is a learning experience. So first of all, you're doing your step four, but secondly, you're learning how to do a step four. And the insights operate cumulatively and they overturn your whole perception and experience of the world when it's working. And now the reason I say that is because if you were learning Japanese, you'd have to put in a couple of hours a day. Otherwise, if you just did an hour a week, you'd spend the whole hour trying to regain what you'd learned the previous time and you wouldn't have any time to build on it. So you go around in circles and don't learn anything. And it's the same with step four. If you're bailing out a boat, there's still water coming in at the bottom. If you're only bailing out very, very slowly, the water's going to come in faster than you're bailing out. And then they feel that they're just getting worse, which they indeed are. So I think... Before I let people start step four, I say, are you willing to put one hour a day during weekdays, two hours a day or more at weekends into this, into writing, running it past other people? I get them to do daily, daily work, run the daily work past someone else before they run it past me so that they kind of it's kind of pre-processed that they've got worked the kinks out of it. And so they're doing it as a team effort between you and them and two or three confidants who are further ahead in the program. And that team effort seems to give people the encouragement and the support they need to get through it because it's really hard. It's really hard. So I'd like sending them off into the night to just do the step four and hope they come back. They just won't come back. So since I put the structure in place, almost no one flakes out during step four, but it's the daily structure, the commitment before you start daily structure, break it down into tiny bite-sized pieces every day, they read out what they wrote the day before so you can be making sure they're getting it right. They're getting stuff out of their system. They're not building up this huge backlog of stuff and they're running it past someone else, which means they're getting rid of the guilt as they go. They're getting rid of the shame as they go. They're getting rid of the embarrassment. They're making friends. They're getting trained on the technical side by other people and not just you. Uh, you stop being the only person they're going to. You're less of an authority figure. You're just one in a chain of people they talk to. All of these things to contri contrive to making it easier for them to do the work. Uh, and you'll get, I think you get fewer dropouts if, if you do that. Thanks, Tim. And the meeting back to Tim uh, to ask him to close with the uh, Serenity Press. set the tone for the uh, meeting i will read an extra uh, i will read a, a couple of paragraphs from page 152 of the big book we have shown you we have shown how we got out from under you say yes i'm willing but am i be, to be consigned to a life where i shall be stupid boring and glum like some righteous people i see i know i must get along without liquor but how can i have you a sufficient substitute yes there is a substitute and it is vastly more than that it is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
There you will find release from care, boredom and worry. Your imagination will be fired. Life will mean something at last. The most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Thus we find the fellowship, and so will you. Um, tonight's meeting is part two of working a step 12 with a sponsee. And Tim will share anything between 30 and 45 minutes on the topic, after which the floor will be open for questions rather than the typical sharing. And with that, I will now hand over to Tim. Evening, kiddos. Tim Alcoholic. Uh, okay, it's really ironic I'm doing some kind of workshop on sponsorship. I was just super crabby with a sponsee. Probably a 7 out of 10. Like 10 is you're definitely going to be sacked as a sponsor. I was a 7. Uh, and I apologised. And the words crawled out. The I don't know what you're like when you're apologising. When I'm apologising to a sponsee, it's like the words are crawling out of my mouth like spiders. They don't want to, It's not elegant. Um, but I think it, it was a, a useful lesson. Um, uh, whenever I find myself irritated with a sponsee, it's always because I haven't set the boundary properly in the first place. Uh, or uh, I haven't, I haven't, I have, I don't have like a a standard response. So there's so many things no longer annoy me because I've got a standard response. And one of the things that people do, and heaven knows, I probably did this for like 20 years. Have you ever gone to your sponsor because like something has happened or a situation has arisen or you've had an emotion or an event has occurred in the last 15 seconds. And you're like, I know, I'll call my sponsor. And you haven't thought about it. You haven't processed it. You haven't done anything. You just like, you know, that you're just dropping it on the carpet in front of them. Um, and if I'm caught off guard when someone someone did that today and you know we all do it so it's not them in particular but um uh I just wasn't poised enough uh to respond appropriately which would have been to simply send I've got some auto text messages it really helps by the way if you find yourself saying the same thing over and over and over again just type the thing out have it on a, like a, a a note with all of the auto text and just send it th through like something like um this is probably a question you can investigate further i'm available once you investigated it further and have formulated a suitable question if you need any more input for now let me know like something like that would have been would have totally sufficed um so the, the the annoyance with sponsees is not coming from them. It's always coming from me because I'm not prepared. I haven't told them what is usual, what is customary for, for how sponsorship works. Uh, so it's always on me. Uh, so I always investigate after something has gone down and I, I've got all crabby. I always investigate what could I have done differently not to have got crabby in the first place. So the topic this evening, we've done, uh, I can't remember what we did last week. Uh, it, it was sponsorship, wasn't it? It's sponsorship of sponsorship. There you go. Uh, this week, so service, um, I think the first thing, to, to, I, I have gone through the traditions and the concepts formally with people, but I don't like doing it. I, other people love it. 
they 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 uh, as sponsees, they love it as sponsors, they love it. I'm very wary myself of academic exercises for sponsees. Um, I think by the time you get to step 12, with any luck at all, you should have acquired a person should have acquired the skill to read the material themselves and figure out if they have any questions about how to apply it. So I've got a lot of material on the traditions and concepts, which I pass people and resources and their recordings and there are various people. And there are, there are things, lots of like Dennis F's written some great stuff on the traditions and the concepts. The concept stuff is eccentric, but it's very good. It's not kind of really on the concepts. It's on his version of the concepts so there's lots of stuff you can give people but the 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 reason why um going through it academically i don't think is the right way of doing it is because you can you have to study the concepts a little bit but frankly it's only when you have practical situations that they come alive in their application and um uh Again, with it's just like with everything else. So one thing people are inclined to do with the traditions and the concepts, uh, because the traditions just, you know, to, to cover off some basics, because people have got different levels of experience in this, even in this little group here. The traditions are the principles by which the group operates. The concepts are the principles by which the service structure operates. Right. So they get to step 12. They're supposed to be sponsoring, your sponsees are supposed to be sponsoring other people at this point. And they're supposed to have some kind of group level service. And ideally also, if they, especially if they've not done it before, uh, to get involved in the service structure, whatever fellowship they're in. Now, uh, how do you know they're doing enough service? They have a gazillion questions. If they don't have a gazillion questions, they either don't have enough service or they're not paying attention because I had a gazillion questions at group level and in the service structure. And it's just like with everything else. People have the habit of playing, um, look what the cat brought in. So they present you the raw situation and the standard approach. If someone's got a group situation, um, of course, the temptation is people present you with the raw set situation. The temptation is to get in there and just tell, well, this is what you do and this is how to look at this and this is what's gone wrong and blah, blah, blah. And it's, it's that people don't learn anything that way. Well, I, what I've learned to do, and this is a very good way of doing it. You say, have you read the 12 steps, and the 12 traditions, specifically Bill W's traditions essays? Yeah, yeah, I've read those. And have you read Language of the Heart, the traditions essays and Language of the Heart? Slightly different. Yeah, I've read those. Okay, great. Uh, have you got some worksheets and checklists? There are like traditions checklists published by GSO. Have you got those? Yeah, I've got those. Okay, great. So what you can do, you can take your situation and then you can say to yourself, in your meditation in the morning, how does tradition one apply to this? How does common welfare arise in this situation? Where does how does personal welfare relate to common welfare? How do they get balanced in this situation? And to run through all the principles of the traditions, and you'll discover in almost every case, people come up with the right answer. And a better answer than you could have come up with if you, if just because they know the situation, they know the group. 
for you to solve it, you'd have to extract a huge amount of information from them to perform the assessment yourself. So as with many other things, you're getting people to do the homework themselves. They, they'll hate that. They, they just want to be told that they, you get them to do the homework themselves. And then once they've finished the homework, you say to them, right, OK, well, I agree with all of that, except you know, this, that and the other. Maybe you add a couple of extra things on top or that's great in theory, but in practice, dot, dot, dot. Or um, so you can but, you, but, but you've got they've got to they've got to take the work to the furthest point they can get themselves. And then you come in. And there was a, a reading, actually, which is so relevant to this, which I came across. I, rather through gritted teeth, I subscribed to some Buddhist Facebook things as a, as a place to sort of mine lots of uh, quotations for the morning meeting. And uh, some of them I can't, I can't even begin with, but some of them are amazing. And there was one that I found today, um, which is probably the most useful thing I've ever heard about sponsorship, and it's not about sponsorship. Just finding it out, I'll post it in the chat in a, just a moment. Before talking to the teacher, it is better to observe yourself a bit. In that way, you might find the answer for yourself. It is better to be one's own teacher or master rather than assigning the job to someone else. That is why the teacher, and above all, a so-and-so teacher, some branch of Buddhism, teaches us to observe ourselves and to discover our own condition and always asks us all to become responsible for ourselves. Why do teachers ask these things? It is not because they are worried about being bothered, but because they know very well that always turning to one's teacher is not a solution. The solution lies in observing ourselves and resolving our own problems by ourselves. Then if we have, and this is the key point, if we have no way of finding a solution, the teacher can certainly help us. If everyone did this, it would be much easier. And I think one of the reasons why Buddhist um, uh, books and, 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 and uh, teachings generally can be so useful in AA, it's not so much the transcendental stuff about, you know, the states of being and consciousness, and those are all very fun, but it's because there's a big teaching tradition. Um, which is very similar to sponsorship. So what they learn about how the relationship between the person who's further ahead and the person who's just learning is uh, they've, they've made all the mistakes. That comes from like, I don't know how many thousand years of mistakes and Buddhist teachers getting exasperated and calling each other and saying, I can't believe this. Oh, that's where it comes from. It come, It all sounds like so peaceful, doesn't it? And so wise. No, it's just like us. It comes from states of extreme annoyance. And I can't believe it. Um, so I highly recommend to go onto Facebook, put Buddhist quotations and get them onto your live stream. It's much better than anything about American politics, apparently. Anyway, so. Uh, basically, you get people to do a load of group level service and a, group, uh, a load of service structure service, and they end up, the process just runs itself as long as you push back at the right points. The, so the two, the two, 
<laughs> this is a bit like Goldilocks. Remember Goldilocks, where the, you know, the first porridge was too hot and the second porridge was too cold and the third porridge was just right. And the first bed was too hard and the second bed was too soft and the third one was too too uh, was just right. And it's like that with sponsors, particularly once they got to step 12. Some want to hang off your coattails and ask you absolutely everything. And others ask you nothing and go around causing havoc and then telling everyone you're their sponsor. That's fun. Um, <laughs> especially the ones with borderline personality. Um, uh, as a, a friend of mine says, only happy when everyone else is in complete chaos. So um, one thing, if someone wants me to continue sponsoring them at step 12, we have a very awkward conversation sometimes. If I smell trouble, most people are fine. But if I smell trouble, I have this conversation. Uh, and I have this conversation as well uh, about um, the you know, notion of service sponsorship. If your sponsor like literally doesn't do service structure stuff, you want a separate service sponsor. But if your sponsor does, why do you want a different sponsor? That's interesting, isn't it? You know, it's the divide and rule thing. Left hand doesn't see what the right hand is doing. Um, I had a sponsee once who was an Al-Anon sponsee, but they were also an AA and they were also doing service. And uh, they were doing service in my kind of vicinity. And there was their service conduct did not blend with the setting let's just put it like that there were things that they were doing which might be valid in their own right but were not working super well in the context how's that for you see i can be tactful if i if i want to be um and we had to have the converse the tricky conversation is this if i'm going to be sponsoring you at all how about we get to look at everything because all of the psychological stuff going on in your personal life is going to manifest in your service stuff. The service behavior is a mirror of what is going on in the, your private life, um, which is what, and it's one of the reasons why it's super helpful to have sponsees at least for a while come to your home group. Um, I, I had someone that had terrible trouble with work colleagues, not an uncommon problem. And they felt very sort of victimized and, and disliked by people in the workplace. Again, not a, not a, not a, um, uh, not, not an uncommon situation. And the person was very nice, very, you know, worked very hard at the program, but we all have blind spots. I have blind spots. And this person's blind spot was about social interaction. And uh, I saw them at the meeting and they were sitting on their own about 70 feet away from everyone else. There are 40 or 50 people there, all chatting, buzzing around, having eating sugar. So they were chatty. Um, cakes, biscuits, tea, coffee, what having a lovely time. They were sitting on their own, just not even just looking down like a sort of wraith. Um, and I got a text from a friend saying, or oh, so-and-so's at the meeting says they're feeling completely alone. And I thought, well, <laughs> this isn't a hard one to diagnose. Now, if I everyone's ignoring me, 
well they were and i could i I was literally there they were because this person had separated themselves from the group they could have gone and joined the throng with all the other crate all us other crazy people but they'd separated themselves and a couple of people went to say hello to them but that, that this person just could have brushed them off and because I could see that going on. We could have a conversation about, is it possible you're doing that in the work environment too? You're creating the situation where you're rejected because it reinforces the existential position that you developed as a child that everyone rejects you. So you're recreating it because it's comfortable. And we could have a useful conversation. So it is useful to have sponsees, if they're doing step 12, to be in shot in terms of group level service or uh, service structure service. Not always, it's not obligatory, but it's helpful. If you can't do that, maybe they do need a separate service sponsor who can actually see them in action. Um, so, uh, and with the service structure, I think that's pretty much that's pretty much it. You throw them in. They do. They 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 try and do as much as possible. Oh, oh, the Goldilocks thing. I didn't really finish that off properly. So some people come to you with nothing. Some people come to you with everything, and you want something in between. So you want people to be genuinely considering the option of checking stuff out. Um, if people don't know how to, um how to calibrate that people don't always know how to calibrate that so you have to help them say if ever you don't know what to do and you run it through your little algorithm tradition one tradition two tradition three and you're still stuck then we'll um we'll talk about that but also if you discover other people reacting to you so even though you didn't cause their reactions you didn't you can't control them you can't cure them you did elicit them uh and this is something i've learned when i'm eliciting a reaction it, yes it's true in alan i didn't cause it but there's a reason why they're reacting like that to me and not to someone else so there's always something for me to look at when someone reacts badly it's very common and this is so the Alanons amongst you. I'm not going to name names because I know how embarrassing it is. Um, the Alanons amongst you with Alanon sponsees, because what we learn, you know, I, I mean, even in AA, we learn that, you know, page 67, other people are sick, blah, blah, blah. And Alanon, we boy, do we learn that. Um, the danger is thinking that when other people are reacting badly towards you, well, it's obviously them. You know, you, you so learn not to take things personally that you actually stop examining your own conduct. And that's a danger with people who are AA and Al-Anon. I say the AA seem to be much more sensitive about that, funnily enough, and because the Al-Anons have uh, often applied a manual override to block their awareness of their impact on other people in situations where there are other alcoholics or addicts around. It's a very, I've seen that so often, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a pattern. Um, uh, also, the, uh, the AAs generally, and this, is, this isn't a hard and fast rule, the AA sponsees, the risk is they'll try and get away with doing the service by doing the absolute minimum to get by. And that's gonna cause a completely different set of problems 
to um, the Al-Anon personality types. And I've got a little bit of both. Uh, I can be very, very sloppy at times and then overly controlling at other times. Uh, the Al-Anon types are much more likely to, you know, you turn your back and they're now chair of the region. And <laughs> no one asked them, you know, there was a hostile takeover. People have, st you know, you, you come back two weeks later and a second region has been established because everyone is so angry at what happened in the first region. Uh, so you've really got to watch, you've really got to watch the, uh, the ones with the Al-Anon stripe down their back. Um, and the longer they've been in, the more you have to watch them. I told you this story maybe a few weeks ago. When I was with Tom in San Francisco. I'd had a run in with someone that was 22 years sober. And I was in the car with Tom and he said, uh, uh, 22 years. That's when you think you know everything. So sometimes the sponsees who are in service, who've been doing service for a long time, are really difficult to sponsor because there's there's just a, a baked in way of doing things and often people are unsponsorable in service after a certain point unless unless they start to experience real problems um uh but i think that's pretty much it on the service sponsorships uh, side of things um uh oh just one little tip one little tip uh when people have got a situation and this is true for service sponsorship. It'll be true for other areas we're going to discuss in step 12. But it's also true in steps eight and nine. And also, actually, I'll tell you a little story about the fourth column in, in step four. Uh, sometimes people have enormous trouble connecting with what they did wrong in a situation, which totally makes sense because... If you'd known what was right and wrong, you probably wouldn't have made all the mistakes in the first place. So actually, the default position when you get to the fourth column and you say to someone, uh, so what did, you did, what did you do wrong? Well, I don't know. Well, of course not. If you'd known, you wouldn't have done it. So that's actually, it, we shouldn't be surprised when they say that. But I tried an experiment this week. I've done it before, but this was a, a spectacular well, I think it was a spectacular success. Well, time will tell. Someone couldn't see what was going on in the fourth column. So I told them, uh, spend, spend an hour or so, write down who's involved, names and what their role was in the situation. And then tell me the facts in the order that the facts happened without commentary or explanation, except as far as necessary to understand the actual acts themselves. Forget motivations, just this happened, this happened, this happened. And they, they did a bloody good job, I have to say. It was remarkable. Um, and it was immediately, I think there probably were 30 or 40 things which had gone wrong in this situation, which they hadn't spotted. Uh, now, in step four, that's the trick is get them to tell the story and then you can walk them through. OK, this is this would have been a red flag. This would have been a red flag. Another red flag, a further red flag. No, this is the point you should have exited the situation. You stayed. OK, that was that was the mistake. Uh, and you can talk them through it. Steps eight and nine, exactly the same thing, particularly in romantic situations. Um, 
is you get them to do a, a kind of walkthrough, exactly what happened in the order that things happened, and you can spot immediately what's what's gone wrong. And you do the same thing in service situations. Who's involved? What are the roles? Uh, and then the facts in the order that they happened. And if they're a bit more advanced, you can say to them, right, tell me how the traditions apply to this tradition one, tradition two, tradition three, tradition four, and then if it's service structure, concepts, concept one, concept two, concept three, concept four. And then you've got something to come in on. And this gives people a format, which actually I find works pretty well. So I think that's all I've got on the service structure. I've got material on practicing as principles and all our affairs, but maybe we should cover off the service structure questions if there are any first. What do you think? Yeah, if anyone has any uh, questions for Tim on the, on the service structure that he, uh, he's spoken about. Um, oh, yeah. James. Thanks, Alistair. Thanks. Sorry, thanks, Tim. Thanks for that presentation. Um, my question is, when a sponsee is um, looking at being of service, do you think there is anything to be gained by um suggesting the person maybe starts um at the group level before deciding to, to say oh there's a um a gsr position um or do you think just allow the um the person's own journey of recovery to sort of dictate where they take service as the positions arise in in their local meetings or in the in their local intergroup yeah, that's a good question. I think one should proceed um, systematically through the service structure. So you can get um, service. Uh, one shouldn't be a GSR unless one's been the secretary or chair of a group, first of all. So one shouldn't launch into that. You should have had to sit at the front for a year and just have to run the group. Um, you shouldn't take on... Uh, I think it is a good idea to spend maybe a year, six months to a year, maybe probably a year actually at, at intergroup as a GSR. So you come into intergroup as a GSR. Ideally, spend a year uh, just figuring out what's going on. I made a complete, if you'll pardon my French, arse of myself in the first intergroup that I belonged to in 1990. 94 95 I went as a kind of very I was like a year and a half sober or something and I had no idea of the dynamics I had no idea what it was about and boy did I boy did I launch in everything I said that went down really badly and then they got crabby with me and then I got crabby with them so you really want to test the waters for a while in intergroup it, it is possible to take on like one of the officerships of the intergroup but only if there's no competition and serious important work is not getting done. Like the detox is, there's no meeting in the detox because they haven't got a liaison officer and someone needs to do it and no one else is going forward. So ideally one should wait a little bit before doing the officerships, but it, the needs of the alcoholic who's suffering at the end of the line come first and you can learn it quickly on the job if necessary. 
A lot of it depends on the person's external experience. There's this myth in AA that everyone is equally qualified for all jobs and one shouldn't sort of discriminate against people for lack of relevant experience. And it's just untrue. If you've got someone that can't type, can't use a computer, can't produce documents, terrible at using email, can't organize themselves, do not make them the secretary of intergroup. Got that? (laughs) If someone is terrible with money, is broke, is massively in debt and has a tiny gambling problem, maybe you don't want them to be the treasurer of the intergroup. Um, If someone still is experiencing very severe personality disorder manifestations, again, you don't want them in an outward facing role where they're communicating AA to the public because they, the, the risk is they'll create it's bad, the, like the people who are well can create a bad enough impression as things are you really don't want to go in there with a you know a poison chalice so I think it depends very much on where the person is in their life what kind of jobs they're suitable for and to ease into it the in now the the jobs are intergroup or or whatever the equivalent area district blah 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 um those jobs there are inward there are internal jobs and then there are outward facing jobs uh one should only take on the outward facing liaison officer roles if one is very confident that one's got the, at least the basic principles of how intergroup operates because the 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 fellowships uh reputation is on the line you can muck up electronic liaison electronic communications liaison which is an internal role with no outward facing at all if you mess that up it doesn't really matter if the micro site is not as usable as it could be if you you know you can fix those things because they're just temporary internal glitches um but also the other thing what you can do and i think this is a super thing to get people to do is to go to the intergroup anyway, and uh, the the liaison officers are usually uh, looking for volunteers to do schools talks, to 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 go on walkabouts, like public information walkabouts. There's there's often grunt work that needs to be done, so people can get that. that people can ob- observe how the role is done by someone competent before they actually launch into it. Then it's much less scary. And if you go and say, "I'm not available to be an officer, but I'm available to volunteer to help out, like whatever officer needs someone to help out with stuff," you can do that. And a, a year sober, I was. Um, a year and yeah, in my second year of sobriety, so between one and two years, I was the sort of Santa's little helper of the uh, London region south and London region north uh, employment liaison officers. So I worked for a, a big city firm which had databases, and I mined. It was perfectly legal. I mean, I wasn't like mining confidential information, but like public access databases of companies and corporate registrations and so on. And I would mine those for lists of employers to go to and, you know, with details of HR departments and things like that to to help them out. So I was I did a lot of work in my second year, putting together packs for HR packs for uh, human resources, department, AA packs for the human resources departments in in all the city banks. This was in 1994, 1995, 1996. Um, So you can get super involved in service without having a formal officership. So you can get the experience that way. So there's nothing, even if someone isn't temperamentally suited, um, 
it's a I, the one thing I would say about getting into the service structure. There's a limit to the amount of damage you can do at group level, but there's a lot of damage that can be done at intergroup if someone with an emotional screw loose starts to get involved. I've seen the most, I, you, you see intergroups collapsing because of one person and it's difficult to kind of get them out of the machinery. Once they're in the machinery, it's difficult to get them out. So uh, to, to do a, a serious role at intergroup, one must, I, I personally believe, have completed all of the amends and not have any emotional handicaps um, cropping up and um, hamstringing you at every available opportunity um because it's just the 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 risk of affecting other people is just too great so that one must exercise caution with this encouraging people to i've over encouraged people to do service when they when they weren't mentally or psychologically ready for it and funnily enough the people that don't think they're ready are usually the ones that are ready and the ones that think they're super ready you might want to have a you know listen very carefully to what's going on because there can be anyone that's super keen to do super keen to do service i'm a little bit suspicious suspicious of um because my own motivations were not entirely clean it was oh great here's something i can take charge of which is not really a great motivation so does that answer your question james yes thank you tim thanks tim did anyone else have a question for tim on that what i can do i've got i've got a set of topics of other areas so there's practicing these principles in all our affairs um i've got a set of one two three four five six seven nine topics uh which i'm actually going to copy into the chat box if any, anyone can suggest further topics that would be great and these are topics which we will come to you with and there are kind of standard ways of helping people approach these but sorry if you got a question yeah i think um i i do have a question um but i'm not i'm not sure if the question is appropriate for the topic but i'll just ask it and if it's not you can ignore me um or ignore it so the question is um the top the subject was raised is it normal say there's an intergroup and um the intergroup has to decide on some issue coming up um so is it normal for people in the intergroup to speak to each other privately and sort of lobby the way that the way that a political body would you know I'm, from the U.S., so I think of Congress and Senate, um, there's a, a lot of lobbying going on. And before a bill is passed there, it's pretty much decided what, what's going to happen. It's just a question if they have the vote. So um, so that question came up, is that okay to do? Is it a normal thing to do? Should one go to an intergroup meeting and hear about a topic for the first time and then everybody discusses it? Or is it okay for people to call each other and say, listen, here's my opinion. And I was thinking we should really vote this way or that way. Um, I just want to answer that. An amazingly good question. You, say, you, you said you weren't sure if it was appropriate for this topic. I'm not sure I'm appropriate to be talking about any of this stuff, but I am. So let's just deal with what is. So that's a great question. 
Um, and it's one that arises very, very commonly. Um, I think probably the number one difficulty that I encounter amongst sponsees in service in the in groups and in the service structure is back channels. So the, the traditions and the concepts are very clear. You have a group conscience and at the group conscience meeting, you have this is concept 12 discussion, vote and substantial unanimity. That's where the decision gets made. It does not get made. I mean, administrative, administ small administrative things can be done in other ways. And if it's not a group or an intergroup, then it can be done in other ways. Uh, but if it's a formal part of the structure, you've got to be absolutely squeaky clean about how these things are done. So lots of groups now have either Facebook groups or WhatsApp groups or whatever, and lots of decision gets made, decisions get made on there. And it, it's, it's a disaster because people say things they would not say to each other face to face. Occasionally, if you, you, you can have things decided on WhatsApp. If things are relatively uncontentious, if people are super mature, and if you've got mechanisms for establishing, so you go straight to polling straight away, like anonymous polling on, on you know, polling websites. So the first 164 is not a group, so it's not, it doesn't abide by the traditions, but we try and follow the principles in as far as the setup allows. And so if anything starts to get remotely contentious, boom, let's have a poll, rather than the acrimony being, uh, uh, starting to come out in the discussions themselves. So you, you sound out what is going on with a poll first, and then everyone quietens down. Oh, so everyone does want X, Y, and Z. You, it's complete. So it's a way of, if you're going to use WhatsApp groups, that's a super way of, do, of doing it. You go straight into polling to sound out people's general views. But anyway, the point is uh, that, but that works very, very rarely. Uh, you've got to have if there if there was any trouble on first one six four it got contentious I'd switch and start having uh, organizing Zoom calls with everyone there but I don't think that level of organization is necessary I might be wrong if anyone's on here that really wants those let me know you know we'll talk about that we'll have a poll about that um, but what you're talking about there is. Uh, it's the whole notion of back channels and the back channels can be the WhatsApp group, which becomes the alternative to the business meeting or the group conscience. Um, people twittering in in corridors and you, you always have you've always had this. It's just electronic communications have made it easier for people to misbehave in this way. Now, the, the reason this is not super straightforward is because. Uh, you've got to strike a balance here and the balance you're very right you've got you, you've got a note of caution in what you said do people turn up cold to the topic no 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 you need an informed group conscience so the way this is how it works I think healthily if someone proposes something there is a formal method for proposal so let's say for the March business meeting, by the February business meeting, someone needs to send the secretary a written proposal and that gets circulated in writing so that everyone's got a month to think about it, to talk to their sponsor, to talk to their friends. But under no circumstances, I've done this and it's poison. It's poison to the individual. It's poison to me when I've done it. I've lobbied other people. and it. And I, other people have done it with me. 
uh, and I, I just don't think it's right. I think you have your view and you discuss the view, but the answer is not to try to. I, it, it's this old, it's this old pattern uh, which is so useful. I'm there to offer an idea and explain the idea, but not convince anyone or persuade anyone. It's up to the other person whether they buy it or not. Um, and so lobbying is where it tips over in trying to convince or persuade you, trying to stack business meetings or group consciences, making sure certain people show up. Now, the reason this isn't, the other reason this isn't straightforward, there are times where for the good of unity and smooth functioning, a little bit of discussion needs to take place between the officers of a group about how to handle a particularly contentious question. But that's not about that's not about um, uh, achieving a particular result. It's about establishing an orderly process which maintains a cordial atmosphere in the group. That's completely different. You could, I think, I think you can consult very heavily and politically, as it were, on process, but in order that the group conscience then be expressed however it wants to be expressed without trying to swing it one way or another. So it's the nature of the discussions in between the meetings that matters. It's not, it's, it's, it's not whether or not they happen. They, I think they have to happen, first of all, so that people can sound out the ideas. It's only when you discuss them that you realise you're crazy. When you hear someone else's perspective, you realize you're crazy. So you have to discuss them. You've certainly got to discuss the logistical side of things. Um, uh, and, and word, you know, I've often taught as a secretary um, who is in charge of the written communications of group. I've, I've consulted very judiciously about exactly how to word things, about how to structure group conscience meetings. But again, it's not about the result. It's about the process. So this is it's not as that this isn't a straightforward topic at all. But the aim is to have a, an informed group, maximally informed group conscience. One way, by the way, to um, put the kibosh on any of that lobbying which goes on. And this is a great technique. You send something to all group members saying, we'd love to have your comments in writing. We'll take them, we'll anonymize them, and we'll circulate them so that everyone knows what everyone thinks. And it takes the wind out of the sails of little secret plans. And also what's very interesting is that when one is voting in a group conscience meeting, this is not well understood. When one is voting, one should be voting for the good of all. So I will often vote, and my conscience is what my conscience tells me is for the good of all. It's not what I think. So I often vote for proposals that I personally disagree with because I feel that that's what the group wants. So I want to go with what the group wants. And if you adopt that approach, there's nothing to lobby for. I don't not to have a personal angle, only to be looking to um, maximize. To, Jim Willis says, your job is to help the rest of God's kids get their heart's desire. And as long as it doesn't harm them, help them get it. So if the group wants to make a decision you don't personally agree with, but, you know, 
it's so clearly what they want. I go with it. And if with that approach, um, you, you're removing the problem at source, which is having a personal objective. That's where the lobbying is coming from. It's having a personal, st- personal investment of some sort. Does that make sense, Arifka? Alistair, shall I go on to the, I've uh, got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine topics. So we've got more than tonight's worth. And if other, other people have got topics, then, you know, please tell me and I'll add them to list. Money. Um, most sponsees at some point come to you with money problems. I am not a money advisor. However, um, when people have got money problems, I get them to look at a couple of things. In step four, it says it suggests that we uh, take a business takes inventory, <laughs> and my finances are like a business. And this single exercise. If it's followed, I've, I, I has always worked with people with money problems. Is for one year to write down every single penny that is spent by whatever means, cash, cards, whatever else, and to analyze those in a spreadsheet or by some other with an abacus, you know, whatever means you want, uh, so that you can look at what you're actually earning, what you're actually spending, and then to apply the line throughout the year. From page 64 of the big book, we cannot fool ourselves about values. So when someone gets to the end of the month and they've spent £647 having coffees in cafes, have you got £647 of value out of that? And it completely... You, you they don't have to do anything they just it's so often with and this is true with all of these problems if you look at the facts the facts actually tell you the answer uh, most alcoholics in my experience and i'm like this i deny the facts i suppress the facts i tell a story in the moment and that's where all the behavior is coming from. It's coming from old narratives like I need to spend this money because otherwise I'll feel so deprived. And what's the point in working all these hours and having a job I hate with people I hate if I can't spend? It's my money. I can spend it. And then, you know, as Bob B says, oh, the other thing, listen to Bob Bizance on money. He's very good on money. Um. Uh, now, what's so interesting, Anthony DeMello, who's very naughty, Anthony DeMello talks about how people don't want to get out of kindergarten. Everyone says they want to get out of the kindergarten, but what they really want is they want to get their relationship back. They want to get their job back. They want this from the world. They want that from the world. I've given the money exercise to maybe, I don't know, probably hundreds of people. Only a small proportion of people have actually done it. It's very interesting. People with very bad money from refuse to do what for our grandparents would have been an absolute standard thing about how 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 to act like an adult. You balance your checkbook. You write down where everything is going. You budget. You forecast. You do all of these things. So uh, you can only help people if they want to be helped and if they'll do the work themselves. Um, the other side of money, I think, is work. And um, 
the book is very good on this. It talks to it talks about people who get sober and want to um, uh, uh, they, they either go to, to one extreme, they go to a spiritual extreme or uh, they go to a financial extreme and try to overperform financially. Um, with the overperformance, I, I, what I typically find with sponsees that go too far down that road, road event that eventually they'll have a nervous breakdown and you can kind of warn them in advance you know you're like 18 months off a nervous breakdown you do know you're 18 months off a nervous oh no i'm fine i'm fine and then there's a nervous breakdown and then they forget that you told them uh most people get through that and it kind of stabilizes the much harder problem on the money side is connected with the what's called in another fashion under earning and um uh a lot of people come into uh recovery with a career busting gap in their cv friend of mine got sober uh at 40 um and i said so what have you been we just we're just talking i was saying so tell me about your drinking he said well last 20 years i've i've really mostly just sat on the sofa and watched tv and that's literally what he did all day. He went out to get drink and then he got back and watched TV. This does not look super good on your CV. There, there's not a lot you can do to dress that one up. Um, most people have a white whale from the, I've never read Moby Dick. I understand there is a white whale in it and the white whale is not super friendly um you know it's not one of those disney films let's put it that put it that way and and the white whale is your sort of nemesis that the, the area of your life and someone can have more than one i had like three four four nemeses four areas um i'm not going to go into them now work is a massive problem for some people um particularly the what do i do with my life um, there's nothing I want to do. My CV is terrible. I don't have any qualifications. I'm not I fit to do anything. I haven't worked for 10 years. I haven't worked for 30 years, that kind of thing. Um, now, you can't solve this from the outside. You can't force it. The person has got to want, basically, it has to get painful enough, like not facing it, has to become more painful than facing it and facing it is terrifying and i had to work was my one um I, I grew up with the attitude if you're clever the world will just give you a career and you don't have to actually be able to do anything you'll just kind of get something which pays you money on the basis of quality uh, you know academic quality. of course this is not the case and I hadn't, I hadn't really worked. I had worked somewhere, but I'd stolen as much as I worked in the place that I worked. Apparently, you're not supposed to do that. So I had no, when I got sober, I had no real experience. And the whole process of applying for jobs and going to work was unbelievably painful. But I had no alternatives. I had no other source of income. Uh, my parents had no ability to support me uh so i had to, i had to do it and i felt physically so i remember leaving careers libraries and vomiting 
because the whole thing filled me with with such terror. But here's the thing. You can do it. You can be terrified and do it on the same day. You don't have. And this is true with all of these problems in these other areas. The answer doesn't lie in get comfortable with what the solution is. And then you do the solution. You have to do the solution, even though it's horrible. I've got a list that I send people with, like, if you're stuck with, like, career and not earning enough money, here are 40 things that healthy people do to try to figure out what to do with their life, to get a job, to work out where to study, to work out where to volunteer. And with lots of these areas, um, the job is to work out what healthy people do and copy them, even though it's painful. Um, you can all you can do is kind of give people the list of things to do, support them and help them work through the psychological blocks um, of uh, and the big psychological block with solving any of these problems in my experience is uh, the hobnail boots of negativity. I don't know if any of you I know all of you are super positive, but I have a tiny negative streak. And the way it works is this when I've got a problem. I'll go to someone with a solution and they'll, whatever angle they come at me with the solution with, I'll tell them why that won't work with me. So there's always some reason why the solution proposed won't work. And by the time we've gone through every option, I'm back at square one with the existing problem. But now I've tried everything. Of course, I haven't tried everything. I've rejected every possibility. So sometimes one has to be basically super positive with people say, look, you must try these things, try them. Like with job processes, I'm talking to someone at the moment who's doing amazingly well with this, amazingly well. I'll tell you, this job thing of people who've got like 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 35 years gap in their CV, very few people will face it. The ones that do should frankly get a medal for bravery because it's a very painful thing to face. Um, but it's a matter as a sponsor. I think what this is where you turn into sort of super positive parent mentoring role. Say, look, try it. If you don't think you can do it, fine. Let the interviewer decide whether they think you can do it. Because you might be wrong. If you're right, then the interviewer will agree with you. But at least you'll have had interview practice. And so to push the solution as far as possible, wait for the world to say no rather than saying no yourself. Um, there, there is something. Um, let's see if I can find it. I found a uh, I was researching something for work. I, I read Swedish and I found the Swedish website. Um, and about real estate, property management. And I found this extraordinary quotation from a, a woman who was 28, 29. Why did you choose the real estate management program? And her answer was this. I actually looked through all the prospectuses in Sweden. Now, that's a statement. All the prospectuses in Sweden are marked up all the universities and study programs that interested me. In the end, I had to choose between tourism and real estate management at, at Karlstad Business School. The salaries in the real estate sector and the huge need for new staff eventually led me to choose real estate management. That's how you do it. <laughs> she did the footwork first. So with solving, um, with solving pro people's problems, you can't solve their problems. 
they have to solve their problems. My job as a sponsor is to increase their hope that solutions are available in the hope that they'll take the actions. That's all you can do. Um, one thing that if you sponsor a lot of people, you'll probably discover over the years is people will come to you with the same problem again and again and again. And you feel like it's Groundhog Day. You've had this conversation 47 times before. And that's fine. But the important thing, I think, with any of these is to insist on action first. And as the action is being taken, you can talk about the psychological stuff, but you've got to kickstart it with the actions, just like with the steps. People have got problems going to meetings. They've got to be going to meetings and then you can like you can discuss the problems they've got at the meetings. Um, and this way, everything gets solved and and faced. Um, and the, as I said, the action is incredibly painful. So you get people to put if, if they're particularly if it's particularly difficult, if they're particularly unable to take the action to put all the support structures in place and maybe start the actions a little bit here, a little bit there. I remember, you know, when I started to face the career, I had to face the career thing a second time when I was in my 30s um, because of a series of of. of relatively undramatic but nonetheless noticeable nervous breakdowns in the career that I was having um, um, when I faced it the second time it was easier but still uh, you know I, I could do some some days I could only take an hour's effort then I had to kind of run around recovering from the hour's effort that I'd made and then I could do another hour's effort later on and that's fine if, if all you can do right now is four hours a week to solve the problem around 35, fine. But do the four hours, then next week do five. Next week do six. So to gradually, if you can't go naught to 60, build up. Um, so And this really is the model for uh, uh, helping people with any of these problems is to identify what the problem is. Uh, find people in the universe who have solved the problem and copy what they did. And then you can help them just with human support and a bit of kind of AA pop psychology about positive thinking, relying on God, keeping it in the day, make a list of things to do, do the things on the list systematically. You, do you know what I mean? It's like really basic stuff, but you can't solve the problems. You put them in a position where they can access the people who can solve the problems. So that, that's all I think I'd say about the money and the money one. Sex is next, but that's for next week. So invite all your friends. Uh, we've got, so we've got money, sex, food, dating, relationships, exercise. Uh, that'll be a popular one. Drama. And by drama, I don't mean Central School of Drama or Rada or Shakespeare or, or those. I mean, um, I don't know if you've ever known people who have two or three dramatic incidents a day and they're just constantly they have multiple mobile phones and they're constantly calling lots of people about all the different drums. But again, what we're going to talk about is how to deal with dramatic sponsees and families which is a topic, and children, which is, by the way, the children one, in case you're wondering, what I say to people is 100% don't know. Go and talk to someone with a 1,000 children and they'll tell you what to do. I do not know. Um, 
Uh, so we can cross that list off. So we've got, I think, seven, one, two, three, four, five, seven topics left for next week. Thank you, Tim. Uh, you think we'll get through it all next week? <laughs> no. Do you, do you want to see if we've got any questions on, on I know we're, we're at time, but if there are any specific questions on money and career. I actually had one, uh, Tim, if, on money. If um, Yeah. Uh, working with um, someone who has been entirely reliant on social security, um, and it might have been possibly if it hasn't been addressed by the point that, that they reach step 12 and um yeah have you ever faced or or felt like uncomfortable with someone being entirely on social security well one, one's got to keep one's own political views out of this mm-hmm. so that you might be a little bit naughty about that i so to must be looked at apolitically i think one mustn't go into the sort of the, the, the that side of things at all one observation is it's very unusual for people to get sober if they're 100% supported, if there's no consequences to the actions financially. If they do, then you're basically just kicking the problem down the road. And where you have this problem is people who are supported by family, supported by the state or independently wealthy. So they don't need to work. And it's obviously, these are not bad positions, but they do present a a legitimate problem. And the legitimate problem is this. I am, so I'm relentlessly self-obsessed. It's just not even funny after all this time. But the thing which enables me to live, I think, a pretty good life is the fact that I'm well occupied. My time is well occupied. And a big chunk of that time is spent on work and sponsorship at the moment a little bit of service but mostly on sponsorship and talking to other people who aren't sponsors and that that keeps me out of trouble now the reason why this is relevant so if you've got sponsors who who are who are not occupied with either work study or volunteering is it's imp- all, i i don't know how to not be self-obsessed when my life revolves around the things which are for me even though all the things i'm doing are good you know, friends and family and looking after myself and hobbies and interests, they're not bad things, they're great things. But um, it's terribly difficult to get over mental obsessions of various types, relationship problems, problems with family, it's a very common thing, problems with money, problems with all sorts of things. Um, We need time away from ourselves to look at ourselves properly in my belief. So that's why I think it, it needs to be addressed. It's, it's not because it's not so much out of the giving back to society side of things, although that's a re- relevant factor as well. So being of maximum service to God. Um, but it's, it's getting out of self. And even, you know, if someone were filling their life with service and sponsorship, that doesn't do it either, because that's still got too much personal stuff in it. Um, the point about work is doing things which are kind of any job, if you do it for long enough, becomes menial and boring. And I think this is a great thing because it teaches you how to continue to engage in things which are not super interesting to you in the moment. And it's the best way to get, for me, it's the best way to get out of self. So I think it does need to be addressed I, um, one way or another, but it, you can't force it from the outside. You have to present the idea that maybe an occupy.
uh, not just, I shouldn't say just, even if it's volunteering, it's not a, I don't think it's a money thing. Uh, if someone volunteers for 35 hours a week in soup kitchens and various other things, there are lots of opportunities around here for to, there are a lot of poor people around here. There are a lot, I can you know give you a list of churches where they do soup kitchens and things. It doesn't matter what it is, but to, to occupy oneself uh, is the key. I think that's the core of step 12. And my sponsor says, uh, 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 a much more important demonstration of our principles lies in our respective homes, occupations and affairs. And therefore, we've got to have occupations and affairs while there is no raw material for us to be working the program on and being of use to other people. It's the I think the work study volunteering. It's like pedaling the bicycle, which makes the light, the lamp on the bicycle light up. And it's that lamp which attracts sponsees. So very often the work problem is connected to not having sponsees. It's very rare for people who are not working, studying and volunteering to have like loads of sponsees unless they're sober 30 years, because the, 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 the peddling isn't happening to turn the light on. It's the activity in the world which turns the light. I mean, people's whole jiggy changes as soon as they're engaging in those efforts. I'm, I'm watching it at the moment, someone, their whole energy has changed um, because they're engaging in this kind of work, which is really impressive. So that's all I got on that question. Thank you very much, uh, Tim. Um, and with that, I would uh, hand the meeting back to you uh, to close with the serenity prayer. To set the tone for the meeting, I will read an extract from chapter Working with Other Stage 96. Do not discourage if your prospect does not respond at once. Search out another alcoholic and try again. You are sure to find someone desperate enough to accept with eagerness what you offer. You find it a waste of time to keep chasing a man who cannot or will not work with you. If you leave such a person alone, he, he may soon become convinced that he cannot recover by himself. To spend too much time on any one situation is to deny some other alcoholic an opportunity to live and be happy. One of our fellowship failed entirely with his first half dozen prospects. He often says that if he had continued to work on them, he might have deprived many others who have since recovered of their chance. Tonight's meeting is part three of Working Step 12 with the sponsee, and Tim will share anything between 30 and 45 minutes on the topic, after which the floor will be open for questions rather than the typical share. I will now hand it over to Tim. Please, Tim. Thanks, Omar. Can you all hear me all right? Okay. I think I'm coming. I think the voice is coming through my headset. If you have trouble hearing me, if it goes in and out, then there's something. So let me know straight away so I can fix it, because there are different ways I can connect the sound. Um, so uh, one topic which is very common in sponsorship, the, the call starts something like this. Um, someone calls and says, uh, since eight o'clock this morning, I've been feeling very, and then they tell you how they've been feeling. And then they say, maybe I ought to join. And then they name another fellowship. Um, you know, which is a life changing decision. You know, I'm going to spend the rest of my life going to at least one meeting a week and sponsoring people, you know, day in, day out for the rest of my. Uh, now. 
what I'd say first of all about this, I've I've very often had sponsees who, unless they go to OA and get an OA sponsor and call to do their daily food plan and acquire some abstinence and you know do all of that, then I won't. There's no point in sponsoring them in AA because they won't be able to do anything. Um, uh, particularly if it's really kind of you know galloping. Uh, bulimia or anorexia uh, it renders people both of those will render people in a state where they're just unable to take anything in so unless that it you know they might as well be taking heroin frankly as far as the AA program is concerned so uh, what I've learned with AA sponsees who who also have a food thing going on and I'm going to be really blunt here if they look underweight they're probably underweight. And if they're underweight, there's probably a food problem going on because very few people in society are like technically underweight as far as BMI is concerned. And I've ne when, I've, when I've called it out, I've never been wrong. Uh, in retrospect, they've, they've always ended up in OA and admitted they're anorexics. So you're not, if you think it, if you think it, it's not, it's unlikely to be wrong. Um, and you'll go around in circles until the food stuff is dealt with. And it's the same in my experience with um, uh, people who are uh, like full blown sex addicts with really kind of, um, you know, dangerously antisocial behavior and all, all, all that. And sometimes they get un undercover as well. But there's, there's my experience with sponsors with problems in sex is a line in the big book that everyone has problems with sex. And there's, a, there's, I think it's true with food as well. Everyone seems to have a, you know, very few people come into recovery with a completely ordered relationship with food. There's usually something going on. So there's a spectrum here and who knows where the line is. But I've had the same experience with people, with sponsors who are kind of full-blown sex addicts, you know, rushing around doing what they're doing. And the AA program doesn't take until that's dealt with head on. Uh, and in particular, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but crystal meth. Uh, if there's crystal meth in the mix, there are usually activities which involve other people and we're not talking backgammon or tango. Now, unless, unless that whole cluster of drugs and other activities is dealt with, um, unless, there's someone else here. Uh, <laughs> unless that's dealt with again that the program won't take and jim willis says in in his workbooks he says unless you've got a clear mind for this process it won't work so you need a clear mind to do the process if someone's engaged in an active addiction then it needs to stop now i would draw a contrast between that and someone who's 18 months sober has done half of their amends and has problems in their romantic relationship. Someone who hasn't made amends to any of their exes <laughs> and is having problems in their romantic relationship. Well, uh, you know, maybe I ought to do SLA 18 times a week. Well, maybe. But um, the thing is about the, there's a little bit of history here. The reason why multiple fellowships exist is because step one needs a rallying point. And if you've got a problem, if your alcohol isn't your problem, you can't be a member of AA. So why those AA, those other fellowships developed is to give the 12 steps 
as an available option to people who who couldn't access them through AA because they don't qualify. Now, it doesn't mean that one can't benefit from these other um, fellowships, but the fallacy is uh, uh, because a fellowship exists for sex and relationships, uh, suddenly sex and relationships can't be dealt with in AA or CA or Al-Anon because there's a specific fellowship for that. So one must sort of go over there for, for that. And of course, when you go, you know, you, you say, right, I'm going to go to, to SLA to solve my uh, relationship problems. You say, well, what have you got for me? And they say, the 12 steps. You say, well, the ones I've just said don't work over there. Well, why are they going to work over here? It's the steps. It's the steps which do the business. Now, it doesn't mean I mean, I, I got a huge amount of benefit from other fellowships. I, I say it's not to diss the notion of going to other fellowships or multiple fellowships, but one's got to be clear what one's doing. And I talked to a very nice, a very, very nice person who I, I, I like a lot. He's been in recovery for 20 odd years who we we're talking about. We we're discussing this and about how sometimes it can feel that you're taking your little shopping trolley to all of these different fellowships and loading up your shopping trolley with little tidbits from each one. And God is falling between the cracks. So one is trying to acquire tools and mechanisms and insights to somehow do a jigsaw puzzle to produce a recovered person. And what you end up with is a sort of Frankenstein's monster with no life of its own. And I did I did this myself. I the you know the combinations of different fellowships and psychotherapy and the you know adult children of alcoholics books and the um uh the codependency books and all of this and it and my alcoholism um it grew like weeds in the cracks between these because I was still in charge. There wasn't the notion of just letting go of everything, letting go of everything and saying, God, what do I do next? Give me the next right action. Give me the next right action. Give me the next right action. Um, other phenomena. This is a little bit random. I haven't. This isn't a structured orderly thing, so I apologize for that. So it's going to come out as it comes out. Uh, one danger is to not complete the AA program, realize there's still some stuff that is not fixed and think the answer is another fellowship. And of course, that puts you back at step one and delays the completion of the step nine. And your ego will love this. Oh, goody. Another step four, another examination of myself when the amends haven't been completed from the first step four. I think a super helpful approach with the steps is to be both systematic and simple. Um, so to, if, if you decide you're going to do the steps in one fellowship, complete them, complete every last amend, uh, do sane and sound ideals for all of the other problem areas, maybe get some input from people who've got experience in those areas, maybe from other fellowships. You know, I've got... Um, really helpful i'm not a member of SLA, but i've got really helpful ideas from SLA about bottom lines and, and things like that in that area that was a big problem area for me so what you know in aa one can learn from other fellowships without going and becoming a fully fledged member putting yourself back at step one and ending up in multiple step processes so complete the steps do a bunch of same and sound ideals 
start sponsoring people and give it a year and see whether things calm down. When I had, a, as Chris Raymond would call it, a barnstorming spiritual experience in, oh, I don't know, I was about 15 years sober. Um, it knocks you sideways. And all of the other problems were still there at the end of it in one way or another, often internally. It took two or three years for all of that to calm down. It took two or three years for that spirit, that, that single spiritual experience. This was at 15 years sober. It took two or three years before the, 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 uh, it's like when a wave hits, you know, there's, it's, there's, it, it's going to knock everything all over the place. And it takes a while to reconstruct, to learn all the lessons there are to learn. Um, and I just, I just needed to, uh, some, someone on here is going to laugh at this phrase. Uh, um, what's that thing about time? Let time take time or let, I can't, I can't even remember the phrase, but let time do its work. And very often these things, they have a, ha I, in my experience, they have these other problems. Most of them have a habit of just dissolving gradually over time, just through consistent application of steps 10, 11, and 12, lots of service, lots of sponsorship. And you wake up a couple of years later and a problem, give time, time. That's it. Um, uh, they, they have a problem working themselves out without me having to hammer at something. Um, uh, I d in the point of the higher power is I don't solve my own problems by obsessive activity. I solve it by letting go, keeping out of my own way and staying out of my own mind for long enough for it to literally physically heal for the old neural pathways to dissolve for the neurons, literally to the, the, the chemicals in the neurons, literally to be repurposed to build new neural pathways. I mean, this is not, this is actual neuro, this is actually what happens in your brain. If certain neural pathways aren't used, your brain repurposes them. And that takes a lot of time. So I've saved myself a lot of grief by letting time, get by giving time time, uh, completing a set of steps once and then see and giving it time and then seeing what's left over. And then you see what's important. Then I could see, okay, this is something that needs dealing with. That is something that needs dealing with. Um, uh, the other thing as well, it can get very confusing to go to a whole bunch of different fellowships at once, to be on in different steps on different fellowships, having multiple sponsors in different fellowships. I've seen people who are very adroit and skillful at maybe 20 years juggling having an Al-Anon sponsor and an AA sponsor and a this sponsor and a that sponsor but it takes a lot of skill it's just like when people are in therapy if you've had sponsees who are in therapy there's nothing wrong with therapy if you have sponsees who are in therapy they'll often spend a lot of time taking everything that you've said to the therapist seeing what the therapist says about it and then taking everything that the therapist says telling you about it and then you feel as though you're having a conversation with the therapist via the sponsee and then they're, they're the center of an awful lot of professional attention uh so it can be people can end up playing systems off against each other they're not being mean or malicious or difficult on purpose it's just how people operate i've i've done it <laughs> and i've seen other people do it so do one thing at a time do it properly let it settle 
um, I'm sure Evan will be able to sort of correct me on this about when you're when you're when you're trying to fix code, you fix you try one thing at a time and you fix that and you see if it, you run it again, you see if it works or it doesn't work. If you, if you fix if you change two things at once and then you rerun it, you don't know which thing fixed it. Regression texting, testing, there you go. So uh, it, to, to try one thing at a time, try it really properly and give it time and let it work itself through. Uh, as I say, the, one, the big caveat there, big caveat is if there is a, a, a as they would say with liver disease, a fulminating liver disease or galloping consumption, some addictive process which is just totally blocking you from even engaging in the process. And it can be you get 10 people with dysfunctional relationships. Nine can work the program and heal in that relationship. One out of 10 needs to be out of the relationship and block the number for six months before they can even start to thaw out from the um uh, for, for, from the toxicity, I'm sorry, I'm mixing metaphors, they're detoxified from the toxicity of that relationship. And it can take a while to figure out which is going on. So, so you know, d is it okay for your sponsor to do three fellowships? Uh, with some people, it's absolutely the right thing to do. With other people, they won't make progress in any. So it's something that has to be played very much by ear. And one's got to examine each situation, talk around, ask around. One point about multiple fellowships as well. Um, uh, it's very sense. It can be very sensible to escalate gradually. So first of all, one can read the books of a fellowship and listen to some tapes and go to a few meetings. And honestly, I've known people that have done that with some Al-Anon stuff. They've read some books. They've gone to a few meetings. They've written down some tips, and they caught they bolt those materials onto their existing AA program. Um, other people need to go further and um, go to a meeting regularly. Other people need to go further and do the first three steps in that fellowship. That's a super helpful way because once you get to step four in most fellowships, things are pretty much the same. Um, so what I get people to do who've got food or sex problems is to definitely do um, steps one, two, three in SLA or SA or, or OA. And then kind of it's like tributaries to a river. You get to step four. You're doing step four to nine on your whole life. As long as you've examined the powerlessness and the insanity and you've surrendered that area and you've got if it's, you know, essay or slide, you've got some bottom lines and some middle lines and some these lines and some those lines. And with OA, you've got your daily plans and whatever. You know, some people have little scales where they measure things. Other people are much more intuitive about things. But you've got a plan in place and someone to be accountable to. And then you can combine multiple fellowships and it doesn't cause a problem because you've basically got a single process with multiple tributaries in the first three steps. And then the final um the, the final stage, if that doesn't work, if you're still if you're still screwed, you might need to, you know, become a fully fledged member of the other fellowship and what i've seen work pretty well i for about five years uh, uh tom gave me this notion of when you're standing somewhere uh like in a queue you're usually leaning more on one leg rather than the other leg so both legs are supporting you but you're leaning primarily on the left leg or primarily on the right leg and 
in my first 11 years of AA, first 11 years of recovery, I, I was leaning uh, uh, on my AA leg with a little bit of Al-Anon thrown in. I then had ooh, five years of leaning almost entirely on my Al-Anon leg. I, Al-Anon was the absolute core of my life, and but I was still doing AA as a fully fledged member. Uh, and then it switched again at 15, 16 years. And uh, I went back to AA as my main thing. In the last couple of years, it, it's I'm leaning about 60% AA, 40% anon. Um, so that the, the, the weight can change. And I've seen people do that with, you know, UA and DA and GA, all sorts of other things. But to know which one, the, the, the primary weight, where the primary weight is, where home is, is very difficult to have a real home, in my experience, in more than one place. The loyalty always seems to gravitate. There's always, a, in my case, or maybe other people are different. There's a center of gravity somewhere, and that can shift. Uh, and I've had to let it shift where it needs to shift for me to be entirely at home. So years 11 to 15, 11 to 16, somewhere around there, I was doing a lot of AA service. And my problem was that I was in, I'd been like an intergroup meeting and someone would say something, my whole body would tense up and I would stop breathing. And then three, and basically I was reacting to some angry alcoholics. I won't say which intergroup. I was reacting to some angry alcoholics who were starting to get a bit tense and I needed I needed somewhere to go to um, examine my reaction to alcoholics so I could continue to go to AA as I just I did not want to carry on going I was I find it very difficult to be around alcoholics had the same thing because of sponsorship as well you know if you're called by 20 or 30 people a week um, if you haven't got your wits about you it can grind you down if you're not if you're not uh, triaging things correctly so to cut a long story short um there isn't a one-size-fits-all approach with sponsees and other fellowships there's a whole range of different experiences and all you can do is uh, give some advice and guidance and they get to follow their conscience and there's a great line in the book uh where if he wants to try a different approach he should follow his conscience. I think it says conscience. I may be wrong there. But anyway, it's, it's not follow the latest idea that's come into his head. It's it's a, a genuine matter of conscience, which requires deep contemplation. Before I go on to uh, the thorny topics of sex, food and uh, dating, does anyone have any questions about any of that? Claire? Just a quick question, and it's it's more the logistics of it. So um, if you would be working with an alcoholic through the steps of AA and then halfway through the step work, other problems start to show their face, like dramatic weight loss and so forth, would you pause the work and say, suggest that they at least join other fellowship, make friends there rather than do this, rather than stop the step work? I don't know, um, pause it or ask them to go to another fellowship but carry on the work through to step nine um I, i'll there's a sort of process of escalation um it, it's very rare 
that you get halfway through the steps and then discover that there's a problem with food or there's a problem with sex, you usually find out pretty soon. You know, the bags under the eyes will tell you <laughs> that there's something going on. Um, what you, where it usually where it usually crops up is actually in the early stages where people it's where people relapse on alcohol. And one of the first things I always find out is what else is what's going on with sex? What's going on with food? And very, very often, if someone is doing a whole load of work in AA, but then they're relapsing, it's almost always the case. There is another addiction which hasn't been addressed. And it's so they've been kind of using the whole time. Uh, on food or on sex and that's why that the the, the uh, defenses are, are down with alcohol uh, if something comes up mid midstream as it were I shouldn't be really used <laughs> midstream with sex addiction um, uh, if something comes up halfway <laughs> through you know the, you go for the tests uh, where, if something comes up halfway through the the, the steps um, I mean, first of all, you can tr you can try basic, you know, turn the area over to the higher power, talk to a friend in OA, get a plan in place for the food, whatever. Uh, just, you know, stay away from the, the stay away from the sex clubs. For, can you stay away from the sex clubs for a week? Very often, people have, if they've got a, a strongish AA program, you discover that the abstinence side of things is actually not a big deal if they're having trouble maintaining abstinence from you know really critically dangerous behaviors then you know it's it's um, they go to the saturday morning oa meeting in soho do not pass go do not collect 200 pounds talk to x y and z and what i suggest people do is do steps one two and three in that fellowship in a weekend like they've already done steps one, two and three. They already know the big book. It's taking the information they know about how the, you know, how the structure of addiction works and then immediately just applying it in that other area and committing to, a, you know, a few OA meetings a week, a few SA meetings a week. So you nobble it straight away. You don't want to halt the step work and put someone into a great big introspective process, because honestly, if it's if 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 it's been get you know if they've got a sex addiction or if they've got a a, a food problem, it's been going on for years. It's not like they don't know about it. It's not like it's come up from nowhere. You know, are you willing? Are you willing to do something about it? Um, and my observation, I've been amazed and hugely gratified. The people that are willing to go to the fellowship and deal with it and go to meetings are immensely relieved that there are other people with the same problem and they get instant hope it's that thing of that the shock of aa when you join aa is enough to overcome the resistance uh, and fear of giving up the addiction it's so overwhelmingly positive and with a bit of luck they'll have that experience with oa if they go to some really strong oa really strong sa meetings they're bowled over by all the support and um, in the last couple of years, when I'm, sponsors of mine have done that, they've done really, really well. It's made, they've done amazingly well. So you catch it straight away. If it doesn't yield to just, you know, the basic corrective measures of the daily program, immediately launch, you know, launch them to the strongest people you know in that area. And that usually puts the kibosh on it. Um, Any other questions? Um, thank you, Tim, for the presentation, Omar Akhalik. 
if I'm sponsoring someone and that sponsee is acting out in other forms of addiction, will I be able to detect that in his performance in the 12 steps program? Uh, you, my experience usually, you, you'll find what it comes out sideways. People always betray themselves one way or another. Um, I mean, no, not on this topic specifically, but when you listen to how people describe things, it's people's unconscious language which reveals what's going on. Um, uh, and the daily plans will usually reveal it and da the daily review, because if there's an addiction going on, it's almost certainly causing trouble. Occasionally, people can keep there are people who are very skilled at keeping things compartmentalized. I, I could do this for a while, um, but only for a while. So usually it does. It comes out and you'll discover it one way or another. And it doesn't take many. If, if you're talking to them on a regular basis, it'll come out. So I, I don't think you need to worry about that. Um, people are just not most people are just not good enough at covering their tracks. Thanks. So if there are no questions on that, and of course, I mean, the thing is with, with the food and sex uh, stuff and gambling, whatever, send them to the experts. If you've got any doubts, send them to the experts who are the members of SA, who are, send the Al-Anons to people who are like 100% Al-Anon. Send the food people to people who are like mainly OA, who all for whom that's, you know, one of their you know, two primary things. Um, so if, if you feel out of your depth, maybe you are, send them to someone who's got more experience. So I've got lists of people. I just, you know, shoot them straight through to the OA people on that because they're much better than me on that. I can deal with the sex stuff, but the food stuff is not really my area. So, um, I, I, I think food, we've kind of covered that, um, uh, already, uh, with, with the, with the sex stuff, I think it's, yeah, I think we've covered that already, actually. Um, uh, you deal with, with people who've got problems in that area, you deal with it, it within the home program, which is AA or CA or whatever, with the sane and sound ideal. So out of, um, on page 69, out of the sex inventory, you get to devise with the higher power a sane and sound ideal towards which you're willing to grow. And then that can be applied to any of the other problems that are presenting uh as i say escalate to another fellowship if necessary through the stages of visiting listening reading to becoming a regular member of a group to doing the first three steps to doing all of the steps you know so i've had sponsees that do the steps with me and then go to the other fellowship and do the steps from the beginning but only once they've completed the steps with, with me i i don't think i've got anything else to say on food or sex i don't know if people have questions about either of those two topics with the, the there's one aspect of, sort of dating and relationships and there is a fellowship for the dating and relationship side of it, and it's it's uh, SLAR is the obvious is the obvious one. But w with this one, uh, my experience in AA uh, is that almost every almost every addict I was certainly like this. Almost every addict has a problematical relationship with dating and 
relationships for a couple of key reasons. And the first one is basic selfishness. And I'm talking about myself here, basic selfishness. And the second one is the notion of the special relationship. Let's do the selfishness. I'm trying to think of a way to come at this without being too um, rude about myself or other people. It's a delicate, it's a delicate topic. Tom uh, gives the example of, you know, those lizards, those large lizards called Komodo dragons that some people have as pets. He said, your pet Komodo dragon does not love you. It loves heat and it loves flies. You're currently supplying both. So it's performing love. And addicts can be a little bit like this. I'm going to read something out if I can find it. If you'll let me pause for a moment while I look for something. And Claire will be amused at the source of this, I'm sure. It's from uh, a psychiatrist from the uh, from the I think middle of the 20th century called Otto Fenichel. I don't know if you've heard of him. Um, And he writes this on love addiction. A person who is fixed on the state where his self-esteem is regulated by external supplies goes through this world in in a condition of perpetual greediness. If his narcissistic needs are not satisfied, his self-esteem diminishes to a danger point. He is ready to do anything to avoid this. On the one hand, the fixation of such persons manifests itself in a tendency to react to frustrations with violence. On the other hand, their dependence impels them to try to get what they need by ingratiation and submissiveness. The conflict between these contradictory devices is characteristic for persons with this predisposition. These persons, and this is where it gets particularly spicy, these persons in their continuous need of supplies that give satisfaction and heighten self-esteem simultaneously are love addicts. Unable to love actively, they passively need to feel loved. They're characterized by the dependence and their narcissistic type of object choice. And they tend to change objects frequently because no object is able to provide the necessary satisfaction. Without giving any consideration to the feelings of their fellow man, they demand of them an understanding of their own feelings. They're always bent upon establishing a good understanding with people, though they are unable to feel fulfill their own part of such an understanding. This need compels them to attempt to deny their ever-present readiness to react hostilely. A couple more points. Um, the personality of the object is of no great importance. They need the supplies and it does not matter who provides them heat and flies. It does not necessarily have to be a person. It may be a drug or an obsessive hobby. Some persons of this type fare worse than others. They not only need supplies, but simultaneously fear getting them because they unconsciously consider them dangerous. As in the case of drug addicts, love addicts too may become incapable of getting the desired satisfaction, which in turn increases their addiction. Now, I, I, I'm sure you're much nicer than I am. I identify with that in a rather painful, vivid way. It, it characterizes a B 
big chunk of my life. And I took that mindset into romantic relationships. And then I was terribly surprised when none of these relationships worked out because no one could ever satisfy the need inside me. That's what it's talking about. You're, you're trying to, to, uh, to get an external source to fill an internal void. And society will support you in uh, looking to romantic relationships to do to do this. That that you know the films and the books and so on. Uh, there's a Sondheim line: "A slotted spoon doesn't hold much soup." Uh, and as a slotted spoon, it doesn't matter how much love was poured in; it was never enough, and I couldn't keep it there. And so I was constantly trying to get the other person to love me more or love me better, and they couldn't, so I became bitter and hostile towards them. Um, they say in old-fashioned AA, in your first year, get a pot plant. If the pot plant survives in the second year, get a hamster or a gerbil not a higher life form, something which doesn't require much, or maybe a stick insect. If the stick insect doesn't, doesn't uh, die uh, at your hand, try some tropical fish. When you're maybe five or six years sober, consider a kitten. When you're seven or eight years sober, consider a puppy. When you're 10 years sober, maybe go on a date or two. Tom describes how in California, they'd have to get at the young people's meetings, the newcomers to repeat them to themselves. If I don't get laid, I'm not going to die. If I don't get laid, I'm not going to die. Uh, <laughs> dysfunctional relationships. Tom quotes a chap called Glenn, who is a member of 19 different 12 step fellowships, who talks about his object for a good romantic relationship. Uh, the orphan with the big eyes and the broken wing. Um, he says, I can sniff them out through lead. And Tom's advice in these situations, if you go into a room and your eyes meet across the room at someone you know is the one, don't even say hello. Find someone you find dull and go for a walk in the park with them six times to see if there's someone you can develop the skill of having a conversation with. These toxic relationships. Uh, there was a, I'm sure I've said this one before, that there was a, a video I saw on, on Facebook. Uh, it was a girl doing one of those smudging ceremonies. She wasn't Native American, but she was doing a Native American smudging ceremony with the spurning the sage and the incantations to, to get rid of the toxic energy in the room. And the caption underneath was trying to using a Native American ceremony to get rid of the toxicity in the room when you are the toxicity in the room. So I would take my toxicity into uh, romantic relationships, um, which were just repeats of each other. There were these attempts to uh, mend my wounded self-esteem by extracting specialness from another person. Because I felt I was giving up my 
I was surrendering my worthlessness in return for their specialness. I felt I was cheating the other person and so felt hostile towards them for falling for the falling for the ruse. I lost respect for anyone who was interested. If they were interested, if they weren't interested, they could see the truth. Therefore, they had my respect. So I was after the people who were unavailable. As soon as someone was available, they sickened me because I could see they couldn't see through the, the ruse. It was all very complicated and, and it doomed me to years of extremely unsatisfactory relationships. Now, those, that's a kind of collage of all sorts of different things. How does this work with sponsees? Um, if your sponsee has a pattern of toxic relationships, um, the way, frankly, if they're in one, there's probably, a not, as, as when I asked my friend, my sponsor Doug once, how to deal with a particularly difficult situation, he said hide on the basis that there's probably nothing you can say or do. If they're in a toxic relationship, there's probably nothing you can say or do. It's just like they're in an addiction. It will need to work itself through. Um, I needed to learn how to be in relationships, like intimate relationships, which work. I've been with someone for, for 17 years or so. Um, I need to do that by learning how to... Uh, how to be a friend, how to be a colleague, how to be a normal human being or a healthy human being in all sorts of ordinary settings before I could work up to the very, very perilous task of having an intimate relationship. I, I couldn't go straight in with those and have them work. I needed to learn how to just be an ordinary person first. Um, you weren't about to answer the, the the buzzer thing is that I think he's got keys anyway. Um, um, I needed to work up to it, and I needed to. Uh, it talks in the big book. It's very it's very clever. If uh, if the relationship is going to work, it has to be on an entirely new basis, and the entirely because the old basis didn't work. Uh, I had a sequence of, so I, I had a reasonably healthy relationship for a few years in AA, and then that broke up. And then I went back to crazy land. Basically, the old me got revived, the unprocessed sort of love addict, relationship addict me got revived, and the whole thing blew up again. And um, uh, what I what I had to do was to learn how to have relationships with an entirely new type of person on an entirely new basis. I'm just going to close the door. Um, and now the source for this, um, uh, there are several sources. Don Pritz, you can point him towards Don Pritz, who says, I don't know how to have a healthy, sick relationship. What's a sick relationship? It's, it's a relationship you want anything out of. Uh, someone said to me a few years ago, the two reasons to have a long, uh, a, an intimate relationship is if you're lacking opportunities for forgiveness and lacking opportunities for service. If you feel that you're just not useful enough, you're just 
doing you know you're getting your way too much of the time and you're just spending too much time doing fun stuff for yourself you you want to sacrifice some stuff and you're just getting on too well with everyone there's just nothing to forgive you're getting out of practice with forgiveness then i've got a great idea for you intimate relationship it will solve these two problems instantly and the job harold rabbi harold kushner talks about this about um forgiveness and service being the two main uh, ingredients uh rabbi manis friedman is very good and there are lots and lots of other authors as well um and so to to treat the and this is the thing to to uh, to, so to use the intimate relationship as basically an extension of the program generally it's not like a special carved out area it's um uh it's a venue for the two activities of forgiveness and service and the way i learned to have healthy relationships the first stage was you well you've got to stop having the toxic ones and the chief way to stop having the toxic ones in my experience was to uh as tom suggested not say hello to the toxic people and you know they're toxic because you're attracted to them if you have a toxic history um so i had to be super careful and super boundaried about who i went on dates with who i was who i showed interest in and to look out for people with different qualities and i've got loads of materials that i send sponsees uh, these are the qualities that if you uh want a healthy relationship these are the qualities to look for in someone else but the only way you're going to attract those people is to become those things yourself so to learn how to develop the um uh, you know the qualities of, of of emotional balance and maturity and selflessness and prudence and forethought and reasonableness and flexibility and all of those other all of those other things that if one can if one learns how to demonstrate those one will automatically attract um different people and the toxic people will run like a mile from you you won't even have to avoid them anymore after a while because they will they will sniff that you're not up for the dance um so the difficulty with uh so, so with sponsees there are the uh, if they as i said if they're in a toxic relationship there's almost nothing you can do uh, unless they're willing to take a break from it um the ones who are not and are just re-entering the dating game uh i just pass on everything i've just said to you uh, uh, about uh, that you can't uh, you can't take that mindset of treating the relationship as a source of something to satisfy to mend one's wounded self-esteem or to give one identity or something like that and make it work it has to be on an entirely new basis and if people are willing to work on that new basis then it works very well um and that's pretty much it on the on the sort of dating and relationship side of things everything i know comes from people who have been married for 10 20 30 40 or 50 years and from books by mostly rabbis and some other people who are marriage guidance counselors and so on that's where now i'm devised anything myself everything i've got from other people uh also alanon really really alanon principles really really help 
if people are struggling in intimate relationships to recognize that, uh, you know, the let it begin with me and all of the detachment stuff is immensely helpful for a lot of people. Um, does anyone have any questions about the uh, dating and relationship side of things? James. Thanks, Tim. Um, yeah, I've got a question about, so what's happened a couple of times when I've been sponsoring people is that the, who are alcoholics, the, um, if the alcoholic's in a relation on a long-term relationship, they they come into recovery and they get sober and it's all great for a while. But then the person I'm sponsoring starts to say that their partner raises issues about the sheer amount of time they're spending involved with AA. So for a while, it's all great. But then as time goes on, there seems to be like, um, I suppose, possibly a resentment that's being that's happening in the relationship with the with the non-alcoholic and what is do you have suggestions about what might help a person who finds themselves in that situation i'm not talking about a toxic relationship i'm just talking about a relationship where this occurs yeah so that's that's a that's a rare problem mostly because most people have burnt their relationships to the ground by the time they get into AA. I've had very few sponsees that have come in with an intact relationship, but that's always a problem when they have an intact relationship. Um, unfortunately, the, the, the difficult thing is most of the ones that come in with an, an intact relationship, when they get well, the relationship breaks down because the, 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 the other person was as unwell as they were either as alcoholics or addicts or as codependents or, or alanons and unless they engage in a recovery process it's it's very in my experience in my own sponsee history it's been very rare for those relationships to survive it occasionally happens but um uh it's not just with intimate relationships you get this with with uh, uh family obligations um with friends as well people's friends get bitter sometimes about aa um, one of my sponsors, great line, things he bangs on about uh, a lot is on page 19, a much more important demonstration, a demonstration of our principles lies in our respective homes, occupations and affairs. And it can take a while to figure out whether the spouse is complaining. Uh, let's say the spouse, let's say it's the spouse, whether the spouse is complaining because the sponsee is uh, is taking the mickey, is not fulfilling their family obligations, is just not around anymore. Bob, Bob, you begin to listen to Bob Bizantz and Linda Bizantz. So he's been in AA for 5,000 years. She's been in Al-Anon for 5,000 years. And they do panels together. Um, and they're very good about, it often happens, you know, somewhere around six, seven years, both of them super active in their respective programs, but like ships in the night, not, you know that the, they occasionally meet across the kitchen table <laughs> going in opposite directions but that's it um and so i uh, and it talks in the big book about this so you can point straight back to the big book that uh uh a program which doesn't involve the family obligations is no program at all and so usually there's a way around that uh however sometimes there's something else going on and it's essentially a subconscious resentment on the part of the spouse that AA is doing for the spouse what they were unable to do. And it comes out as something else. Um, 
the other uh, thing that may happen, if the person themselves is very, very codependent and needy, however much the person gives them, uh, it will never be enough. So when they had all of their time, it wasn't enough. And now AA is even getting 10% of the time is too much because even when they're getting all of them, they're feeling unsatisfied. By I've seen that a number of times. So you've got to ferret out what's actually going on there. But sometimes the spouse is, you're like totally behind the spouse because the sponsor is being totally unreasonable. And other times you think, oh dear, this is, you know, sometimes the, the person's going to one meeting a week. And the spouse is, you're always at AA, and they're just not. You know, it's the fact they're going at all becomes a point of contention. So one's got to listen very carefully and find out what's going on because there's often a story behind that. Does that make sense, James? Yes, yeah, it does. Thank you, Tim. Harry. Hey, Harry, alcoholic. Thanks, Tim, for that. Um, so I was trying to think through my my sponsees i think there's kind of three categories one people already in long-term relationships and you've got you know some work in the program to do there people who are which is i think really the emphasis of what you were getting at with lots of the stuff you were just talking about so lots of people are very keen to get messy and get dating and get active blah, blah, blah. and so the guidance to maybe wait 10 years and uh and see it as an opportunity for service of forgiveness that's what i'll deploy with them but there's another category which is I encounter people who are quite fretful about getting into relationships and very nervous and very timid. And actually, they it's a problem in, in another direction. It feels like, you know, it's a very mean kind of area of their life. And with a couple of people, I've, I've actually said, you know, maybe you should go and make a mistake. <laughs> go and try and date some people who maybe make a mistake. What do you reckon to that? If you expose yourself, I should have used that phrase cautiously if you expose your, yourself to, to social media i don't mean anything else if uh, to uh, and to, to films and to books you get you can get the idea that the two important things in life are sex and money or, or, or romantic love and money or career gets dressed up as career and marriage it's the same falls down to the same thing and there's a distortion there. Um, I mean, I'd assert that uh, people are a lot poorer going through life without learning at least something of a foreign language and something of a musical instrument. But people think at nothing of going through life without learning a musical instrument. And honestly, you know, that's that to me, that's up there with career and. Um, uh, sex, for instance. Uh, I had a, a psychotherapist once called Sally, who was marvellous in all sorts of ways. And she said that she blamed a lot of problems that her therapies had on the programme Friends. I don't know if anyone remembers the programme Friends. So people would watch Friends and see these bunch of people who were friends who hung out with each other all the time and spent a lot of time in each other's flats and were, were fun and they were funny and they had a good time. And when they, have a, when they have a problem, it's solved within 23 minutes. And then they'd come in and talk about their, pro their actual relationships and feel incredibly inadequate because they're basically, because their relationship, their friendships did not match what they were seeing on Friends. 
And I think people can suffer from this enormously uh, in the area of of sex and romance. And I've got this sort of ide- idealistic ideas of of how of what these things should look like, which are entirely unrealistic. Um, one can, of course, make a project of dating. Uh, my sponsor, actually, I had a sponsor when I was in my second year. I'm, I was joking about 10 years. Maybe for some people it does take 10 years. Maybe other people, you work the steps, you, you dip your toe in the water in the second year or the third year. Um, but my sponsor said, I said, I'm not meeting anyone. He said, are you going to places where you can meet people? No, I'm not. Well, of course, you have to you have to place it's like with job, finding a job. You have to be applying for jobs to be offered a job. Um, and so to take the action, it's just like with everything else. If you're timid about work, to take the action and then put the results in God's hands. Take the act, keep taking the action, review it, talk, and to talk to just like with anything else, talk to people who are successful in this area, find out what they did, and do what they did. Um, uh, a, a good point, a, a case in point. Uh, I got to spend some time with Jim Willis about 10 years ago he was over i think he was over 50 years sober at that time and, and around 50 years married and he talked about intimate relationships and uh if you've got your own kind of weirdness and darkness, you don't bring that and put it on the dining room table for your spouse to deal with you go and find you find someone to deal with it they've got their own stuff they don't have to deal with yours as well and it runs totally against a lot of you know, contemporary wisdom about you got to tell everyone everything and you know, openness. And but I figured he's married for fifty years. I'd like to be married for fifty years. I'm going to do what he does, and so I just copy. And so I get people who are timid about. Uh, I, it's a very common thing being timid about dating, timid about relationships. Copy people who are successful at it. Find out what they do do and copy. Monkey see, monkey do. And yeah, I think you're right, absolutely, to, to make lots of mistakes. But also, um, sometimes um, treating dating as a project in itself sort of dooms you to failure because it, it places too much emphasis on the outcome. Often people are very, it's because they're fixated on the outcome. I need to have an intimate relationship and I'm not a worthy member of society unless I'm, I'm you know, doing things with my body, with someone else's body in the dark somewhere. Now, that's the idea. Um, uh, and of course, one can, I talked to a priest once and I talked, I was talking to him about celibacy. And he said, do you think people who are celibate, that know, knowing that he was someone who <laughs> knew a lot of people who were celibate, are their lives any the less rich for their celibacy? He says, no, funnily enough, it's quite the reverse. But that the energy that would have gone into the intimate relationships has to find an expression and finds wonderful expressions in all sorts of other ways. So not to be neurotic about it, but... Um, the advice that I was always given, which I pass on as well, is if you engage in society and do lots of interesting things, you'll meet people and things will you'll find people you get on with. And you don't need to jump into bed immediately with people to tick the box of you're having an intimate relationship. Maybe get to know people as friends and see what grows out of it. Um, I had a long term relationship for about eight years with someone actually in AA. 
and that's how it happened. I wasn't looking for it, but I got to know them as a friend. And one day we were playing piano duets, and then the next moment we weren't. And this took, you know, this we were, to, we were friends for a while before, you know, Foray's Dolly Suite led on to something in, <laughs> just as innocent, but rather different. Um, so uh, not making a project out of it can sometimes be the best, the best way of dealing with it. Uh, good generalship suggests that the question be attacked on the flank rather than risk a face-to-face -face confrontation. So... So we're running out of time a little bit. Does anyone have any more questions on these topics? So the, the topics for next week, and then I think I'm done on this, are uh, uh, exercise and physical health, uh, families, that'll be quick, <laughs> workplace, and the, the, the larger topic of drama. You've got um, maybe some of you have got sponsees have got sponsees who have a lot of drama, who have a lot of dramatic dramatic incidents and massive realizations every every day of the week. How to deal with dramatic sponsees? Um, so I think that's 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 for next week. So I'll hand it back to you, uh, Omar. Okay. Um, thank you, Tim, so much for the presentation. I think we have reached the end of the meeting. To set the tone for the meeting, I will read an extract uh, from page 164 of the big book. Still, you may say, but I will not have the benefit of contact with you who write this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that. So you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we, only, we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. The topic of tonight's meeting is uh, what well, tonight's meeting is part four of working step 12 with a sponsee. And Tim will share anything between 30 and 45 minutes on the topic, after which the floor will be open for questions rather than the typical sharing. And with that, I will now hand over to Tim. Evening, everyone. Tim Alcoholic. Um, there are a couple of topics I'm going to start. I'm, I want to get them out of the way because they're sort of deadly. Um, uh, so there are a couple of outside issues which uh, come up when you're sponsoring people. And the first one is the issue of psychotherapy. And the second one is the issue of psychiatry. And I'll deal with these separately. Um, now, uh, I don't know about anyone else, but when I, when I was growing up, uh, various people tried to help me. 
Uh, and when they couldn't, they always said the same thing. When they ran out of things to say, they'd say, I think you should see a therapist. Now, what this means is I don't have a solution, but there is a solution somewhere. And the thing is about therapy, we talk about it in recovery a lot, as though it's a single thing. But it's like saying you need a solution because it covers such an incredibly broad range of things from psychoanalysts with psychotherapy to cognitive behavioral therapy to very, very targeted um, uh, interventions. To, uh, and there are all sorts of skill levels or people with different experiences, but therapists, different experiences with 12 step recovery. Some are very hostile, some are very positive. So it doesn't really mean anything to say, I'm in therapy or I'm thinking about going to therapy or you should go to therapy. It has, it has made like saying um, you, ha you have a problem, you need a solution because it's too broad a term. But one phenomenon which is very common where, where it interacts with, and I have no opinion on, you know, one can't have an opinion on therapy per se because it's such a broad topic, it doesn't mean anything. Uh, one has to know what, what therapy one's talking about. Uh, and I've certainly had therapy a number of times and, and subjectively speaking, there have been some benefits. I'm not anti at all, but where it comes up, where it comes up very regularly with sponsees is. Um, now, there are some people I've, I've known who sponsees who've gone into therapy to deal with particular childhood questions. Or particular behavioural problems, particular phobias, or particular um, compulsive behaviours. Um, but what often happens with sponsees is they'll experience a malaise of some sort, particularly when they're part way through the process. So part way through step four, or part way through step eight, or part way through step nine. And someone suggests therapy with, without going into any detail about exactly what sort of therapy or why or what aspect of the problem. But it's just sort of waved as the sort of magical solution over there. And as though one, you know, everyone is necessarily missing out if one isn't if one isn't having it. Um, and and I shouldn't really say this, but I'm going to. Um, I've been to a number of meetings where the topic of the meeting becomes, so, so the chair mentions therapy, and then the topic of the sharing is, AA is great because it gets you physically sober, but the point of AA is to enable you to go to therapy, and that's the real answer. And I've been to meetings where you sort of suggest that you've done the AA program, it solved your problems, and there's lots of head shape at the assertion that AA has anything to offer other than keeping you physically sober. It's very disconcerting. I don't tend to go back to those meetings, but they do. There's some around here where I've been to which are like that. Um, now, the question with, obviously, it's up to the sponsee what they do. But I think there are a couple of considerations. There are a couple of areas of considerations which I give sponsees when they start to sort of, um, uh, when they want to wave the magic therapy wand to treat their, whatever their condition is. And the first one, uh, if you were going to, because it, I don't know about anyone else's experience with therapy, it's very expensive unless you can get some sort of funding. You know, I've, I've paid up to £150 an hour for a therapist. Money well spent in some cases, but nonetheless, it's a big financial commitment. One wouldn't spend, you know, five to £10,000 on a kitchen without doing some due diligence about what one's letting oneself in for. 
So what I suggest to people is exactly what I did when I undertook the therapy project to solve some specific questions, uh, which is, what is the problem you're seeking to solve? How have you determined that therapy is the answer? What therapy? What are the qualifications of the therapist? What is the method? What is the outcome? What does success mean? How do you measure progress towards success? How long does it go on for before you understand whether or not it's working? It's a, it's a big financial decision. The questions one would ask if one were buying a car or, 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 or as I say, having the kitchen redone. And what's very interesting is a, a, a lot of friends of mine who, who've gone into therapy haven't asked any of those questions at all. Absolutely no idea what they're letting themselves involved. There might be a single personal recommendation, or they've got the number out of a, a directory, um, which suggests a sort of magical, magical thinking about it, as though there are magical properties to everything within the category. But whereas, in, in fact, um, as one person in this meeting will know, there are some very specific, very targeted strategies which are immensely successful with a really good evidence base. And, and, and there, there are others which, uh, which are very contrary to the certain types of therapy, which are very controversial, where the evidence base is much weaker. What, so the question to response is, do you know what, why you're doing this and what you're letting yourself in for? And when I've questioned sponsees who are thinking about this, often the thinking has gone no further than this. Well, I don't feel very good and I'm a year sober now, and Susan suggested it. This is, this is not solid thinking. This is wanting to wave a magic wand when you're already in a process. So the first one is to know exactly why, what you're, why you're doing, why you're considering something, what solutions you're considering, how you've identified that therapy is a solution, what type of therapy, what, what are the credentials, uh, what are the testimonials from that particular therapist. Uh, I want to know what I'm getting myself into with things like that. The second, the second question, and this is not often discussed. I, I've known a lot of people in recovery who see the problem, the entire life problem of the individual as essentially a psychological problem rooted in childhood experiences. Now, I don't know about anyone else. My experience is that, that yeah, that's a factor. I'm not saying it's not a factor. But I think I've identified in my life eight areas of problem and each has a different type of solution. And therapy was the solution to one of them, namely the psychological. So there are all sorts of psychological quirks which um, therapy very much helped with. So uh, I've, I've got a form of autism. And when that was it was informally diagnosed. It wasn't an autism specialist, but um, uh, the therapist was experienced with people with autism. And we, the diagnosis was in the form of uh, if it looks like a duck and it quacks rather than going through formal diagnostic criteria. Um, but the shoes fit and the approach she adopted was um, uh, very specifically aimed at looking at certain cognitive processes and working around those in a very tailored way. So a very good example of a, of a psychological problem. Another good example of a psychological problem a friend of mine had, and a therapist was immensely helpful, was being so dissociated he couldn't access any of his feelings. 
and a therapist in a few weeks managed to unlock everything and then that really let the, <laughs> the, the that opened their can of worms but you need the step four needs you need to start with the worms unless you've got the worms of resentment and fear and guilt and shame on the surface and visible you've got nothing to work with i'm sure you've had sponsees who say i don't resent anyone I'm a very nice person. And it just means you've probably got someone who's just so totally dissociated. And a rather probing therapist can usually put pay to that in a few weeks. So those are examples of psychological problems. Uh, people with PTSD, it's a psychological problem where certain um, uh, events are associated in the mind with certain traumatic events in the past and, and trigger the same response to those traumatic events of the past as though they're happening right now. And I've experienced that myself um and part of the uh help i've had from professionals on that is unpacking and unpicking those reactions and then and that, that ultimately helped to change those those and those that so it's not that psychological problems don't cognitive distortions is the other one i've had friends who've been very much helped with um psychotherapists cognitive behavioral therapists specifically who look at cognitive distortions like splitting and black and white thinking and uh, catastrophizing and get people to memorize the checklist and learn to spot them and not buy into them and replace them with different types of thinking. And, 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 and so all that's immensely helpful. So that's real uh, and true and good and helpful. But there's one aspect of my life. Another aspect of my life is social interaction how I interact with other people. And I've had huge problems in this area. How do you interact with sponsees? How do you interact with bosses? How do you interact with family? And so that the solution there comes, in my experience, largely from finding people who are functional in those areas and saying, what do you do? How do you have dinner with your mother? Give me five tips. I will write them down. So learning how to, when you've got a boss who shouts, how you handle it. How do you handle HR departments? How do you behave in interviews? How do you deal with the council? What, how do you, how do you, do? And, and AA is wonderful with these because it gives you a full room of people who can say, well, this is how you deal with the housing authorities. This is how you deal, this is how you deal with the people at the job centre. Social interaction. And I know some therapists will focus on this, but it's not the primary focus of therapy, in my experience, to examine very closely how one interacts with, with as it, and some therapists it is, I'm sure, but it's not my experience. I've had therapy at various forms for many years. It, it's social problems. Um, the question of, do you have friends? What do you do with those friends? What type of friends are you picking? Um, you've got the social, you've got the practical. Um, uh, all sorts of problems in my life I thought were psychological but were actually entirely practical um, uh, I had all sorts of psychological problems stemming from not having a job and not having any skills which enabled me to get a job and what I needed in this case was the experience of people that uh, knew how to get me onto the job line and this is this is the this is not the job of therapy. Physical things. Uh, uh, if you've got a dietary problem, you go to a dietitian. 
If you've got a sleep disorder, you go to a sleep disorder specialist. There are lots of physical things. So we've got the we've got the practical, the physical, the social, the psychological. And one needs to go to the one's got to identify what the problem is and find the appropriate person to solve that, whether it's inside AA or outside. And then that we haven't even got on to the, 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 the main ones. There is a moral problem, a, a spiritual problem, a philosophical problem, and a theological problem. So to go from the back, your relationship to God, your conception of, that's the theological side, your conception of your position in the universe and your relationship with the rest of the universe is a spiritual question. Who are you? Are you a body or are you a spirit? Where are you on those on the spectrum between the two? Uh, it was very broadly the, the spiritual question. Um, uh, you've got the um, you've got the moral question of are you for yourself or are you for your contribution to the world? Um, what have we got? We've got moral, so philosophical. So uh, there are lots of philosophical questions which have been immensely relevant. Now, if my problem, my, a lot of my, I've had problems in all eight areas. And part of my difficulty over the many years that I struggled in recovery was going to one type of practitioner when my problem resided in an entirely different area. Um, hanging out with assholes, sorry, to pardon my French, is a social issue. And I, I had terrible problems in my 20s which actually stemmed from some of the people I was hanging out with. No wonder I was so unhappy. Until I diagnosed what the problem was, I couldn't solve it. Um, the same with lots of physical things. It's amazing how many people in recovery think there's something wrong with them spiritually when they don't have a regular um, going to bedtime, getting up time. So they're constantly, you know, if you look at your own experience of jet lag, even two or three hour jet lag, uh, people that work night shifts are all over the place. And a lot of people in recovery will have a terrible relationship with sleep and exercise and then be and then think that there's a psychological problem. Maybe it's a physical problem. Maybe sort out the low-hanging fruit first. Um, so uh, I think that the, the, to, to sum this all up, what one's got to do is... Uh, find the appropriate solution to what the problem is you've got to find out what the problem is first and the trouble is with early recovery first two years three years is until you've done the steps everything is a mess so there is no way of really diagnosing uh, specific things that are wrong one's got to sort of do the general sweep of the steps and sort out the basic things like like sleep and diet and exercise and regularity and, and rhythm in one's life before one can see what's left over um and also uh, and, and to go back to the first point to exercise due diligence about if one goes to outside expensive outside practitioners and if so how to go about it rather than treating it as a magic wand so do have any questions about that whole area james thank you tim um yeah, my question is, it's kind of related to this, and it's and this is the question. When a sponsee is going to meetings, maybe, or having been through a treatment centre or through a therapy process, and is getting or is jumbling up stuff they're hearing in 
treatment centre, etc., or therapists with the 12-step recovery programme as outlined in the AA Big Book, how to keep it on track, if you like. Do, would you suggest that, we just, that it's useful to just keep bringing it back to the process in the steps or spend time discussing alternative or, or, or differing views of causes and solutions in recovery or to just keep bringing it back to the big book? Can you give me an, an example of where the two things in your experience can conflict? Okay, so working, so this is a off the top of my head example. So working with a sponsee going through the, uh, through step one and having to unpick the, um, or to sort to, to, to look at the idea of just not drinking and going to meetings in and of itself is not the solution to alcoholism because that's what they've been told maybe previously that that's the problem and that's the solution if you just don't drink and go to meetings then everything should be fine and having and okay I, I think you've got two distinct issues there yeah. um the, the first issue which which is maybe a sort of therapy specific issue um is uh, and th th this is this is a very very difficult one to what a difficult one to resolve and I'm I'm going to try and say this as respectfully as possible, but you know me, you know the chances of me being able to do that are, are frankly remote. There is a current in society at the moment where if you feel it, it is real, and it's happened. Um, I was having a conversation with John. I've told you this story before. I was having a conversation with Jonathan a few months ago where I was losing. And so to press my point, I, I thought in a winning way, I said, but it's my lived experience. And he said, yes, but that doesn't mean it's real. The tightrope here is to acknowledge the feelings are obviously real. I mean, if you feel something, you are feeling something. But the notion that if you felt something, it is an authentic reflection of what has happened. That's the contentious point. And sometimes people are not open to being challenged on their perception of what happened. Um, the, the, Katie Parker puts this very well. Uh, she, and and she, she, she's even rougher than I am. Um, uh, but she, I remember her at State Line many years ago. Someone, she, she sort of quotes a sort of apocryphal conversation with the sponsee where the the sponsor I says says I want to talk about my feelings and the, the and she as the sponsor says your feelings your feelings come from a delusional mindset let's talk about delusion now there are kinder ways of doing it than that so I think one acknowledges the feelings and says but are you open to challenging your own perception and interpretation of what happened are you willing to separate the physical events which happened in the material world from the story that you the narrative you've told yourself about now um i never got the narrative challenged in with outside practitioners in fact the narrative got re we worked with the narrative as though the narrative was the reflection of reality so that's an example of where you're doing something which is entirely different um uh Sometimes I've had sponsees who've been encouraged to get angry with and express that anger towards and confront 
friends and relatives with uh, with what they perceive to be their poor behaviour. Unfortunately, this just goes against the programme. So now I'm not saying the programme is right, that that practitioner was wrong, but there are times when you have to say to, to the sponsor, matey, you're going to have to pick a horse to ride because you can't ride these two horses. I've had lots of sponsors who perfectly successfully had therapy, married the two. Um, it, the, as I've said in a previous talk, what you don't want to do is to be reconciling the two. So what I get people, people at the having therapy, say, you leave the therapy over there. We're going to do this just as a standalone thing. It is not my job to... If you want to do two systems at once, that's fine, but you're going to have to do the reconciling. I'm not here to be played off against the therapist and vice versa or to reconcile the two systems. You're just going to have to figure that one out on your own. And people manage. People, if, if they want to, they find a way. The, the, so that, that's the sort of conflict between therapy, for instance, or, or other practitioners and, uh, uh, and AA. You get a similar thing with religion and AA exactly the same type of conflicts what you're talking about more specifically there though however is uh having to unpick before you actually build up and the simplest way to do it is to uh and i've, I've had a sponsee who shall remain nameless many years ago who um when whatever you said they would say back but you said two weeks ago, but I heard at Sober in Shoreditch, but my last sponsor said, but I heard on television, but Judge Judy said, like, like constantly citing what someone else has said, like even using what you said back against you. And that won't do. You just have to know. Um, this is where the set-aside prayer comes in. So you say everything you've learned so far, lots of it is great because it's got you to where you are now. So hooray. But what we're going to have to do is just quietly set the whole thing aside. Start with a blank sheet of paper. Anything you've previously learned, which is true and helpful, will be returned to you as part of this process. So you, you're not going to lose anything by setting aside. What you're going to do is simply put it on the shelf and leave it there. And then when you get to the end of the process, you can look back at the shelf and say, what can I reclaim from previous processes or learnings or lessons? And sometimes as you're in the process, sometimes things fall into place that you learned before. But what you, you have to you have to clear the ground first. If if the pot is full, you can't put anything in the pot. So you need to clear the, clear the pot first. And then you'll have absolutely, if they're willing to do that, you'll have absolutely no trouble. Uh, Sarah Rivka. Uh, hi, yeah, thanks. Well, first, you already just answered part of my question. But the other part of the question is, um, like, it was very interesting to hear you describe the different kinds of therapies, you know, different things that might be, um, therapy might be helpful for. But I'm just wondering, like, I don't want to say why you said, like, why were you saying all that? Um, <laughs> like, is it is it so that I, is this information so that if I'm sponsoring somebody, um, you know, like, is this for if somebody comes to me and says, should I go to a therapist? And then I should, then I could, you know, say back to them similar things to what you said, 
or is that just stuff that you know? Like, I just wasn't sure exactly what I'm supposed to do with that. The reason why is because I've had extensive experiences over many years. I don't really have them anymore because I, I sort of solve the problem before I get there, where people are doing very well and then they join some other external program, maybe a religious program, or they adopt a therapy approach, and the AA activity dwindles. Um, the stuff they're learning in therapy can sometimes undermine their trust in AA. Um, there is only a certain number of hours in the week. And so, especially if people are working, and they have other commitments, necessarily it's going to double or treble the time it takes to get through the steps, particularly if they're given lots of homework. Um, and they're trying to adopt two, often two entire worldviews at the same time. And uh, what happens is they can't adopt either fully. And if they drink again, they may die. So this is a very important question. Um, what are you going to... I've had, honestly, I, I've had it the other way around. I've had sponsees who's, uh, or people, but newcomers, whose uh, PTSD is so um, extreme. Frankly, my feeling is that unless they get the psychiatric and psychological and psychotherapeutic help first, they won't be able to do the AA program. They need, they need to be brought back to reality before they can... The, the, the AA's measures can be of much use. So go to meetings, fine, but maybe let's maybe go and sort some of that stuff out before you do any really detailed stuff in the steps. Maybe do, um, you know, get a, a, a sort of daily program in place, but let's not go anywhere near your childhood until you've had it looked at by, by a psychotherapist. It's because um, so often when people are trying to do both at once, they do neither properly and it, it can destroy their, their ability to recover. And that's why it's such a critical thing. If it's going to be done, it should be done uh, diligently and carefully and in response to a specific situation, not waving a magic wand. And that's, that, that, so this is not to interfere with their process. It's to, it's to encourage them to take maximum responsibility for making sure that what they're doing is deliberate and thought through. So you're not guiding them to do it or not to do it. You're giving them the tools to make an informed decision about what they're doing. Does that make sense, Arika? Mm, yeah, yeah, it does. And I, I just I know that sometimes I've had the question put to me uh, by a sponsee who's having a hard time. And they'll say to me, do you think I need therapy? And um, what I really think that they need to do is to take some of the suggestions that I've been given them, been giving them and like to actually do them. Um, but therapy seems to be an easier, softer way. I'm not talking about somebody who's like, you know, suicidal or freaking out or something. I'm talking about just it's people who don't really, you know, seem to be doing the the their their AA homework and um it's just frustrating like yeah go ahead see a therapist but then what do you want from me I don't know what well, yeah so that's the point so that's a very that's very helpful because that's a very concrete situation so my response in that situation is 
You've already started something. Why not finish the thing you've started and then see if you still have a problem? Because you haven't tested yet whether AA is going to work on this unless you complete the first nine steps and live in the 10, 11, and 12 for a good couple of years afterwards. It takes two or three years after completing the first nine steps to get a real feel for what effect it has. It doesn't take straight away. It doesn't clear everything up straight away. There's a lot of patience with this. Even Dr. Bob craved alcohol for a number of years. So, so I think that's the response. That's the response there. Uh, I've had therapists who um, give me lots of homework to do. Now, if they're not, if, if they've come to AA and are not doing the homework, the question is, if you go to a therapist, will you do their homework? Why do you think you'd be doing their homework when you're not doing the AA? And that's a really legitimate question to ask. So is this, are you doing this because you think it's going to be more effective or are you doing it as a way of avoiding what's in front of you here? So I think there's some very serious questions when, when, you've, got, when you've got someone who's going full throttle in AA and there's stuff that's just not shifting, absolutely, you know, you've got to diagnose what's wrong and find a, either find a, a solution within AA, the world of spirituality, the world of religion, the world of therapy, whatever. Um, but you can't test, you can't diagnose something when the acute problem has not been sorted out. Uh, Seamus, I think you were next. Oh, there we go. I'm muted. Thank you, Tim. Hello, everybody. Um, yes, I, um, I think I'll ask this question by way of a case study. So it's someone I have in mind who, um, when I first m met him, I kind of picked him up from um, another sponsor who had, uh, who had drunk, so the guy was, the guy was drifting. And by the time I met him, uh, he had a, a history of... Um, of interludes in his drinking, um, as did I, actually. It was part of my history as well. T time off, um, six years off in my case, and, and quite a long time off in his, during which time, in his case, uh, he had become depressed and he had sought help with his depression. He'd gone to uh, an expensive um, psychiatrist, I think, and been treated. And what he'd been treated with was um, pills, um, I, I don't know exactly what, but um, sort of fairly heavy-duty antidepressants, which seemed to have done the trick. Um, and then there was the drinking. Um, so he started drinking again, and for that, um, he came to me. Uh, he worked the steps. He did what I thought was a fairly creditable workmanlike job on, on, on step four and seemed to be getting the, um, and seemed to be getting the results. Um, I think he wanted to stop drinking more because of what happened when he drank than for any more fundamental existential reason. He was getting consequences that were bad for his family life, for his professional career. It was that kind of thing. Um, he, he felt that he needed to stop, and we provided him with a way of stopping. Um, after a few years of this, he started drinking again um, intermittently and has never really succeeded in stopping that also had another bout of uh, so-called depression um you know back to the psychiatrist change the medication all right now kind of thing incidentally i always forget to ask the medication the medication question up front i'm always kicking myself thinking, oh god i wish i'd asked them what pills they're on because you know you can bet your bottom dollar but half of them are on some kind of pill and and i wish i knew that but there's a final strand to this which i've it's just been surfaced actually by something that you said which is religion 
so the guy's also got religion, and he's got the kind of religion where if enough people get together and pray to God, God kind of rearranges the universe in their in their favor, you know, in response to, to lobbying. Uh, it's a bit like in Bruce Almighty, where, you know, a lot of people pray to win the lottery and Bruce gets fed up and he presses the yes to all button on the on the prayer management system. It's, it's that kind of view of, yeah, prayer as an exercise in, in lobbying the, the, the almighty. Um, I feel sorry for this guy, but I, I don't really know what to say beyond what I've said already, which is trying to draw attention to the, you know, the nature of um, prayer and our relationship with the divine with, within this, um, within this program. And tr- trying to communicate by one means or another, I, I don't think that oppression is a separate problem, kind of like over here, but actually part of the same problem. Um, one problem needing one solution rather than two problems needing several um, several solutions. Um, so it's kind of like a, a, a big question mark. Um, what would you do um, faced with a situation like this if you wanted to try and help this guy out of the mess he's in? That's a very, very helpfully put scenario. Um, I've actually got parked as a separate question, the question of psychiatry, because it's an entirely different topic from psychotherapy, um, uh, because it's, it's, a, it's a medical question, um, uh, and the, then you've got the question of medication as well. So I'm, I'm parking the, psycho, the, 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 the psychiatric medical side of it just for the moment um c.s lewis talks very interestingly i think it's in mere christianity about the case of two men who don't want to fight in the first world war with and have got terrible psychological blocks against being soldiers essentially and both of them go and see a, 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 a psychiatrist or a psychologist or someone to, to, to help them with these psychological blocks. And both of them are have these psychological blocks resolved and removed. And one of them says, this is marvellous. Now I've got my psychological blocks removed. I can fight for my country. And then the second one says, well, that's great. Now I've, now I've got those blocks removed. I can, I can be more adept in avoiding fighting for my country. I'm, I'm now much more in control of myself. And how the, the, the psychological question is a different question than the moral question. Um, now, obviously, depression is widely considered to fall squarely within the domain of psychology and or medicine but i'll tell you something anecdotally living an immoral and materialistic life made me depressed quite aside from other factors i've had periods of my life where i was i would be very very spiritual doing lots in AA, sponsoring lots of people, um, doing all all of the right stuff. And over a period of time, my behaviour became selfish. I started to harm other people through deceitful action. And I became very materialistic, basically money, romance, sex, 
appearance. And I became profoundly depressed as a result, profoundly depressed. I think it's true to say that uh, it's only in my case, and that's not, that's not the only cause. Physical things can do it as well. Physical illness has done it for me in the past as well. I, I had very, very bad depression when I was growing up. What I've discovered in my case is that there was a strong moral and spiritual component in my depression, and also a philosophical one, my, my philosophical attitude towards the universe. When those things, when the social, when the practical, practical problems which are not being faced you put all of those together you will uh, my first sponsor so people know me for quoting is my first sponsor who was uh, a doctor actually um uh, doug i said to him i'm depressed he said you're not depressed your life is depressing if i lived your life i'd be depressed as well so although it's very clear and it's very well documented, you can go and read it on Wikipedia that there are organic causes of depression. And certainly it takes on a life of it. It can take on a life of its own. It becomes a self-propagating phenomenon, you know, um, where people will, will uh, avoid other people. They'll retreat from life and that will actually exacerbate the depression and it becomes and, and all sorts of things happen with diet and sleep and that makes things worse. So I think you've got two separate questions with, with extreme psychological conditions, whether they're anxi anxiety or depression or panic attacks, which I suffered very badly from, um, is you've got the acute treatment of the problem and then identification of the underlying cause. If you take someone with a, a good childhood, this is my observation of friends of mine in AA who report this, they reported themselves, a good childhood no psychological hang-ups, but years of living in a way which is dysfunctional from a material, a practical, a physical, a social, a philosophical, a religious, a moral, and a spiritual point of view. And though you will generate the same surface condition as someone with a very traumatic childhood. They, they present the same way. So. Um, in my case, I only worked out where the depression came from by addressing not just the psychological, but addressing those other areas, the practical, the social, the physical, the moral, the spiritual, the philosophical and the religious, until the jigsaw puzzle, as, as I dealt with those one by one, some things caused the depression to lift more quickly than others. I thought, aha, well, that was a large component of it. Uh, so I always encourage people to look at everything, to look at this holistically, not to treat one aspect like if I pray, it will go away. If I do service, it will go away. If I get enough exercise, it will go away. If I examine my childhood, it will go away. Maybe, but maybe there are all of the areas involved that need to be looked at. So to look at everything, to treat it as a 10-year project, not a five-minute project, and be systematic about examining each of those eight areas inventorying each of those eight areas and finding people who are super functional in each of those areas um, and to copy what they're doing and see if that helps and so it, it's really uh, empirically that I've done this it's not based on any sort of theory um, it's simply by trying things and discovering that they work and I was someone that was told in my um, teens that uh, I would likely 
uh, I, I'm the sort of person that that would probably be ill forever and have to be under un, under sort of medical psychological supervision forever because my case was so extreme. So this is not coming from someone that's sort of tripping through the tulips their whole life and is looking askance at people with entirely different problems. This is from someone that's been in that position. Uh, when I was at school, uh, I was on suicide watch for five years uh, where people were charged secretly. I only discovered this article secretly with surveying me, surveilling me and writing reports, which are then collated weekly and sent to my parents. My mother, of course, has wiped all memory of this. She said, Oh, you had an idyllic childhood. <laughs> She's conveniently forgotten all of this. So this is this is this is, as I say, not coming from a Pollyanna-ish attitude. It's come from having to to really uh, knock on every possible door to solve the problem of depression, anxiety, panic attacks, and other disagreeable manifestations. Um, I do want to say something about the psychiatry question, which is even thornier. Harry, do you want to come in with your question? Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a spoke off. Shall I just go for, with it, though? Yes. OK, I'll take that as a yes. OK, so the, the question was, um, so someone's got something of a programme um, you describe, and then let's say they, they, they're they not feeling, they're feeling unhappy, and then therapy comes up as a potential magic fix for this. But what you made me think of was often my sponsees will, rather than say, I'm going to go see a therapist, they'll say, I need to go through the work again. So I don't know if you've got that as a topic to come up, like when, what are the guide rails for coming back onto the work? And because like all of them have just almost immediately wanted to do it again, which I don't know if reflects <laughs> reflect my sponsorship. I'm going to do that in about two minutes time. I'm going to say two things about psychiatry. Um, um, I've had lots of sponsees who, uh, you know, my first question I ask is, are you taking your medication? <laughs> um, you know, I'm not one of these people, you know, uh, there are people in recovery, so you shouldn't take things. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the other way around. If they've been, if, you know, if they're on antipsychotics, I want to be, you know, this is my first question. Are you still taking your antipsychotics? Uh, what, the, the, the one thing I would say about, there, are, there is a type of alcoholic who, will treat them, and I've sponsored them sometimes, who treat themselves essentially not as human beings, but as chemistry sets. So that every problem is a chemical, is looking for a chemical solution. Now, I don't know whether that's the case or not. What I do observe is that people with that profile um, struggle with the not drinking bit of the program on a regular basis. Dr. Paul O is great on this subject um so there is a there is a question with the psychiatrist hunting which is a whole hobby that some people engage in that they're constantly looking for new psychiatrists and new diagnoses and new, new prescriptions and i don't know and i don't know almost nothing about that area what i observe is it very often combined with a resistance to the program um, so it's looking for something which is in so that the purpose is not to learn how to live well the purpose is to feel better and whatever means achieve that end is fine now I don't think that's a bad approach it's just not my approach and so if people's approach is simply they just want to feel better they don't care how um, it, totally welcome in AA do whatever you want 
but that I, I approach things very, very differently. My job is to learn how to live well and have my emotional state as a consequence of that. And I think there's a fundamental there's a fundamental philosophical question there. And it's good to have a sponsor you're aligned with on that. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to that philosophical question. Um, uh, but it is important for the sponsor and sponsee to be aligned. Otherwise, you're just going to have terrible arguments the whole time. Uh, I will say one thing. There was a, an AA, there's an AA member in Bristol who is a philosopher. His job is he, is a, he gets paid remarkably for being a philosopher. And he goes around, one of the things he does, he goes around to schools and he says to the kids, he does thought experiments with them. That, that's one of his ways in which he introduces people to philosophy. He's sober very many years. And one of his thought experiments is this. Um, you've got two options. The first option is to go through life, and this is to seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds, to go through life feeling everything that life has to throw up, throw at you. So you'll have joy, you'll have pleasure, you'll have apathy, you'll have numbness, you'll have anxiety at times, you'll have depression at times. There'll be times you want to die. There'll be times that you're immensely happy and you can't understand why a year ago, five years ago, things look so bleak. You have the full range of human experience. Option number one. Option number two, we can put you in a room, we can hook you up to a machine with a virtual reality headset, which gives you a happy dream and plug your uh, in, in, plug into your arm a drip, which in, ensures that you are consistently happy for the rest of your life. You won't have any friends, you won't do anything but you'll have presented to you in the virtual reality headset a story which is pleasant and the chemicals will ensure that you are happy forever. Which do you pick? But you can't, you're not living. You're not doing anything of normal life. You're just in the room. And he's done this with thousands of children. Not one has chosen the machine. It's a Fascinating. It's anecdotal. I mean, it's just one person with their own experience of, of how, but it's a very interesting one. I bet in AA, I, I'd love to do this. Whether you'd get the same, whether you'd get the same response, I think it, you might be evenly split, and that's a philosophical question. Why am I here? Am I here to feel good? Or am I here to live life? Um, on the question of, um, I, <laughs> uh, yes, I need to do, go through the work again. Um, oh, by the way, one point with the psychiatry thing. I've got a little worksheet that my sponsor put around some doctor friends of his, which basically says, here are some classes of drugs which some AA members um, have experience of leading to relapse. So if you're going to take these, maybe you want to disclose the fact you're a doctor, you're, you're, a, you're a, 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 an alcoholic and addict to the doctor or the anaesthetist or the, 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 the surgeon or whoever, and discuss how these are going to be dealt with. Um, and 
that's a very helpful thing because it, again it helps with make informed decisions so you're not making a decision for them you're putting them in a position that they can make an intelligent informed decision with the professionals that are helping them but your question harry but i want to go through the work again so in recovery world it goes through different phases for a while the for the catchphrase was i need a new experience i need a new experience and in particular, it's not so much in AA. I don't know. I think AA is just lethargic. But CA is deadly for this. That there's always a new method. It usually starts in Toronto or Liverpool. No one knows why. Where someone devises a new way of going through the big book. And then suddenly everyone's got these sponsors in Liverpool or everyone's got these sponsors in Toronto. And, and it's all the new method and all the other methods are wrong. So CA is, is that if I dare say this, is, is deadly for the new Jerusalem, new Jerusalem constantly being builded on some hill of, of a new method of going through the big book. I'm extremely skeptical about or extremely skeptical about all of this. There are when do you need to go through the work again? If you've had a little drink or a little drug, you probably want to go back to the beginning of the steps again. If you haven't been to AA since the Callaghan government, you might want to go through the steps again. If you went through the steps in an incredibly shoddy way before or went through with four different sponsors, you want to go through it again. Uh, if you've had a nervous breakdown or maybe two nervous breakdowns or three nervous breakdowns, maybe. So there are extreme situations where it's necessary. Uh, if you're working very hard in AA and you're really hitting a brick wall, fine. But my suspicion in a lot of cases, people want to go through the work again without having completed the work the first time and without sponsoring other people. So the, the aim, it's as though you're going to sort of get some special spiritual tools or uh, people talk about um, going through the steps at greater depth. I'm skeptical about what that even means. It's like developing a deeper relationship with my higher power. I literally do not know what that, I just don't know what any of that means. I, and I give you an example of what I mean by, by this. I don't think it's about depth. Um, if you've got someone who's six weeks sober and they admit that they lie a lot, and cheat and think very resentful, hateful thoughts about people um, and are frightened a lot and feel guilty about the, the things they've done in the past. I don't think that is any less deep than someone who is 20 years sober and saying the same things. I don't think it's deeper because you're sober longer. If something is fully true, at six weeks sober, it is as deep as anything. And I, I, I think we're doing a terrible injustice to people in their first year by suggesting that they're not doing it deeply. And that, you know, if they go through the steps every year for 20 years, then they'll get some depth that all they're doing is peeling the first layer of the onion. There's this sort of, there's this sort of endless onion peeling. I'm, as I think, extremely skeptical about that. I've known people in their first year who are as spiritual as anything when it comes to letting go and being of service. And real depth is when today 
if I go through the day not thinking about myself, just fully engaged in the world around me and kind of grateful and cheerful, that's as deep as it gets. The, in A Course in Miracles, it says that there is no hierarchy of illusions, which means something which is untrue, all things which are untrue are equally untrue. So it's not that some are more untrue than others. And where this applies to the steps and this notion of depth, the steps don't find out what's true and real. They find out all of the blocks to what is true and real in order for those blocks to be removed. And then what is true and real, which is innocence and peace and all of those things just shows up. You know that the Michelangelo and David uh, I don't know if it's a true story, but they said, how did you, how did you carve the statue of David? And he said, well, mate, I'll tell you how I did it. I got a chisel, got me block of marble, oh, I chipped away everything that wasn't David. And now I've got David, look, yeah. I, I don't believe it any more than you do. But it's a great story because I think that's what the steps do. We chip away everything that's not us. Now, if you're very complicated and neurotic and you're 20 or 30 years sober, and you write about all of the illusory BS in your head, that's no more deep because it's, it's unreal. It's no, it has no more substance than the illusions of a newcomer that believes arrant nonsense about the person sitting next to them at the meeting. Their illusions are illusions. And the idea that some illusions are deeper than others so there are lots of situations where people need to go through the steps again, and that's fine. But to treat going through the first nine steps as a solution to spiritual malaise, I think is wrongheaded. I think what one should, uh, what's more useful is to really be practicing 10, 11 and 12 in a diligent, consistent way on a daily basis. Try that for a couple of years and see what happens. And you can always, if you want to go back, if you find that there's a particular relationship with a person or a situation which is problematical, then you can do, you can do steps four through nine on that situation in three hours because you've, you've learned how to do the method now. But what people want to do is like another nine-month process of staring at themselves and pouring over the book and pouring over the meaning of this. And that's what I'm, so I think you're right to be, absolutely right to be sceptical uh, about that, Harry. I didn't cover any of the topics I meant to cover. Uh, does anyone else have any questions for Tim? Will you do exercise next week? <laughs> so what I've got left is exercise, drama, families and workplace. And I think that's it then. Although, you know what, I'm just going to say one thing because the exercise thing is a tiny topic. Let's just kill that one now. It, it's, very, it's very straightforward. I don't know how to be spiritually well and mentally well without being physically well. It's not that it solves all my problems, but by God, it helps with so many things. And I, I, as I said earlier, uh, I don't think it needs to be belabored. With, I think it's broadened as exercise. It's physical health. You're looking at sleep diet, sugar, caffeine, nicotine, exercise. Lots of friends report this as well, that when those are, any of those six are out of whack, good luck being spiritual, good luck being emotionally balanced. You get those in whack, 
And it's amazing how many psychological problems just evaporate, how many other difficulties just cease to be difficulties. So I wouldn't underestimate those. And I try and encourage uh, sponsees, even when they're very new, to start looking at those and getting some sanity in place. That's all I have to say about physical things. And now it's eight o'clock. Would you count phone use and media and stuff as part? This seems like the same as sleep to me, like digital hygiene. Yeah, I wish mine were better. But yeah, that's absolutely a question. Well, very often when you've got people that can't get done during the day, all the stuff they need to get done to get their program sorted out, to get their life sorted out, to get their work sorted out, very often it's because between 10 o'clock at night and one o'clock in the morning it's all netflix and whatsapp uh that's why it's and that's why everything else is out of whack you get that sorted out and suddenly then they can get to the 7 a.m meeting and then everything else just falls out automatically so yes as with everything in recovery pick the low-hanging fruit first and sort those out and then see where you are. And you'd be amazed at how many um, simple measures will massively improve the person's quality of life because they've never been taught these things. Thank you, Tim. It seems an appropriate juncture. Uh, To set the tone for the meeting, I will read an extract from Dr. Bob's Nightmare, page 180 and 181. I spend a great deal of time passing on what I learn to others who, who want it and need it badly. I do it for four reasons. One, a sense of duty. Two, it's a pleasure. Three, because in so doing, I am paying my debt to the man who took time to pass it on to me. Four, because every time I do it, I take out a little more insurance for myself against a possible slip. Uh, tonight's meeting is part five of working step 12 with a sponsee and Tim will share anything between 30 and 45 minutes on the topic, after which the floor will be open for questions rather than the typical sharing. And with that, I will hand it over to Tim. Thank you. Your brave souls being here for part five of anything. Uh, I wouldn't be. Anyway, Tim Alcoholic, thank you for having me back. We've got three topics left on step 12. I have a feeling there's like something else that's going to come after that, but we'll see when we get there. Um, I think Ellie Shever's been talking about that. Anyway, 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 um, tonight, the remaining topics, although more may pop up, are drama, drama, that's drama, families, maybe a separate topic, maybe the same topic. Unsure. We'll see and workplace which is kind of dull so i don't want to bore myself so i'll go in with drama let me open a window okay so dealing with dramatic sponsees um i kind of didn't get the hang of it for around 26 and a half years so um it took a while to work out the kinks um, I had a very, very dramatic sponsee many years ago who um, I suggested that they do uh, uh, tea at a meeting. 
And they were very good. They got the little flasks full of hot water, put out the tea and coffee very neatly and tidily, and the biscuits. Of course, biscuits are very important. Um, and then they would sit as far away from the tea as possible, leaving people to serve themselves. And I suggested, well, that's kind of not the point of the tea commitment. It's, it's that you get to talk to everyone. And the individual in question said that uh, in, in her family of origin, you always know, I get, always get slightly tense when I hear that phrase, you know, because you kind of know what's coming. Um, uh, in, the, in my family of, my family of origin, um, um, I was made to play the servant role. So me doing tea at the meeting, it just triggers me because it reminds me of that. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to sit on the other side of the room and they can serve themselves. And on one level, I can, I can kind of see that, whatever, fair enough. But this becomes a pattern of, it became a pattern of resistance and drama. One night, for reasons I can't remember, why I did, why my phone was on, I have no idea. This was about, oh, 17, maybe 18, 19 years ago. My phone was on and it rang at 3.30 in the morning. And the poor individual was, you know, when someone is sobbing so hard they can't say anything, it's just sobbing for like four or five minutes until the sobbing stops. And it was something about they were going to go to a family wedding and they didn't want to go to the family wedding. And I said, oh, fine, you know, uh, if you don't want to go, don't go. But there we go. It's as simple as that. You don't, you don't have to do anything. If it's traumatising, you don't have to do it. Um, now, you deal with each of these situations, and you think, well, I'm being a very, very good sponsor. I, look, I, I'm giving solutions, and the solutions are, are you know, are appreciated, and the person is continuing to call back. But the difficulty is that, with sponsees where there's lots of drama is one day you're going to be the subject matter of the drama and what do you do then you're now that you're not everyone gets to take a turn as the problem so you're you might be you, you might be flavor of the month for a while helping them deal with other dramas but one day you become the drama one day i became the drama I phoned Maureen, I said, I don't know what to do about this. And she said, um, uh, you tell the individual, I don't think I'm the right person to sponsor you. And you wish them well and send them off into the night. And as you're walking away, don't mutter under your breath. And I can't imagine who would be. So, you know, be kind about it. Don't say that, uh, say about a tenth of what is going through your mind. Say only what is necessary when you get to the point that you've become part of the problem. Um, drama can happen in two ways. It can happen in, uh, it can be positive drama or negative drama. What I mean by positive drama, sometimes, uh, you know, most sponsors are like totally business-like, um, you know, in conversations with you, they're like the cat and Pepe Le Pew, they can't get off the phone quick enough. It's fine, this is healthy. But the ones who are too keen, ooh, you've got to be very, very careful. There was one I did not know what they wanted from. But there was something. I didn't know what it was. So I said, I said to them, why don't you write down what you think it is that you want from me? 
and they sent me this email which which sends shudders down my spine to this day um it was a they wrote okay i wrote 27 points now that's that's trouble to start with isn't it you know <laughs> you know you're in for a long day um and the first point was i want your fingers to enter my brain and massage truth into my soul and at this point i deleted the email i deleted the i emptied the deleted items folder and ever since I've regretted it, thinking, oh, I'd love to know what the other 26 items were, but, but it's they're lost, very much lost to posterity. And I terminated the relationship then and there. I should have terminated it way before. They phoned up very dramatically one day, like two o'clock Thursday afternoon. And there was this kind of, the first thing was this reproachful question. Did you say or did you not say that Jesus Christ was the son of God? I'm like, I'm in the middle of a work. Is, is this, this is an urgent question. I, where is this coming from? So, so drama, it can be that kind of when they want to entangle with you. Or the drama can appear to be about everyone else. Um. With very, I've got the hang of very dramatic people now, and very, very few call me because I'm not available for the, I'm not available and available for the drama dance. And you kind of give off vibes when you're no longer available for the, a certain type of dance. People stop asking you to dance a particular dance. Um, but the things that, the, the way I, what I've learned from having very dramatic sponsees over the years is I didn't cause it. I can't control it, and I sure as hell can't cure it. And something that Joe said many years ago was that their drama is their balm, is their ointment for their inner sense of inadequacy and guilt and shame and so on. That rather than facing that, they immediately go into blame and, 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 and drama. Um, and that's a useful avenue to... Uh, because I'm, what I don't want to give the impression of is if someone is very dramatic, there's nothing you can do. There's a lot you can do. There are cases where it goes so far that it's just ir irremediable, at least with you. Maybe you'll, you've gotten to the next stage. They'll handle it with someone else. But, but how to deal with it? OK, so first of all, sometimes you can redirect the attention to what are the feelings you're trying to avoid by creating this drama in the first place. There's the whole borderline personality thing where, as, as Tom said, uh, you know, borderline personality, people are happy only when everyone around them is in chaos, is to look at what are you getting out of this drama? What is the kick? So let's not look at the content. It's not about the content. It's about the fact that there is a drama being created again and again and again. And it's just like the cycles in the big book with the alcoholic and the doctor's opinion of... Um, the ease and comfort that you get from uh, the first stages of a dramatic situation, um, followed by the, the well-known stages of the spree, and then emerging remorseful. Then they emerge remorseful at the end of the cycle. I say they, I mean, it's not like I have done this. The only way I can deal with it is because I used to be like this myself. 
Um, you get people to look at the cycle because it's not about the content. If you solve one, another one will prop up the next day because it's the machine that's generating the dramas, which is the problem. The drama which is occurring is simply the whatever tools are available, whatever, whoever's there will be the subject matter of the drama. It's not where it's not coming from the situation. The situation is being used. And that's a useful conversation you can have. A second conversation, this is a very common one uh, when people are very, uh, very sort of upset and it's someone else's fault. So this is very common with the sort of Essanon and Alanon. Um, uh, with, with the alcoholic, where they think it's everyone else's fault, uh, very often, and because I've been on both sides, I've been the typical alcoholic character and the typical Alanon character. The typical alcoholic character expects everyone else to do everything for them so they don't have to do it for themselves. And the typical Alanon is to play the hero or the martyr. So they're doing, you know, you're doing all the laundry, you're doing everything right, you're doing the dinner, you're doing the cleaning, you're doing everything. Why can't they just help with something? Occasionally, it wouldn't hurt if they folded a sock. You know, that kind of anger. And they're, they're kind of two different situations because it's very clear with the alcoholic who's just going around causing trouble, not lifting a finger, that they're the problem. With the Alanons and the Essanons, from my own experience of being an Alanon, actually probably an Essanon candidate as well, um, I won't go any further. Um, uh, it can it can look superficially as though the problem is originating elsewhere. Um, but the way I'm, I handle it, and this is the way I handle my own propensity to drama, is to say, in any dramatic situation, um, the situation may command a response from but I won't know what the response is until I'm at peace. Because let's say you think there are 10 things wrong in a relationship with a person and you're furious about lots of them. And then you get calm and you realize nine of them are rubbish or inconsequential or not even a problem. One of them is a genuine problem. The one that's a genuine problem now looks completely different anyway now that you're calm. And then you notice something else which does need to change, which was being masked by your own rage. So it's vital if you're going to act right in a tricky relationship, whether it's a work relationship or an AA relationship or a group situation, unless you're at peace, you're going to mess it up anyway. You're going to act where it's none of your business. You're going to misapprehend the situations which genuinely command a response and act wrong in those. And you're going to miss the other things which are being masked. So uh, a lot of the drama, the, the form it usually takes is infamy, infamy. They've all got it infamy. The, the, uh, the blame thrower, not the flamethrower, the blame thrower, where I feel bad, I'm being so mistreated, blah, blah, blah. And for years, I tried to unpick the content of those situations, and it never worked. I mean, you can kind of superficially do it. And people are sort of happy because you've given them some attention, actually rather a lot of attention. Often, you know, 90% of my sponsee time was going on the 10% of sponsees that were excessively dramatic. That's not a great use of time. 
but the sponsees were pleased because they were calm and part of the kind of acting out is to create the situation which is itself a balm to the internal god-shaped void and secondly to get all of like the help and the attention from a sponsor or a therapist or a whoever else and that's that's like part two of the ointment and then once they've got those two elements they've got the thrill and then they get the relief um they're done and then they're quiet for a day or two days and then it all starts up again so dealing unpicking the content what's in what was fascinating about these dramatic situations particularly in the last couple of years like between 24 years and 26 years i started seeing that every single drama with a particular person was that actually the same drama repeating wearing different clothes and all of that unpicking had done absolutely nothing none of it had gone in none of it had penetrated the subconscious none of it had had any effect at all um and i've switched tack and the tack i've switched is this uh and is that let me just get rid of the call there we go uh the tack i've switched is this um i i had a number of, of emotional difficulties for a number of years from the from around 20 years sober onwards uh so like all of my personal relationships were largely fine it was um, sort of seething resentments against categories of people in the world I class as idiotic and dangerous. Whether they are idiotic and, and or dangerous is another question. They might be. But my problem was sitting in my living room or going for a walk in leafy de Beauvoir town. I was fulminating with rage about these categories of people, not doing anything about it, anything, but just fulminating with rage doing inventory after inventory, thinking if only I analyze the third column carefully enough, then maybe something would pop and then occasionally I'd see through it and then it would go. Um, but what I learned was that it, it's, as I've already said, it's not about the content. It's about the fact that the rage, the anger, whatever, the fear also um, is, uh, contains it is that's the drug that's the drug i've got to stop taking the drug it's not about how to handle these situations or these types of people it's the fact i'm continuing to feed myself the drug so what i've switched to uh with myself and this is what i've then shown to sponsees and it, it, it's 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 much more helpful than what i was doing before is to say right um, I, I sometimes recount the story. I was in the um, uh, the the Hofkoi house, not in Munich, but in Las Vegas, you know, the the Munich Bavarian beer hall. And I was with my sponsor, and with two steely-eyed Alanons who were several thousand years old. And I said something flippant you know, to break the ice, the tension at the table. And this old, old Alanon said, did you know in Alanon in Texas, obviously because Alanon in Texas is different than Alanon elsewhere. So in Alanon in Texas, a slip is a negative thought. 
I then stayed largely silent for the rest of the, for the rest of the conversation, having nothing to say. Um, and so the the job is to, uh, with my own propensity to 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 drama, in whatever form it takes, is to treat that as being the case, as slip as a negative thought. And so you treat it like a game. Your ego will tempt you many times a day to start thinking negative thoughts about this or about that. And generally, it will come into come in one of um, three forms. Um, there's resentment. Uh, and the subversions of that are uh, resentment against oneself. So remorse, gain, re re remorse, shame, guilt, all of those. But that's just resentment against oneself. Resentment. Second one, fear. Third one, plotting. Plotting, scheming, planning, devising, arguing with them in your mind, winning the argument in your mind so that you're prepared for the next conversation so they won't outwit you. Those are the three mental habits. Um, what my experience is, is that those mental habits need to be broken to detoxify myself. When I detoxify myself and look at the wreckage of the situation, the truth is immediately self-evident. I tried to explain or try to lead people back from the drama to what sanity would be in a situation and this is the thing i've stopped doing because i don't think it can be done it's just like with a drink you can't argue someone sober who's been drinking you can't argue someone sane who's in one of their hysterical banshee moments what you have to do is to stop the poison entering the system and have them detox so it's to replace all resentful thoughts with this is a sick man, how can I be helpful? This is just another child of God, how can I be helpful? To replace um, uh, the fear thoughts, to substitute for the fear, fear thoughts, God, is there any practical action you'd like me to take? Or I'm going to trust this whole situation is in your hands and go and do something else. Uh, so so to, to, to practice the Emmett Fox notion of substitution, and you get immediate results. Now, people will push back hugely against this. I had someone not unusually pushing back. It was about the, 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 the situation was um, uh, where a, a family member was behaving badly and the family member may or may not be behaving badly. And the question was, uh, do I need to tell him and list for him all the things he's doing wrong? Shall I do that? And the answer lies in the just for today card. I won't regulate anybody, anybody but myself. My feelings may be hurt, but if they are hurt, I won't show it. And a slip as a negative thought, replace any resentment and fear with the appropriate positive thinking. And when you're at peace, then we can discuss how you're handling the situation and whether any action needs taken. But you can't, we're not even going to look at that until uh, uh until you're at peace and have been at peace for some time because it's a waste of time trying to change things when you're upset and the put you get all sorts of pushbacks um one of the pushbacks is 
Um, but therapists always say that you have to tell people the negative ways in which their behavior is affecting you. Actually, someone you, so I've been using that as an example apocryphally for some time. There's someone actually said it today. And I understand that, you know, I've had therapists. Say this. And I said, well, I don't know. Do what you want. If you want to do what the therapist says, do what the therapist says. All I can tell you is I've been a, in a relationship with someone for 17 years. We don't argue. We're happy. And these are the rules that I follow. So take your pick. So you're not arguing. If you, as soon as you're arguing, you're losing. First and last time I quote Ronald Reagan. Um, if, if you're arguing, if, if you're explaining, that's it. If you're explaining, you're losing. I'm sure uh, Evan, if he's here, will correct me. Uh, if you're explaining, you're losing. Um, so just to, it's that, it's that course in miracles thing. If you apply the solution, you don't analyze the solution because analyze means anal lies. If you take a hit to analyze, is to chop it into little bits and look at each of the individual little bits. If you take a person and you chop, in, chop them into little bits, uh, then you won't learn anything about the person. You'll only learn about the little bits. Um, I've never chopped a person into little bits, I should add. I, I've been reliably informed this by my mobster friends, of whom I have none, that if you chop people into little pieces, they can't tell you anything useful. Um, if I analyze it, if I analyze the solution, it's the it's the cockroach defending itself against the exterminator. Um, you know, if you ask the cockroach its view as to you know whether the exterminator should be in the kitchen and what kind of powder they're using, the cockroach is not going to help you achieve your objective. They're gonna they're gonna argue. It, it's like certainly around this part of East London, I don't know if they have them where you live. You know those dogs which always look angry and then they rush up at people angrily and barking and they say, oh, don't worry, he's only playing. He just wants to play, just friendly. Those dogs, you know, when you give them a newspaper, within seven seconds, there's a pile of, there's a pile of newspaper on the floor. They've ripped it all up and they look up at you pleased with themselves the same if you give one of them a soft toy or something within seven seconds it's completely destroyed and they look pleased with themselves that's my mind in response to a solution you give the solution to my mind it analyzes it it destroys it and it is pleased with itself so i don't discuss the solution like one thing that i've been giving people is and oh my god you just this goes straight this goes straight to the, this is like the crucifix in the heart of the vampire like with a spiky end to the, the crucifix um to repeat every time you have a negative thought about another person or yourself i am innocent they are innocent i am innocent they are innocent and people almost literally start hissing at you when you suggest that as a not innocent <laughs> um you get them doing that and everything starts to change straight away um uh but you they've got to do it there's no point in trying to understand it so people say but i don't understand why they're innocent no no, no you don't have to understand it you just have to apply it and it's just like in course in miracles lessons where they say 
you you don't have to like you don't have to like the solution you don't have to agree with it but you all you have to do is apply it and then you'll find out it's true it's only through application that you find out it's true and what this does this is brilliant because it means you don't have to have you don't have to perform an exorcism on them, which is what it's like dealing with grammatic people otherwise. If you engage in the content, you're now in a scene from The Exorcist. You know when the, 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 you know, the girl is levitating off, White's always a girl, I don't know, but when the girl is levitating, Freud would tell you, when the girl is levitating off the bed and the priest, there's like the young priest and the old priest, and the young priest is trying to address the demon inside the person and the girl is speaking with the demon's voice and the demon knows everything about the young priest and then and incorporates all of its knowledge about the young priest and the young priest's deepest darkest fears into its rebuttal into its argument against the exorcism and you have the old priest saying, basically, don't engage with any of that stuff. It's all lies. You've got to see, you've got to don't touch the material. Otherwise, you get the material all over you and you become part of the problem. As soon as you're part of their problem, you've lost. They're going to have to go on to they've burnt you out. It's like the fuse has gone. Um, you're done. They have to go on to the next one. Um, but that those that basic sort of Emmett Fox Course in Miracles approach works, and if they work the steps systematically, so the, the 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 way you address the situation is through the systematic formal approach of step four. If you're going to address it at all, which goes very very systematically, you know, um, and I won't rehearse it now. We've done it in another in another of these talks about first column second column third column forgiveness um page 67 questions fear inventory sex inventory sane and sound ideal which is the approach but and each of those however sick someone is if they're willing they can go through that but you can't short circuit that in the kind of step 10 situation with someone who is on their high horse just doesn't work so you've got to shoot straight to the detox process and then when they're calm, as I say, 90% of the structure collapses, they realize they've been crazy and it's obvious to them how. Um, what else do we need to know about dramatic um, situations? Don't take it personally. And I repeat that, don't take it personally. The dramatic ones, the dramatic sponsees um, have got a way of, involving and entangling you uh and if you're not careful you get involved and entangled and when it when this is the therapist you see this is the therapist in big little lies when it breaks down because it's going to break down it's not if when it breaks down then uh you've got to be very careful what you say to people who are very dramatic because they will tell everyone else except they won't, they won't tell everyone else exactly what you said they'll tell everyone else their version of what you said. so you've got to be very very careful but the point is it's not about you it's about them so one mustn't get involved and even when it breaks down 
there might be all sorts of fallout in your home group or locally. You just stand firm and you muscle, muscle through it, basically. Uh, and it can be unpleasant. Uh, the point, therefore, is to avoid getting to that stage where you stay, you basically keep the same arm's length business-like approach with the very dramatic people as with everyone else. So the, the temptation, if you've got an, an, an Al-Anon streak, is to, uh, is to get more involved and to see this as a project as, as um, I can't remember who said it, when, when you respond to the prospect of a dramatic phone call from a sponsee with a mixture of excitement and dread, like A, here's a fascinating project, but B, you feel slightly sick at the same time. Those situations, I want to be careful of that because what I'm doing is what they're doing. So they have a drama about whoever else, and then they become your drama. Then you're telling all your friends and you're telling your sponsor and you go into your extra Al-Anon meeting, hoping the qualifier doesn't show up. You know, you see what I mean? I, I can replicate that. I can do what they're doing. It's almost contagious drama. It's almost contagious. It's an extraordinary, the whole dynamic is extraordinary. And it's the, um, uh, someone here will know more about this than me. They've disappeared. It's in there. Um, the the uh, the the, dra the drama triangle of the the victim, the persecutor, and the rescuer, and uh, the danger if you've got someone who is playing the victim role in the drama triangle that you've been cast as the rescuer. And the thing about the 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 Carpman C K A R P M A N go and read about it. Cartman drama triangle and the funky thing about the Cartman drama triangle is the roles aren't fixed so on Monday you're they're the victim and you're the rescuer but then something weird happens and suddenly you become the victim and they become the, the persecutor and you didn't see like how could this happen to me you enter the triangle when you enter the triangle that's when the musical chairs start and when the music stops the seat you're nearest to is the one you're sitting in for the next period until the music starts up again so one's got to stay outside the triangle very difficult the reason this is very difficult is someone who is in a drama cycle is going to look like very much like an ordinary person with a situation and it can take two or three uh calls or two or, two or three problem solving situations before you realize oh okay so this is a pattern this 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 is not problem solving this is something else this is a historical reenactment of an unresolved drama from childhood or wherever and you know we're reenacting the civil war basically trying to get the ending to change but the ending never changes because it's fixed the, 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 the ending is determined by the rules of the game. The parameters of the game determine the end. The, 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 the payoff is the victimhood, which is why people don't want to be relieved of it. And I know this because that was me. You know, you, the only way I know anything is because I've done, I did it for decades <laughs> until finally I was relieved of it myself. Now I can see it playing out. So um, I think that's all I've got to say on drama. It's a very difficult subject. That's all I've got to say on drama. 
Does anyone have anything to ask? What I'm going to do, if I may, and obviously if there are, if other questions arise, just just comes you know put your little hand up or something, is uh, the family stuff. This is very dangerous territory because it, it involves you know, it's real people uh, and their actual families. Um, so I'm extremely cautious about giving any kind of advice, and uh, my advice is limited almost solely to what it says in the big book. Uh, your page references, if you like page references, are pages 98 to 99. Um, and then the chapter uh, is it, basically from uh, page 115 to 135, that 20-page block. It's got a bunch, of, a bunch of things. Don't do these, but do do those. Things not to do, things to do. And I get people just to read those passages and do what it says. And let me just get the big book. Let me call it up on screen. I might share it if I may. I think I probably can. So 98. Though his family be at fault in many respects, he should not be concerned about that. He should concentrate on his own spiritual demonstration. Argument and fault finding are to be avoided like plague. And then the ne next important bit is on the next page. The alcoholic continues to demonstrate that he can be sober, considerate, and helpful. Regardless, will arise of boundaries. And uh, so this is, it's usually with family. This is the point I, I sort of share with my, my experience of what boundaries are and how you set them. And I think there are two types of boundary. First type of boundary is the, have we talked about boundaries before or not in these sessions? I can't remember. Okay. So the first type of boundary is the I can't, I won't boundary. So when the boundaries do with me, you know, you're invited to a family gathering, all the people who press your buttons because they're all the buttons are going to be there. You're seven months sober and... It's in a country house, 47 miles from a railway station. You have no car. Everyone's going to be drunk. Should you go? <laughs> That's the question. And taxes, they get. And it's over a long weekend, bank holidays, deepest Scotland. It's going to be snowing. <laughs> um, you know, a possible boundary is I can't come or i won't which to come you know the line i always quote this one from phoebe and friends um where someone asks her to do something she said gee i wish i could but i don't want to and so you know this is always an option to just duck out of things where boundaries um get trickier is where it's a boundary where you want someone else to do something either start doing something, stop doing something, or do it differently, and then you've got the five levels to escalate through of a polite request, offering a transaction. So a transaction is, if, we, if you come out with me and my mother this weekend, I'll go out with you and your mother next weekend. Deal. If you come to my work dinner, I will come to yours. If I do the dinner tonight, will you do the laundry? Transaction. Um, the third type of boundary is the um, uh, the covert, so covert consequences. 
So when someone, the most obvious example is, uh, uh, if you've got a family member that is sometimes rude and accusatory and insane and sometimes really pleasant, the covert boundary is to um, basically you don't reply unless they're pleasant. If they're unpleasant, you don't reply and they get to join the dots and recognize if they want your engagement, they're going to have to play nice. That's the covert boundary. The overt, the overt consequences is when you say, um, if you carry on shouting, I'm going to put the phone down and then they carry on shouting and then they hear a click. That's the overt. That's the, so you threaten the overt consequence and then you enact the overt consequence, which can be putting the phone down, leaving, calling the police, changing the locks, something like that. And so I run through those. But honestly, honestly, um, I'm very sceptical. I'm, I'm, I'm very clear about like the I can't, I don't want to boundaries. I think those are very, very useful to me and I use them a lot. What I'm much more sceptical about, particularly with families, uh, because if it goes wrong, you're kind of stuck with your blood relatives, you're stuck with them literally forever. You know, you can excommunicate a family member, but they remain your family member. It's not like leaving the home group. Uh, you know, you're, you're stuck with the relationship, whether or not you're seeing them. So one has to be terrible with the family. Is uh, uh, something that Tom's sponsor says, don't expect much to change. So when you realize that probably not much, if anything, is going to change, the question is, what's the point in even trying to set the boundary? It just aggravates people stick to one a month, find a really careful, subtle way of communicating things. Um, you run out of the vouchers really, really quickly. Um, what you're left with, now th these, all, these tools all help in all sorts of situations. Um, the, the one type of situation which is very knotty is people in romantic, relationships which are toxic and involve verbal or physical violence and um, people uh, in other sort of family relationships but with verbal physical violence um, with the with the ones where it's romantic relationships um, I've got to the stage where I've discovered it's just, I've probably mentioned this before, it's just like if they're drinking or taking drugs or, you know, eating 17 Belgian buns. They're high. They're high on the drama, the violence, the toxicity, the so-called codependency, which is, I, I hate the word, but there we go. Uh, and they won't make any progress in that actual program if they stay in a relationship. So I can't, I, I won't tell someone to leave the relationship, but what I will say is I... I don't think the time trying to, I, I'm spending trying to help you is helping while you're in the relationship. So I can't sponsor you if you stay in a relationship. There are a thousand other people that can sponsor you. If you want to stay in the relationship and have a sponsor, ask one of them, but I'm not doing it because it's page 96. The, if, if the toxic relationship is so getting in the way of, uh, like it occupies nine tenths of the room so there's only a tenth of the room left for the program there's a there are 
magical creatures in the Harry Potter wizarding world who are, this is the adjective that J.K. Rowling made up, Koranoptixic. And what Koranoptixic means is that they grow to fill the space they're in. If you can entice one into a teapot, it will fill the teapot. If, if it escapes into a large room, it will grow to fill the room. And the toxic relationships are like that. Whatever their life is like, and I've been like this, when I'm in a toxic relationship, I haven't been in one for years, many years, thank God, fingers crossed, touch wood. Um, it, it occupies nine-tenths of my consciousness. Whatever, however big or small my life is, it's going to occupy nine-tenths. And I can't help people who are in a toxic romantic relationship. Send them straight. Where's Dominic? There you go. Send Dominic can help with those. <laughs> Poor old Dominic's going to have to get a stream of calls. Uh, he knows where to send it. It's a special place some of us know about. Um, and, you know, maybe that they can be helped by another fellowship. Um, the family ones are trickier. As, as I say, you're stuck with them. Um, with my own family, there are three categories. I think there are three categories of people. There are people I'm, I'm sure, I don't know where this tape is going. I don't know if this doesn't get broadcast to anyone in my family. There is someone in my family who actually listens to these, so I have to tell him to be very careful you know, where he but don't play this at home. <laughs> there are some people I'm largely indifferent to. They're like, fine. Like, if I'm at a wake, fine. I'll talk to them. You know, we're not going to be exchanging Christmas presents. We're not going to be... Um, you know, we're not going to be having huge amounts of hangout time together. Great. But there's no problem. Um, there are some people, I've got some some um, troubled, very troubled relations, particularly on the French side. The English side are much more sedate, but the French side, oof. Um, there are some whose behavior is so extreme and so bizarre and so criminal, actually. Um, like Charlotte Rampling, you know, upper class criminal, but criminal, um, you know, seven figure criminal, that kind of thing. They're so awful. I mean, they've got hearts of gold, I'm sure, somewhere, but I just, it's just too much toxicity to deal with. I can't even go near it. And then everyone else, there's the everyone else. And everyone else, you know, because I'm immense, I was immensely troubled, I'm a little better now. I come from a family which is very, very troubled. And there are some very troubled people. Now, some of the troubled people are good as gold and sweet, and occasionally they do strange things, and you can't try and help them where you can. But ooh, some of the people, it depends what day you catch them on. If they're on a good day, then you can have a normal conversation. If they're on a bad day, uh, God help you. And when I used to go and visit my mother, in Dorset, she, she's she's much older now. This is many years ago. I used to go down to when she lived in Dorset. I used to go down and visit, her, and, and she's got a thousand good reasons for being difficult. So this is not to, I don't want to sort of pillory her. So if I'd had her life, I'd be far more difficult than she is. She's amazing considering what she's been through. But anyway, when we arrived in Dorset for a weekend visit, Jonathan would go to Tesco's to buy champagne, chocolate and flowers now whilst he was there my mother had built up a head of steam over days and weeks 
with all the things she wanted to reproach me for. And our deal was when Jonathan was at Tesco's, she would see her opportunity. She would get it all off her chest. He'd come back with the flowers, the chocolate, the uh, champagne. And since she'd got it off her chest, she was fine for the rest of the weekend. She just needed to get it off her chest. And so what I practiced was quietly listening to it, not engaging with any of it, and seeing past the behavior to the hurt child within, keeping my focus on that as being the real person. The surface behavior is not her. The real person is innocent and wounded. That's all. They're innocent and wounded. And so this is something that I will share with people. If the person is going to be in your life because they're your mother and you, you, they're your mother. Um, you try and I tried to estrange myself for a while, for a couple of years, and it was no less painful than seeing her regularly. It was, it was you're no further ahead by estranging yourself as a relationship continues psychically. I don't know how that happens. My brother tried to estrange himself from her and eventually killed himself. So it doesn't work. And the relationship between him and her has continued to this day unresolved because he didn't resolve it while he was on this plane. So she still has a disordered relationship with him and with my sister who died earlier this year. So I think the job with these ones, I have to face these ones. And the way I face them, they're very difficult, but it's, as I say, it's, the, it's all the Emmett Fox stuff of seeing the real person behind the surface. And over many years, they stop acting out in my experience, because when they see the I remember the, the moment it, my mother broke <laughs> in a good way, broke. Um, she was having a go. I was on the phone to her. She was having a go. And. She said she she she, she attacked me for something, something. Right? I can't remember what it was. You see, I can't remember. Isn't that great? Can't remember. She attacked me for something and she said, so what are you going to say about that? And I said, I don't know. Nothing is coming into my head because I was thinking about fairies or unicorns or something. I was deliberately not mentally engaging in it. And she carried on and she said, now has, has anything occurred to you yet? Any answer? Do you have anything to say? You have nothing to say because everything I am saying is true. If it wasn't true, you'd have an answer. <laughs> that is amazing, amazing. And at one point I said, I'm so, so nothing, mind blank. And she laughed. And she never did it again. At least not in that way. There are little spurts of it where she starts to have a go. Uh, but that particularly ferocious form of attack, she, because I remained completely neutral, kind of held her in that position, she finally saw it. And once she'd seen it once, she didn't have the nerve to continue. It was extraordinary. But I had to withstand that for years. I say withstand. All I had to do was not fall for the illusion that any of it was real, at least real for me Her, she, what she was experiencing she was experiencing real emotions they weren't a reflection of the reality this was all going on inside her bubble it was nothing to do with me by learning how to sit with that for a very long time and not react to it eventually it changed 
I did not need to do anything to change it other than not try and change it. That's the paradox. For the years I tried to fix and change and control that behavior, it got worse. When I stopped trying to fix, change, control and just sat there for years, eventually it stopped. It's the, it's the only way. And um, so what I'm practicing much more at the moment is uh, keeping my big fat mouth shut. And, it's, it, and so those, those are the three things I can offer with family. But, you know, the, there are some people where it's irremediable and maybe you have to separate. There are other people who are neutral and it's fine. The people who aren't very well, um, some are non-aggressive, in which case you just love them and look after them and do what you can. The ones who are aggressive, that is an option. What I did with my mother is an option and I'm glad I did it. You know, the sort of distant French cousins, the crazy French cousins, there's, there's no love lost there. But with my mother, it needed to be dealt with. Um, but my experience, this is a, I shouldn't really, well, I'm going to say it. Okay. Um, this is where drama crosses over with the family stuff. So there is a solution. There is a way of learning how to be different with the very difficult people, but you've got to want it above all else. You've got, you've got to want to not be part of the drama. And whatever stage of development, I was at a stage of development for a very long time that the drama I had with my mother was part of my identity. So I wanted to be free of the consequences of the drama, but I didn't want the drama narrative to collapse because it was part of my existential position in the world. If I didn't have that, who was I? What would, if, I, if my childhood was actually fine, who would I be? Was the whole thing a lie? Very difficult to let go of a drama structure. So people have got to want to. If they don't want to, don't push them. And as my sponsor says, don't pick unripe apples. I think that's all I've got on family, Alistair. Uh, was there one more topic? Uh, drama and family, was it? Yeah, there was, there was one more, which is, which is workplace. This is far more straightforward. It's terribly simple, actually, the workplace stuff. Part of it is boundaries, how to get on with other people. And I think I mentioned this before. It's very simple. Uh, it's very simply a matter of applying the traditions, the principles contained in the tradition sy um, systematically. And uh, Dennis F. is your primary go-to for the principles behind the traditions. Um, when people have got corporate structures they're dealing with, and you know, it's how different departments work with each other, um, how businesses are structured, how partnerships are structured, how the family business, because a family is, a, is in effect a type of business, then it's the concepts. So um, you simply sort of throw people in the deep end with the traditions if it's to do with interpersonal stuff and the concepts if it's to do with structural stuff, like how decisions get made, how those decisions get implemented, how responsibility and authority work, how delegation works. It's the concepts. And... Uh, I'll tell you just very, very briefly, there isn't much time. Uh, that, that solved, it, it, with, with those things, it's actually the traditions and the concepts, not the steps. I mean, you need to be in a fit state yourself, but it's the traditions and the concepts and the principles contained within them that actually resolve those situations, just like they do in a group. Um, but I've got a, a, a friend who works for 
uh, one of the big American banks. Um, I can't tell you what it's called, but it's got, it rhymes with, no, I'm not, not even going to do that. Uh, <laughs> anyway, he's literally too senior for me to even joke about this. But we've had situations where he's explaining the, the stuff that's going on in the, in the bank. And we can diagnose the problem amazingly effectively and quickly by systematically going through concept, concept one, concept two, where, where is this business going wrong in terms of the delegation of authority and decision-making and responsibility being out of alignment with um, authority, which is what the whole thing is about. Uh, if you have authority and uh, if you have authority and responsibility properly allocated with a proper delineations of where decision-making takes place, who is responsible for the decisions, who they're then delegated to, what scope the delegee, delegatee has, it, everything becomes clear. And it's amazing how many unsolvable, complex business situations yield within half an hour to the application of the solutions and the concept. It's really extraordinary. Um, so that's... If they're in work and they have problems, then that is your opportunity for, to, to get them to work on the traditions and concepts. And it's far more useful, actually, in my experience, to, to do it that, to the traditions and the concepts that way, rather than doing cold as like academic exercises. So that's, that's all I've got on there. And I think that's me done for step 12 topics. Open it up for questions. Thank you, Tim. Thanks for that presentation. Uh, the question I have is... Um, related to family and working with somebody, particularly if they're newly sober or newly in recovery, and the, the dynamics within their family is ch has changed because, well, they're, and for example, in AA, they're no longer drinking while they're with their family. And my question is, how important or useful is it to help somebody to see that they're, the spirit that they do things in is is um, something that can help them have a more healthy relationship with their family. And I'm thinking, for example, principles out of uh, that, that are outlined in the big book. Like I think it's in the family afterwards. It's got the idea of giving rather than getting will become the guiding principle. Um, whether helping people to apply those sorts of principles when they have contact with their family is helpful alongside the the out when you were talking about changing one's perception so for example with maybe a parent seeing them as innocent but wounded um is it helpful to suggest that people change their attitude when they're actually spending time with their family or yeah it, it's kind of the only thing change actually if the attitude changes everything else changes um uh automatically um people in aa and well all the fellowships think they're really good at concealing their emotions it's like they said i hid behind a wall and no one saw the real me i'm like come on we could see it from 50 feet away you were concealing nothing just because you weren't saying anything. It's like someone walks in a room, you know where they are in their life. Do you know what I mean? It's like sometimes people walk in the room, the room lights up, other people walk in the room, a chill, the air 
you know, the, the temperature drops 10 degrees. Um, you know, I've thought that I'm being super subtle with Jonathan and I've just, I've been leaking horribly. So um, what I've been taught to do by, well, it was Jim, it was Jim Willis. It was a very simple talk actually I had with him, but he said, whatever darkness you've got in your mind about your family, do not inflict it on your family. So uh, keep yourself absolutely squeaky clean when you're with them. Really pay attention to not, not letting anything leak with, you know, doing things loudly or, or uh, sighing or huffing or funny little silences before replying. You know, there's subtle ways you indicate that you're pissed off. To really adopt the same attitude that you would if you had... Uh, if you're at work, because everyone knows how to behave, or almost everyone knows how to behave with policemen and bosses. Like, you know, when you're just on the verge of getting arrested and you have to switch, or you're in serious trouble in about two minutes' time, that, whatever skill got you through that, or when your boss is about to fire you, just deploy that with your family in extremists. Otherwise, withdraw from the situation get yourself calm, get your head on straight, uh, and adopting the attitude of um, I'm here to forgive, which means to withdraw judgment, I'm here to serve. And page 85 is super helpful with this. Uh, every day is a day where we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities. How may I best serve thee, thy will, not mine, be done. So what I do, and I suggest to other people to do this, go to the loop, say that line from page 85, and go back in as the servant. So you have no stake. You're just there to serve. Is there anything I can do, my lord? Now, don't say my lord, or they'll think it's sarcastic. So don't add that. Um, but that to take that attitude of I'm here to serve, if there's nothing you can do, say, let me know if there's anything I can do. Go and do your Sudoku in a corner sitting on the floor. Just don't, just, you know, be ignorable. Um, and that will go an awful, awfully long way. Sometimes people in AA say, you know, while well, my behavior's better, you know, my thinking's still terrible and I'm all over the place, but my behavior's better. And that's kind of fine. It's like, it, at least, we're all glad you're not punching people anymore, but that just creates a tension. And it's when there's a tension between the outsides and the insides, it's like an elastic band. When you let go, it'll snap and it'll snap back to its original shape. So the job is actually to change the internal attitude, to drop the, the snarky, snide, cynical, victim, blamey attitude and just put on a new, not just put on a new face, but have that face be an expression of a new attitude inside. Um, and I think that's, that's vital. It takes a lot of practice. So um, I was talking with, with Ellie Sheva. We've, we've kind of got to the end of the step 12 thing. Are we? So set the time for the meeting. I will read an extract from the chapter to wives, page 111. The first principle of success is that you should never be angry, even though your husband becomes unbearable and you have to leave him temporarily. You should, if you can, go without rancor. Patience and good temper are most necessary. Our next thought is that you should never tell him what he must do about his drinking. 
If he gets the idea that you are a nag or a killjoy, your chance of accomplishing anything useful may be zero. He will use that as an excuse to drink more. He will tell you he is misunderstood. This may lead to lonely evenings for you. He may seek someone else to console him, not always another man. The topic of tonight's meeting is relapse, and Tim will share anything between 30 and 45 minutes on the topic, after which the floor will be open for questions rather than a typical sharing. And we'll now hand over to Tim. You're muted. There we go. I'm unmuted now. So uh, I'm Tim. I'm an alcoholic. Um, just bizarre. I know not everyone in the room knows who, who I am. Well, I'm not really anyone. I'm just I've just been sober for 28 years and I've been sponsoring people for 27. Uh, that's my only qualification. Just because you've done something for a long time doesn't mean you're good at it. Just you need to know that. Uh, just means you've done a lot of it. Um, so you maybe have more stories to tell, but I don't know if you're more effective. Um, uh, what to do if a sponsor relapses? Um, I'm going to tell a lot of little sort of stories and anecdotes and, and ideas, which I, I, before we even get on to what you even do, once they've relapsed and come back, um, if they come back is to understand the nature of the relapse. If you understand that, it just makes things uh, so much easier. The first point may be a very obvious one, but by the time they've relapsed, it's too late. I remember I was coming back from town on a Friday evening many years ago, and I was standing at the bus stop, and a little call came through on my mobile phone from my sponsee, and she said, it's me. And I said, yes. She said, I've had a hot toddy. And I thought, well, that's very nice for you, but I, I, I don't know what to do. I can't, I can't drag it out of you. If you've had one, you've had one. You'll have to call me when it's worn off. Um, and that started a very long relapse, actually. Then she called me a few years later and said she'd finally got a year sober, and I hope she's still sober now. Uh, but once they've had the once that once they've drunk, it's too late. Um, now, when they've drunk again, it's very sort of tempting. It depends what sort you have. Sometimes you have a sponsor that drinks again and they go and live in Mozambique and then you never hear of them again. Others, others call you and want to talk about the fact they've relapsed as they're having, say, the hot toddy or whatever. And this is in very, very inviting. So you think, well, I might be able to get through to them or something. Uh, so I'm going to tell someone else's story. I'm going to tell a clan, one of the famous Clancy stories about this. And I know I've said this before, even maybe a couple of weeks ago, but it's such a good story. Who cares? Um, so newcomer relapses and calls up Clancy and says, uh, I've let you down. I've let the group down. I've let AA down, and most of all, I've let myself down. Uh, Clancy, will you will you come over and help me? So it's 11 o'clock at night, and Clancy says, well, whenever anyone anywhere reaches out the hand for help, I want the hand of AA always to be there. For that, I'm responsible for it. So he goes over, and he talks to him, this, this drunk with tears of sincerity rolling down his cheeks 
until four in the morning and they finally get it all sorted out and he drives home he has one hour's sleep he gets up he has a shower he's got to go to work in a few minutes and there's a call and uh it's this newcomer again and the newcomer says clancy i thought you said you were going to come over um i've had conversations with people when they're relapsed and then later that day they literally don't know they've had the conversation with me but they were speaking perfectly clearly at the time there was i'm such a i used to be a lot more of a mug with with this sort of stuff than i am now i'm wiser to it now but uh i wish people well if they've drunk i wish people well but there's no point in in trying to carry a message um there's a some various workbooks by Jim W. from San Antonio. And there's a passage which he puts in all of them, which is chilling. I'm going to read it out. This workbook cannot help those who are active in their addictions. And this is the key line. We don't know of any program that can help these people. Perhaps it is as simple as this. When the time comes to face the healing process, these people avoid the process via their addiction. Common sense tells us we need to totally abstain while working on this healing process. The mind that made us sick cannot make us well in its present state, nor under the influence of the addiction. We need something higher than us, different than us, other than us, which can and will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This is a mind training and spiritual awakening program, so it is important to be consciously present. And I think that applies not just with alcohol, but with other addictions too. Um, so when I've tried to sponsor people in AA, in AA and their anorexia is out of control, nothing goes in, nothing waste of time you you've whatever the process is has got to be halted um tom w tells a story he says alcoholism is a lot like dancing with a gorilla you're not done dancing until the gorilla is done dancing except in the original story it wasn't dancing it was dating except in the original story it wasn't dating so if they're dancing, as it were, with the gorilla, uh, you you got to wait till the dance has stopped. There's no point trying to get in there and get between the alcoholic and the gorilla because you'll get your arms and your legs yanked off and not just by the gorilla. Um, I've got to recognize my own powerlessness over their alcoholism. Um, another of Tom's stories is about this French Canadian doctor in AA called Dr. Gill, who had a thick French accent. I can't do a French Canadian accent, but I can do a French accent because I form with a French passport. Um, and Gill would Gill would say, alcoholism. She has three phases. The first phase is the fun phase. That's when you're having fun. The second phase is fun 
plus problems. You have your first divorce. You lose your third job, but you're still having fun. The third phase, problems. <laughs> and the, the point of this story is, whilst they're still having fun, don't interfere with, don't interfere with it. By the time you get to people who are just in the problems phase, some people are willing. So in the big book, it talks about the, the uh, well-known stages of a spree. So it's an un, it's an under-discussed line, the well-known stages of a spree. Once they've gone out, you've got to wait till it runs its course. That could be a, a couple of hours. My friend James, who some of you know, uh, had a bottle of wine after eight years, and he's been... Oh, I don't know, 17, 18 years sober since then. Just a bottle of wine, that was all. Uh, it lasted one night, that was it. Uh, sometimes it takes days, weeks, months or years to run its course, and sometimes it doesn't run its course. It's It's got legs again. Um, some other points about relapse. There's... Uh, a story called The Strange, or not The Strange, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, and it's about this doctor in Scotland, I think, who takes potions to become this monstrous character called Mr. Hyde. Uh, in the book, it says to indulge unstated vices without detection. So he wants to do something and get away with it. Uh, and he takes this potion, he becomes this other character so that he himself, the doctor, is not implicated in what Mr. Hyde get up, gets up to. So he'll take the potion and uh, become Mr. Hyde. He'll indulge whatever vice he wants to indulge in, violence mostly. Um, and then he'll take another potion to bring himself back to becoming Dr. Jekyll. Now, a couple of strange things happen during the course of the story. If, if, you, if you don't want spoilers, then, you know, go, go make a cup of tea right now. Um, but during the course of the story, um, he starts turning into the monster without having to take the potion. Also, he needs higher and higher doses of the counter potion to bring himself back. And then eventually the counter potion to bring himself back stops working and he can't turn himself back. And that's the the difficulty is people th think when they go out, they they I've worked with a lot of relapses over the years. They always think they can come back. I thought I could. Uh, I first came to AA in I'd been st stopping starting drinking for two and a half years. Uh, I came to AA in January 1993. And back of every single relapse, I had a number of relapses between then, then and July 1993. Behind every single one was the thought that if things get really bad, I'll just come back. So I can handle the consequences of a slip. What harm could it do? I mean, something really dangerous might happen but it's really unlikely there was basically the perception that a slip is a calculated risk and it's not 
I mean, it is a calculated risk, but there's more. I might turn and not be able to get back. And my friend, I always say this, because he's, he's unfortunately, sadly, the best example. My, my friend Paul, in my first two years of recovery, we spoke for about an hour every night uh, on the phone uh, until around July 1995. For a few weeks, he kind of stopped calling and he drank again. And, and he's, he's not... I don't think he's properly back. He's tried to come back a few times. He's got a few weeks, a few months, but it's never taken again. So we don't bring ourselves back. We have to wait till we're brought back by the process. Um, it needs to work itself through. Um, when I start drinking, I don't want to stop. The person I become when I go back into the drinking world has no interest in sobriety. That's why there's no such thing as a safe slip. Also, even if people can bring themselves back physically, that won't necessarily do it. Um, there was a, a when I was in early sobriety in Russia in 1993. Um, I slipped and then tried to go to lots of meetings, but it wasn't taking in the same way. I found it really easy in the in the January, February to just not drink. Now, after a couple of slips, it was incredibly difficult. I, I couldn't go a couple of days. I had to stay with people to not drink physically. Um, and then as soon as I was back in my flat, I was drinking again. Uh, so you can bring your body back to AA. It doesn't mean your mind will come back. Your mind will come back when it wants to come back. So relapse is a very, very serious thing i think the seriousness of it can be underrated um underestimated especially with the word slip which makes it sound like slipping on a banana skin or something of course the origin of slip is bill w describing someone as slipping from god's grace um now there are diverging views in aa on what is behind a slip uh, Bill, as I say, Bill W. talks about people slipping from God's grace as though it sort of happens involuntarily. Um, in, I think it's in Cleveland. I may, it's either Cleveland or Akron. Uh, they had a pamphlet. This was in the 1930s, where it stated that if you slip, you've done so on purpose and you've resigned from AA. There you go. You've resigned your membership. So there were different perceptions at the time as to what was going on. My personal view is that the truth is, is somewhere in between. And we'll come to that. When I look back at my own relapses, there were two things going on in every single one. Uh, by the way, some people say you shouldn't really call it relapse unless you've actually fully recovered first. It, it's basically continuing to drink. That's really what's going on. Uh, I think that may be accurate. Uh, but every single time I resumed drinking, two things were going on. First of all, the thought of a drink occurred to me. Secondly, I acted on that drink, on that thought of a drink, because it was my thought. I was still in charge. I still saw myself as the captain of my own ship. Now, I can't control what thoughts come into my mind. So the only solution, if you have a mind which wants to drink, is to surrender your decision-making process, literally about what to do with your day to a higher power. 
um, I can't retain any agency myself or I'm stuffed as soon as the thought of a drink occurs to me. If I'm in charge, I'll, I'll drink. Um, what's her name? Grey D.O.H. says that she hears people saying, today I have a choice and today I choose not to drink. Um, <clears throat> and she says, well, thank God I don't have a choice because some days I would choose to drink. That's why I don't need I need not to be in charge. That's why I need my higher power to be in charge because my higher power isn't thirsty. <clears throat> Whenever I drank again, I was always still in charge, which means that uh, I needed to surrender. And how now, how do you surrender? It was basically um, surrendering to the actions of the program today, uh, each day, so that my day from the moment my uh, weary eyes creaked open in the morning until they snapped shut at night, the day was not my own. That was how I treated it. I, I, I The day was too dangerous to have in my hands because of what I would do with it. I was on a very, very short leash when I got sober. I was a very slippery customer. <clears throat> so what it meant was taking the actions of the program, regardless of what I thought or felt about the actions. Um, it's impossible. You can't hand over to God very easily when you're very new. You have I, my experience. You have to hand over to the actions of the program. Um, because that's something concrete. That's something you can you can see people doing. You can follow someone else's instructions because you can see them physically in front of you. Much easier to do that than to follow what you think God is asking you to do. Uh, later on, there comes a crunch point where it's between you. It's like you're in a boxing ring and there's you in one corner and the desire to drink in the other. And you know that you're going to get knocked out by it. And the only thing standing between you and the drink is the higher power because other people are just not powerful enough anymore. So they cut, there came a crunch point for me in 1993 where I had to um, say to this higher power, I just, I cried out to it really. Um, what the words I said didn't matter. I, at some psychological level, I threw myself at the mercy of this higher power, recognizing I would drink otherwise and said, whatever you need to do, do it. And I was fine that night. I didn't drink. And that was from a point that I knew that I would. So ultimately, it, it's, it's between, although it's all about the program of action, behind that, there's the, the, the safety net is throwing yourself at the mercy of God. Uh, in the moment and a, a sponsor of mine who was relapsing once uh phoned my sponsor my my sponsor and said well when i feel like drinking what do i do do i do my step four do i pray do i meditate he said it doesn't actually matter what you do as long as you do what you believe to be your higher powers will and if you have to lie screaming on the floor until the pain of not doing what you want to do passes do that kind of doesn't matter the only you have to be able to get through one day not doing the thing that you want to do and this is in the big book itself in in the the, the alcoholic anonymous number three story where they say to him you can stay sober for 24 hours can't you and he says yeah 
anyone can stay sober for 24 hours. I can as long as I've thrown away the right to choose whether or not I'm going to drink and simply surrender myself to sobriety and commit to sobriety and say, well, I'm just going to have to put up with being sober whether I like it or not, just for today. And that that was when the relapsing stopped. Um, The causes of relapse. Um, When a sponsee does come back, I pretty much always run through the uh there's a, a pretty standard list of possible causes we run through the possible causes uh to try to identify what's going wrong and here they are uh the first one is step zero which is the as it were the step before the steps um and this was my problem for a while i i wanted to stop drinking forever but not just yet. Um, to get sober, I've got to want to get sober forever and forever to start now. So while I still wanted to drink at some level, nothing was going to happen. Uh, there are step one. Um, there, there, there are step one reservations, particularly uh, about the physical craving. Uh, there are two sides to a reservation about the physical craving. Um, I believed that I could have what I called a controlled outbreak in that I could go and blow away the cobwebs without too much serious, too many serious things happening. Uh, and of course, you can't. That's the whole point of the physical craving. You can't predict at the beginning of the drinking bout whether you're going to be, whether nothing is going to happen or whether you're going to get run over or arrested or whatever. And it was like Russian roulette. Um, the, the other one we've covered already is the belief that I can toy with my alcoholism and come back. Um, there are step two reservations, which I suppose are well, step one, step two reservations about um, uh Believing that I can stay sober without a spiritual awakening, that the knowledge of AA and a few of the AA actions will be sufficient to keep me sober. Um, Believing that I can just take AA at my own pace, you know, progress, not perfection, easy does it. It's amazing the slogans you can find to support that approach. Um, And sometimes people would say it's not a race. And I think it is absolutely a race. Now, it's not a race against Janet and Susan. Uh, it's a race against one's own alcoholism, which, as they say, is doing press-ups in the car park outside. Um, I think the game is to have a spiritual awakening more quickly than the alcoholic ego grows back. I think that's the deal. Um, and there's... Uh, now a lot of people i don't the difficulty is that aa meetings and fellowship are very effective at keeping people sober for a while and it gives everyone the impression that they can keep people sober indefinitely but of course that's that's not the case if you hang around aa for a long time you'll discover that's not the case that the grace period uh 
that the grace period we get, uh, obviously we ha- there is a grace period because if there weren't, how would you get to the spiritual awakening in step 12 to keep you sober if you didn't have grace to get there? It's like you've got to get a free pass to get to step 12. Now, how much of a free pass you get seems to vary from person to person. It's impossible to tell until it's too late. So you have to treat yourself like you're on a short leash because uh, you just don't know. You just don't know. So there are reservations about you know, how fully do I have to give myself to the AA program to guarantee sobriety? Uh, and then there are some step three conditions, uh, which I think stop people from uh, giving in to the notion of sobriety fully. And you, you can help tease these out with people by saying, finish this sentence for me. I believe sobriety is not worth it if X happens. What's X? What are the events that you think, well, if that happens, it's not worth staying sober? Or conversely, I believe sobriety is not worth it if X doesn't happen. What ambitions or goals or demands do you have? Um, Where if they're not met, it's not worth staying sober. So the bad events you want to avoid and the good events, which you think I have to have that to be happy. Um, Because I I had this, I I had very specific demands about finance and success in the external world. And as soon as things looked as though they weren't going my way, I thought, what's the point in being sober? And I'd be drunk again. I had to get to a position where I was... Uh, willing to stay sober, uh, even if lots of terrible things happened, and even if none of the good things I wanted happened. So the conditions had to go. So this is what I do. I review with people when they do come back from a slip, uh, possible causes. Is it step zero? Is it step one? Is it step two? Is it step three? Um, In almost every case, uh, the actual effort with the program has been half-hearted. Often it starts well, but then dwindles in the days or weeks before the slip, and then boom, they're drunk. Very, very occasionally, you have someone that is working terribly hard at the program, but slips anyway. Uh, it's exceptionally rare in my experience, and almost always there's a nasty little secret. Or there's another addiction, which is which people are acting out on. And my sponsor, when I was acting out, uh, said, beware of your own orthodoxy. The reason you're being such a good little AA boy in all these areas over here is to hide the fact you're doing X, Y and Z over there. So sometimes like the super diligent sponsees who are doing absolutely everything, you know, tickety-boo straight away there's something being hidden somewhere because that's where the energy is coming from to be so perfect on the surface so but but that's rare it's really in almost every case there's half measures going on um the the only answer is to offer someone the full program to set out the facts uh which is very, which are very basically that uh, uh, only full measures, in my experience, guarantees sobriety 
And what does full measures mean? It means hammering the first nine steps and um, uh, hammering the last three steps. Now, sometimes um, when there's a lot of relapse history, um, there's a funny phenomenon. I'm, this is going to sound like a mad, like I'm being completely mad, but I think this is a genuine thing. Doing the steps to avoid doing the steps. And this is where people will engage in the process of the first nine steps again and again and again in order to avoid actually changing anything. So there's lots of time spent reading and writing and talking and analyzing and sharing all the defects and doing page after page of inventory. But the person won't get up in the morning. They won't make their bed. They won't stop stealing. They won't stop lying. They won't show up at work. Do you know what I mean? Um, And I've been guilty of this without drinking, of doing lots of formal step work but without any real effort to change the things that need to change. So sometimes you have to come at this, if that's the history, when people know the big book backwards, you have to come at it differently, look at the daily program first um, and get steps 10, 11 and 12 in place. Uh, These are people people who've been through the steps before, but have relapsed and have got a good understanding of the program in principle. The problem is often not that they don't have a handle on the character defects. The problem is that there is ongoing current harm to people in their lives. And that's why the focus can sometimes be best on steps 10, 11 and 12. But ultimately, it kind of might express it. it, the, The thing which guarantees sobriety is willingness and sincerity. The exact it's not about the exact mechanics of what you give them to do. Uh, something my sponsor said once, it doesn't matter what you give them to do, as long as you give them something to do and they do it. That if, you know, sometimes people say, well, if my sponsor had asked me to, you know, stand on my head on Oxford Street, I would have done it. Of course, no sponsor has ever asked anyone to do that. But I have a feeling if someone thought that that was what would keep them sober, it would it's the act of surrender to the action which seems to make the difference. My first run through the steps was between you and me, embarrassing. I wouldn't give you tuppence for how I worked the steps in the first year. Technically, it was a complete disaster, but I did it sincerely and I stayed sober. And the main boxes were ticked, the secrets were conveyed. I made some some terrible amends, <coughs> but I made them. They were accepted. Um, uh, And, you know, I started to take action. This is the key thing. I started to take actions to get my life in order under the direction of the sensible people around me. Um, A couple of patterns to watch out for. Um, There's one, one pattern which you could call good dog, bad dog. So. When the sponsee comes back, lots of remorse from the drinking, hugely sincere immediately after the slip, initially very high levels of compliance, like almost going above and beyond. But then it dwindles and then they disappear and then they relapse and then they rinse and repeat. And this goes round and round and round. What's usually going on here? 
when you talk to when I've talked to people who've got this cycle, because this was my cycle actually, good dog, bad dog. Um, there was one chap I, I used to talk to a lot and try and help. I don't know how much it helped, but kept me sober. Um, well, I'd say what happened before the slip in the few days. So my head told me this. My head was telling me that. My head, my head, my head, my head. And it struck me as really interesting, this. Because I thought, well, this is the root of the problem. Because when I look back at my own relationship with my head or my, you know, uh, toxic thoughts. um, Have you heard people in meetings laughing about, oh, my, on the way to the meeting, my head was telling me this, why, and said, ah, 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 and everyone laughs about, you know, what their head was telling them. Now, that's the right attitude, because you're treating your head, which is the alcoholism or the disease, as some, like, crazy goblin in the corner, some kind of vampire gerbil in its little wheel going round and round and round with its fangs, but having no power, having no... There's no substance to it. It's just just rubbish, just rubbish. Whereas this chap, who's mesmerised by it, my head was telling me this, my head was telling me that. And I thought, I said to him, do you think your head is your higher power? And he said, yes. There you go. So when his head would tell him to go to AA, he'd go to AA. And when his head would tell him to drink, he'd drink. So uh, the reason this is important is because with this kind of pattern, which I've called good dog, bad dog, it looks like someone is doing what you're asking them, but they're not. They're doing what they have judged. You've suggested something. They've judged it to be the right thing. So they're doing it because they judge it to be the right thing, not because you've suggested it. Whereas the ideal thing with a sponsor I found is uh, is to do what my sponsor suggests, not because I think it's a good idea, but because he suggested it and I trust him. And Clancy's description of sponsorship is, one of his descriptions is to take actions you don't believe in because the person who's suggesting them is doing better than you. Um, <clears throat> the, the other uh, pattern I'm going to finish fairly shortly, I think, is, is what we might call pseudo-surrender. And this is where people are very good at some things, but not good at an, not good at others. I've talked about this a little bit already. Overcompensating in some areas. Uh, so my friend Sarah, who is now a clinical psychologist at um, one of the big teaching hospitals in London, but she was uh, 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 she got sober, same age as me, same year. She used to wake up covered in cold pasta. That was one of her drinking stories. <laughs> Naked covered in cold pasta. What a sight that must have been. Um, anyway, she's a clinical psychologist now. Um, but she was good at talking and analysing. This is her own story. She doesn't mind me telling this. She was good at talking and analysing, but she wasn't very good at leaving the house. Um, and... She phoned Janet. Janet was Sarah's sponsor. And 
she phoned Janet one day, Janet, I'm too frightened to leave the house. Then she reeled off all the, the, the diagnoses for why she was too frightened to leave the house. Like sort of scouts badges. It's not that they're not real. I mean, you know, anxiety is anxiety. But, but the question is, how, how, how are we going to treat it? Um, and what Janet suggested, now I'm not condoning this, I'm just reporting what happened. Janet said, I'll only talk to you if you call me from the phone box at the end of the road. And I'll know because it'll be a different number than the number you're currently calling on. And I can see the number you're currently calling on. She put the phone down. Sarah called her back from the home number and Janet said, that's your home number. Click. So Sarah got up the courage, took a while, got up the courage and called from the phone box at the end of the road, panting, panicking. But she did it. She did the one thing she didn't want to do. She trusted Janet and she wanted to talk to Janet. And Janet said, how was it? And Sarah said, it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be. And Janet said, you've learned a very valuable lesson about fear there, haven't you? There's a story in the big book about precisely that, about walking around the block. Um, so uh, the point of that story is uh, sometimes um, the sticking point is the action that the person absolutely doesn't want to take. And once that action starts being taken, the whole thing starts to roll and progress starts being made so with uh, this sort of pseudo surrender where like people are super surrendered in areas a b and c but not in areas d e and f to bear down hard on areas d e and f because that's where the problem is the good the like the compliance on the other side is is the distraction uh that was what was done with me um i've got lots of stories myself about the the sponsor zoning on on the last thing i want to do making it my number one priority and that's been incredibly important for my recovery and that a bit the ability the reason this is related to relapse is the ability to do the last thing that you want to do because someone else has asked you to do it, someone you trust has said this is going to be in your best interests. That's ultimately the thing. That muscle is the muscle that you need to exercise to be able to not do what your alcoholic head is telling you to do. And that's why it's so important to start learning how to act against one's own impulses. So there we go. That's all. That's all I've got on that. I'm going to hand it back to you, Dan, masquerading as Alistair this evening to see if we can field some questions. OK, thanks, Tim. The meeting is now open for questions for Tim, which can be done by the raised hand function or just give me a wave. Sam, come in. Thanks, Tim. Uh, that was really helpful. Does any of what you said change when you apply it to different addictions like sex and love? There we go. Okay, so for the backup recording, I'm repeating the, the question uh, for the sake of uh, the recording. Um, so uh, does everything apply also to the other addictions? Let me see, there's a note I need to read. I don't know where he's put it now. Okay. Um, 
So my relevant experience is is particularly with the 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 the, the SLA topics. Uh, I know a lot less about food, but I've uh, worked with a lot. I've I've got SLA issues myself, and I've worked with a lot of people over the years. Um, and and there are diff- there are differing views on this. <laughs> so um, be aware that there are differing there 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 are differing approaches. Um, I've seen people with the S stuff, with the SLA stuff, um, try really, really hard, and the abstinence is not achieved 100% straight away. And lots of my friends, I've known a lot of people in the food fellowships uh, who say a similar thing, that with some people, they they start taking all the action promptly, and uh the food stuff clears up straight away other people it's patient progress over weeks or months before abstinence full abstinence is fully maintained uh the latter uh, is the case for me with the with the sla issues that it was it was patient progress even with like full throttle action um uh i found myself slipperier than other people uh, but I know I know there are other I don't sort of out people in this room. I know there are other people in this room who've got more extensive experience on the on the S stuff than than me. But I think the same general principles are, certainly for me, the same general principles apply when it comes to the the reasons for relapse. It's it's, it's all the same reservations behind it. Angus, hi, thanks, thanks, Tim. Um, I'm working with someone who is slipping a lot, um, and I can't. I can't. I guess you've kind of talked about it, but I guess how would you approach a situation where, where I say, where I say, you know, at some point you need to be willing not to slip or willing to stay sober. I mean, I can't, and I can't give you that. And he says, but I'm powerless. It's I'm powerless. You know, what can I do? I'm a little bit stumped. I guess it's kind of understanding what are the kind of the drivers in terms of the step zero, one, two, and three. But how would you approach kind of conversation like that? That's a very good question. So um, this question of powerlessness over the relapse, the the line. which I think is very helpful, is that we're powerless but not helpless. And so there isn't a contradiction there. What powerlessness means is that left to my own devices, I have no choice but to drink or engage in whatever the behaviour is. The whole point of AA is that your powerlessness remains, as it were, a sort of permanent state. But with the help that's provided it's sort of placed in this structure of assistance of the program the principles the power behind it i.e the higher power and then the people the four p's and with the combination of the entire fellowship the program the principles and god anything should be possible so there's a there's a there's a little bit of a danger of hiding behind the powerlessness of step one. The examination of powerlessness uh, 
takes place in a context where there is no help available. Um, that's what demonstrates the powerlessness. With my own, uh, there, there are a couple of other points I want to make about slippiness with the SLA stuff. Because it is the one of the reasons it's slightly different. In my view, this is just a this is very much a personal view. I may change my mind even later tonight. But the effect, the the chemical and electrical effect in the brain of a fantasy, which flits through your mind, or if you're uh, walking along the street and you're as it were triggered by someone looking at you in a particular way. The chemical rush is is it, it it's almost as though you're creating the slip itself inside your with your own brain chemistry. Now, with alcohol and uh, and uh, cocaine is a good example actually that they um, uh, Nora Volkov, you can look her up later with a V, I think Nora Volkov, Mexican um, neuroscientist. Uh, she talks about an ex experiments where. Uh, they showed cocaine addicts uh, footage, film footage, people taking cocaine in a kind of cocaine-taking environment, and they measured the brain waves, what's going on in the brain. And then they did the, the, the same with cocaine addicts taking cocaine, and they discovered almost no difference in the brain function between the two so that watching the film of people taking cocaine was causing the same changes in brain chemistry that taking cocaine was doing. Which is a little bit like the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde being able to turn into Mr. Hyde without taking the potion. Now, with alcohol, um, I think a lot of the slips that I had started off with the fantasy about it and it's it, it starts in the brain and you're kind of setting yourself off my experience with the, the SLA stuff is it was far more instantaneous than it was with alcohol you kind of had to work at it with alcohol but with the SLA stuff boy was it quick but but here's the thing I think I always set myself up by never having fully accepted um the value valuelessness of the acting out there was still part of me which still believed there was some value in the acting out that I was missing out on something and that's the thing that I was able to actively work on is to get rid of the notion that I was by abstaining from x y and z everyone's little list is different in in SLA abstaining from x y and z that getting rid of the idea that I was actually missing out on something and this applies as much to the the intrigue, the flirting, the the um, the the uh, sort of toxic romantic relationships as it does to to, to sex. It was uh, uh, and it was fact the latter, which was more more my my uh, downfall. Um, but I had to really see that there was nothing that there was there was no good at the bottom of the the, the genie's flask. Um, there was nothing there. Whilst I still believed there was some good in there, I was opening myself up to those fantasies, and then I was opening myself up to relapse. So now the the thing is, one's got to be 
sort of gentle with people. I think particularly with the the, the SLAR stuff, I've seen people actually in much more baffled desperation with the SLAR stuff than I have even with alcohol because people can't work out, they can't find the reservation. And so I try and be as, as sort of slow and gentle with people as possible about helping them find what the reservation is. With the alcoholics, the reservation is, it's not buried deep. It's just really like drinking and, or there's some, some event they can't, uh, some event from the past that they, that they, they can't bear to face. So I don't, uh, Angus, does that answer your question at all? Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, okay, I'll just... Laura, come in. Okay, thanks. Um, I, I have a question with the good dog, bad dog behavior, but not in terms of the substance, but actually in terms of working, like like doing the step work and what your experience is like when people like um, sort of have that, like they're doing everything you say, but then you don't hear from them. Or they like, so it's like this cycle of, um, but not not with actually relapsing, but just with not being engaged. And I'm wondering if the questions that that you pose, like, it's not worth staying sober if X doesn't happen, or it's not worth staying sober if X does happen. It's sort of like it's not worth being com- like what by by doing full measures if x doesn't happen or it's like not worth doing full measures if if x does happen right like can you use the same criteria does that is that a question <laughs> is that a clear I, question I, I i think so um so i think there's actually a slightly broader question which is how you deal with that how you deal with that cycle um what one thing that i do with people who have a history of being terribly good for a while and then gradually going off the boil and then disappearing is insisting on daily contact before 9am in the morning that works pretty well and what happens is you'll hear if you you need to listen very very carefully You'll hear stuff in their voice. You'll hear a change in the voice, a change in the tone. And you'll say, hey, what's that about? Um, You seem pretty keen to get off the phone today. What are you frightened of today? What's bothering you? And very often they'll reveal something which they wouldn't otherwise have revealed. And then next day they're fine again. So I think it's if you if you stay close to them, you can often spot something before they know it's going on. Uh, now it's not it's not foolproof, and ultimately you have to remember, it's down to the individual. You know Maureen's great sort of uh, rule of rule of thumb that if if you if they don't want it, you can't say anything uh, right, and if they do want it, you can't say anything wrong. So. Uh, but but on the margins, I think how well, obviously we, how we do sponsor people does matter. Otherwise, we wouldn't be sitting here today. We're, we I think we have a duty to do our absolute best. But it, it's ultimately down to them. Uh, what's often going on? This is an it, with the kind of good dog bad dog thing. Is their higher self um, 
uh, knows that they ought to uh, stay sober, but their lower self doesn't yet want to. And there's a fight between the two. And at one point in the cycle, it's like, you know, the, those weather, the, the weather device where when it's the, those old barometers where when the weather was fine and the, the mercury was high, the, the, the sunny person would come out and then it would when the, the pressure dropped, the mercury would drop and it would twist around and then the, the rainy person would come out. And that's what you've got. You've got the two sides and the two have to be integrated somehow. And one way of doing it to integrate those two sides is to say, right, it, you, those, those are two voices. There's a voice for your higher self, which wants you to get well, which, which wants you to have a life, which wants you to succeed in the world. There's another part which is just just wants to get loaded and just wants to do X, Y and Z. Let's not spell it out. Now you aren't either of those things. You're the you're the you're the person that gets to pick between those two things. And so your job is to pick which one of those you want to run with. Whichever one you pick, uh, you're giving your full force to. Um, have you ever noticed with sponsees sometimes? You're talking to a sponsee and it's like they've taken the side of the disease. They've taken the, the side of the alcoholism. They've taken the side of the ego and you're now in a boxing match and they're fighting the corner of their ego or their disease or their alcoholism. And you realize you're not talking to them anymore. You're talking to the ego, the disease or the alcoholism. And they're throwing the full force of everything they know about the program to fight against the program. And there's a the way round that you see the problem is when people flip back and forth, thinking that those two voices that either of them are who they are and they're not. Those two voices are simply ways of looking at the world, the right mind and the wrong mind, but they're not either. And the the trick you can say to someone in that moment, hey, have you noticed that you've just taken the side of your ego? Now, I want to ask you, do you really want to do that? How about you side with me against your ego? And let's see if we can't make. Do you think it might be more in your interests to side with me against your ego than to side with your ego against the whole of AA? Which do you think would be more in your interests? And it gets people to separate themselves from the voice and work out which voice they really want to listen to. And then I've actually, um, I've heard my sponsor on the phone to someone, I'll finish in a second because it's almost eight. I've heard my sponsor on the phone to someone saying, um, uh, this is, I was in the car with him in Texas. I get sort of get trained on how to sponsor because all these calls, the calls are constantly coming in. And he lets them know that I'm there and they don't mind. And I, I've heard him saying to people, and now we've heard enough from your ego I'm addressing Andrew's ego right now. Andrew's ego, I'd like you to step aside and let me speak to Andrew for a moment. Now, Andrew, what do you think about this? He literally separates out the ego 
within the person from the person and asks to speak to the person. And it's pure AA this. It's when people say in AA, the disease is telling me to drink, but I know my higher power wants me in here. It's where you identify something beyond the ego, beyond the disease, beyond the addiction that gets to choose which voice is it in my best interest to listen to. And that's how you can get people out of that good dog, bad dog thing. That's all I've got on that. Hi, thanks everybody for the questions and thanks for Tim uh, for the topic tonight. Can you help me close the meeting using the serenity prayer? So my name is Tim, I'm an alcoholic. Um, uh, I don't speak for AA. Uh, you need to know that. This is going to be an, a very personal view. Um and I may change my mind at a later point in time. So uh, this is just how things appear to me today. I've gone back on almost everything I've, I've thought at some point. Um, so I'll probably go back on this, but this is how things appear to me. Um, someone could keep an eye on the other microphones. That would be super helpful. Thanks, Alistair. Um, so this is called the games we play with sponsors. Uh, now, what I'm going to be talking about this evening is, is very, it's such a sensitive topic, frankly. Um, it's not talked about in meetings at all um, uh, because it's so sensitive. Although if you've got a sponsor and you have sponsees of your own, as soon as you get sponsees of your own, you discover yourself talking to your sponsor far more than you did when you had your own problems. Um, and so all of this material, it's not, I haven't come up with anything new. I, all of this has been going on behind the scenes in Alcoholics Anonymous since its founding People work out how on earth are we going to deal with this? Now, I was a very difficult character when I got to AA. And so all this, everything I'm going to describe in terms of what sponsees can do is stuff I have done myself. But the question is, if you're a sponsor, when you're presented with it, how do you deal with it? And also um, with these so-called games, I'll come to what we mean by game in a little bit. Uh, with these games, the sponsor is as much of a player as the sponsee. And I'll come to that as well, what the sponsor's role needs. So my view of sponsorship is, is my job is to make myself a channel for the higher power to work through me to help other people. I don't help people. A higher power helps people. I offer myself up to the process. The higher power uses uh, our knowledge and experience. Now, for the relationship to work well, the sponsor and the sponsee need to be on the same page about what the purpose, is, purpose of the relationship is. And sponsees won't automatically know this because sponsorship is unlike any other relationship that I know of. It's, it's, it has similarities with all sorts of things, but it is none of those things. It's not like therapy. It's not like friendship. It's not like anything else. So, it's very important with a, a, a sponsee who is particularly well with people who are new to the notion of sponsorship to set out exactly what you're there for. And of course, people are free to have whatever sorts of relationships with sponsors or sponsees that they want. This is just what I just what I do based on what I found to have worked. And I'll come to why the things that don't work don't work 
in a bit, which is how I got to this point. So I'm there to take the person through the steps. I'm there to provide guidance on the program and on the fellowship more generally. Uh, I think we are there to help people troubleshoot um, uh, emotional difficulties and practical difficulties by, by using those as case studies for how to apply the program. And also, it, it's, I think it's absolutely the case. Uh, some people say they don't give advice. Um, if I hadn't been given advice when I was new, I would have been dead because I would have been following my own advice. If I hadn't been following the advice of other people in AA, I would have been following my own catastrophic best thinking. But there are limits to what the advice uh, is. And... Um, uh, most of the best advice actually just boils down to basic common sense life tips and experience. And that's the, a very good way to provide advice is simply say, well, this is what I did. This is my experience. What I'm not for as a sponsor is doing things for sponsees that they can and should do for themselves. So looking at meeting details, finding things on a particular page in the big book, providing information that can be Googled. Um, I'm not there to provide medical advice, psychiatric advice or psychotherapeutic advice. I'm, I, I'm not there to, some people say I need a sponsor so I can be accountable. I'm not there to be someone's accountability buddy or something. I, I've never really under, understood that. I, I think according to the big book anyway, I'm not accountable to other people. I'm accountable to my higher power um, and to myself. And no one else can take that that from me uh, or uh, I'm I'm not there to plug someone else's motivation gap if they're unwilling I'm not there to supply the willingness for them uh, and I'm not there to listen to venting um, or as Anne Wilson Schaefe S-C-H-A-E-F calls it emotional vomiting <laughs> um, I with friends we allow a good friend and I allow ourselves about 30 seconds to 75 seconds and then we're done. My other half permits me maybe five or six seconds of venting and then says that needs to stop. Uh, I'm not there as a sponsor to hear 10 minute, 15 minute, 20 minute venting sessions. And I don't I don't do that to my sponsor. Um friendship and sponsorship there's a line in the big book where it says we offer them friendship and fellowship but i think that's uh, meant in very general terms it doesn't i remember i had a sponsor called brian who's still sober very very good i uh, uh, very wise is brian he's been sober a thousand years and um i said to him once can we meet for a coffee and he it was over the phone, but I could feel him leaning in. And he said, you know, we're not friends, don't you? Um, and I, a little shiver ran down my back because I'd never really I'd never really thought that one through. But I, I was trying to treat him as a friend when he was my sponsor. So we aim to be friendly and cordial and as personable as our individual personalities allow. I'm on a fairly short leash with that one, I'm afraid. So uh, some people are much friendlier than me. So go and talk to them. Um, uh, so I try to be friendly, but it's it's. I've had lots of sponsors over the years, and all of them have had the single principle that business is business, and they've they've expressed it in different ways. They've all been very different personalities, but that 
is the core principle that's come down to me from every single sponsor. We're there to do a specific job and other roles get in the way of that. Uh, occasionally, I've made the mistake of letting friendship develop out of uh, the sponsorship. Um, and in every single case, it's the friendship's got in the way of the sponsorship because it's very hard to challenge someone when they're your friend as well as your sponsee. There are very occasional exceptions, uh, but vanishingly rare. Um, it's almost impossible to challenge someone and the person will also not be willing to be challenged by someone they consider to be a friend. You can be challenged by someone that you're not about to go out for dinner with. But if you're going out for dinner with them or going on holiday with them, you don't want to be challenged by them. Um, there are ways of making it work, but that's that's for another. I think that's for another session that, that that's for those except there are exceptional circumstances. So these are general principles. They do admit exceptions. Uh, and also one thing that I've noticed again and again, and again, not just with me, but with friends of mine as well, who've made friends with their sponsees. When the friendship is mixed in with the sponsorship, you usually lose both. And so it's best to pick. Pick one. Pick which one is more important. Sometimes the friendship is more important and you just go and get someone else as your sponsor. Uh, most people, most of the time, I find once you explain what I've just said, are totally fine, can understand it and follow it. And the relationship functions well. But there are sometimes some other patterns which come into play. And let's call these games. Now, the notion of games, uh, there's a... a, a writer in the domain of psychology called Eric Byrne, B-E-R-N-E. And I borrowed his term. I'm not an expert in his stuff by any means. I'm not a trained psychologist. I don't pretend to be. I think there is one in the house, but I won't out the person. Um, uh, but I found his writings very, very useful. So what he talks about is how what is going on in the, on the surface of the conversation is not what is going on underneath and that there are hidden purposes to conversations or exchanges or interactions uh, and that that's what the real purpose is. What is going on on the surface is merely operating as a vehicle for what is going on underneath. Now, as I say, I'm not, not going to present a sort of strict Bernian analysis. Of this. I borrowed the idea, I borrowed the term and I've run with it because it helps me explain what I've experienced but couldn't put words to until I read his stuff. And what reading his stuff also helped was for me to learn how to spot and stop the games happening, but maintain the sponsorship relationship so that the benefit can be uh, accrued from it by the, by the sponsee. Uh, now, he calls it a game. Uh, now, it's not fun... It, 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 they're not called games because they're enjoyable. So it's not like Monopoly or Twister or, or Kachang. Um, they're not fun. But what they are, they're, they're called games because they're predictable sequences of moves and counter moves, like in drafts or chess or whatever. And there is a payoff. And the payoff is the real reason for the interaction. Uh, and the kinds of payoffs when I've played these games with people, and by the way, sometimes people talk about people, oh, so, you know, 
uh, Susan or Clive or George or Harry is playing a game with me. Often what they mean by that is some deliberate deception. I'm not talking about deliberate deception here. Occasionally, there are jerks who are deliberately trying to rile you or, or deceive you or whatever. But my experience is that it's incredibly rare in, in, in AA. There are very few people I look back and think there was a, that was a conscious plan. I, in, I think in, in 99 cases out of 100, in 99 people out of 100, these patterns, they're like, they're like um, software programs which just start running automatically. People are not aware of what is going on. And they're not absolutely not to blame, but we we do need to to uh, identify what is going on and stop it because it doesn't doesn't help. Uh, so this is not a sort of blamey thing that we're doing here. It's learning what works and what doesn't work. Now with the with these games, these subconscious games, as I say, I I, I all the ones I'm going to talk about, I have played myself as the sponsee. And um, a sponsorship necessarily is is a little bit like a relationship with an authority figure. Now, we're not authorities in terms of being further up, but we are in terms of being further along. So there isn't we're not vertically above people. We're horizontally further ahead because we've been sober for longer or we've got more experience or that. So we're equals. We're brothers. But one of us has been around. One of us has got some some useful things to share um but these games i learned to play them with authority figures when i was a kid and then i got a sponsor and boom here was a new venue to play out all of my stuff with authority figures now i said there are these 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 uh standard moves and counter moves um and there's a payoff and the payoffs that I sought in my interactions with old timers, with sponsors, with basically anyone further ahead than me in AA. And as I say, I, I, I've done this with authority figures, with bosses, with parents, with all sorts of people. Um, the payoffs usually involve one of the following attention. I just want someone to look at me, to see me, to valid, whatever. Uh, validation and praise i want to be patted on the head i want i want special treatment i want to be thought of as someone who is special in some way uh absolution i want i feel guilty and i want you to let me off the hook i want to find a way of avoiding making progress and doing any actual work whilst getting the points for making it look as though i'm progressing so there's often what i would want to do is I, I want to get rid of the guilt for not working the program. So I would engage in these maneuvers of basically treading water. So it looks as though I'm doing something, but actually no progress is being made. So avoiding making progress. Um, Paul M talks about uh, activity versus action. So activity is like being in a rocking chair and you're going back and forth, but you're not actually getting anywhere. Uh, shifting responsibility to someone else. If you tell me what to do, if it goes wrong, it's your fault, not mine. Shifting blame to someone else. So, and this is the standard thing I learned in Al-Anon. When an alcoholic is angry and blaming, it's because they feel guilty and they want to make you guilty. 
so that you're like so it's like past it's like exploding past the parcel so they want to make sure that when the music stops you're holding the parcel so it blows up in your face not theirs and I, as i say i've played this game myself if i can make so if i can make make something someone else's fault i no longer need to feel guilty and also a particularly pernicious one is defeating an authority figure. So it's like du I would duel old timers in AA. I would draw them on, th on tricky subjects, have these sort of quasi arguments and feel very self-satisfied with myself that I had won. And uh, occasionally I've been set up for these and I've certainly set other people up for these. Um, so I'm not proud of any of those. But the thing is, I learned these. Uh, I don't know where I learned them from. I guess I must have observed people around me and I just sort of picked them up as innate ways of being. And then I played them out in AA. Um, as I said, these, these are un, unconscious until you learn how to become conscious of them. And then what, what's interesting when you when you can call out one of these games, the game is over because it kind of needs to be under the cover of darkness to operate. As soon as it's brought to the surface, you, you can't play it anymore. Um, what I'm going to talk about is some specific some specific examples. I mean that there are endless examples because there are endless types of people in the world, but these are the main ones that seem to crop up in sponsorship a lot. And when talking about these, as I say, I want to repeat that one must when once when you spot someone playing these or you catch yourself engaging as the sponsor in one of these games subconsciously or unconsciously, uh, that both people are innocent. That what happens, it's like it's like the program starts up in me when people talk about being triggered. I think that's absolutely the right sense. It's like someone flips the switch and you're playing and it's like you're watching yourself engaging in an interaction, you know, is super unhealthy. But for some reason, you can't find the stop button. So one's got to view people as innocent in this as soon as you get angry with them you've kind of that's part of the game actually is when you become angry that can be one of the moves that's being elicited so to remain new, completely neutral when observing these and to view everyone as innocent and also i've given these like funny names or well, at least i think they're funny um to make fun out of this i get this from jim with was Joe, my sponsor, Joe's first sponsor in San Antonio, got sober in 1957, still sober, still sharing. They can't stop him. Um, he's very good, but he gives his character defects nicknames, little playful names, so we don't take ourselves too seriously. So here goes, but I'm going to try and give brief descriptions of the game, how I as the sponsor unconsciously participate in the game and then the antidote how to stop the game the first one i would call i'm only little this is where i go to a sponsor claiming i just don't know what to do about fear i know i've been in aa for 17 years but this fear is different i just don't know can you help me i will and the sponsor this is where, as a sponsor, if I've got if I've got untreated Alanonism, I will rush in and rescue. the The antidote is if you if if you you can always tell with a sponsee that a game is being played, and not just a sponsee. Sometimes it's newcomers, it's acquaintances, it people in AA play these the whole time at group conscience meetings. <laughs> 
business meetings, intergroup meetings, region meetings. I won't even go near the board. Um, when you, um, what was I going to say? Um, I'm going to get, there's another point, but I'll come, when I remember it, I'll come back to it. Um, when I spot someone in this particular one, the job is to, oh, that's what I was going to say is, you know that a game is being played when you're having a perfectly normal conversation with someone and then they say something and your whole body tenses up. I don't know if you ever, I mean, maybe, maybe it's just me. Claire's nodding. <laughs> Ellie Shever's smiling. So I'm guessing I'm not the only one. Um, my body tenses. In a very serious case, my blood starts to run backwards. Just this cold chill because it's reminding me of something. And if that's the point, if I'm not careful, that's when I get sucked in. So uh, that's how you spot it. Your body will never lie. If, it's, if you have those visceral reactions, there's something going on below the surface of the interaction and you need to watch out because the body as i say the body never lies the emotions are all over the place and the mind doesn't know how to tell the truth but the body has no ability to dissimulate it it always tells the truth it it you can rely on that um so with this one it's very simple uh, there's, there's a there's a there's a a variant of it called home james where you feel that you're becoming the sponsee's manservant or maid <laughs> um so in these cases it's very simple very gently just point out that the person already has the solution that they're able to find the information themselves that whatever they're looking for is already to hand uh it doesn't need to be explained it doesn't need to be repeated I mean, by the way, we're all of us on a journey with this as sponsees and as sponsors. So what I'm setting out is ideals. I know I fall short of these. I still fall for the game. I still take the bait on occasion. Uh, I don't think one ever gets this perfectly. So what I'm setting out here is the ideals when I'm talking about the antidotes. The next game is look at what the cat brought in. So you know the way cats bring in dead mice and they or not, they're not. No, that's that's the point. If the mouse were dead, it would be fine. But the mouse is half dead and the cat drops the half dead mouse on the mat and then it runs around half dead. And your job now it's your problem. It's your problem to deal with the half dead mouse. And this is where when I, as a sponsee, am presented with a situation I find difficult, and rather than applying any kind of knowledge or experience or expertise or anything that I've learned in AA over the God knows how many years, I immediately phone my sponsor in a panicky, breathy voice, breathy voice, drop the situation in garbled fashion in front of them and say, you sort it out. It's up to you. You're my sponsor. They say to call your sponsor when you're upset. So I'm upset and I'm calling. Now, when you're super new, you know, if you're in your first few minutes of recovery or days or week, like I've got, you, you have no resources. But by the time you have the resources, the sponsor's job is to take the sponsee from the furthest point they can reach themselves and help them go further. 
it's a waste of time for the sponsor to do what the sponsee can do for themselves and 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 do the kind of basic processing. Now, sometimes when you're really upset as a sponsee, there's a limit how much basic processing you can do, but it's just a courtesy. Get the facts straight. Who are the people involved? Um, Dramatis personae first, blow by blow, what happened in the order that the things happened? And then say what you do know about the solution and why you still have a problem. So there are so so rather than just you know sending the sponsee away, you show them how to pre-process a situation so that when they bring the situation to you, you can add value to it rather than doing their job for them. Amnesia is the next game. Have you ever had the situation in recovery where you talk to someone for forty-five minutes about a situation or two hours? And you feel so pleased at the end of it that you've really you've gotten to the bottom of it. You've made the most amazing progress. You really feel that the person understood all sorts of fundamental ideas. And then two weeks later, they phone up with an almost identical situation with absolutely no memory of what you discussed the last time you spoke. And there's a Clancy story about when he did a 12 step call. Uh, or, or, or rather, someone called him and said, I, I've let you down, I've let AA down, I've drunk again, will you help me? And he goes over and he talks to this drunk all night, gets back to his house in the morning, about to have a shower, goes straight into work without any sleep or barely any sleep. And the drunk calls him and says, I thought you said you were going to come over. Like, he's so drunk, he has no recollection of what happened. Now, sometimes that you know, it, one doesn't necessarily diagnose these correctly every time. But if that keeps happening, then there's a purpose to those conversations when you're in inverted commas processing situations with people, and it's not for them to learn how to process them. It's the pro the processing itself is the payoff. The content, you're trying to give them the program. They don't want the program. They want the processing. And I, I'm not going to go into the psychological, re psychological reasons why, because that's, that's a different conversation. It's out of the scope of this. The job as the sponsor is, I think, to spot when this is happening. And what I get people to do is to take notes from the conversations we have and to have a notebook uh, with AA solutions and whenever to scan the conversations we've had to scan the notes and put all of their solutions that anyone in AA tells them about from the from tapes from AA books from meetings from sponsors from friends to keep all the solutions together so that they're building up a barrage of solutions rather than having to come to you every single time something happens because they've developed amnesia. And these are not people who've got amnesia. There is something else going on. Now, there are people with mental illness. There are people who are very, very severely damaged psychologically and maybe with brain damage, whatever. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about people who maybe in their everyday lives are super, super competent and never forget anything. And, uh, you know, and their jobs will 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 be absolute stars. But when it comes to this stuff, a whole other dynamic comes into play. 
The next game is called Greased Pig. They say that wrestling a greased pig is pointless because you end up covered in mud and the greased pig loves it. Now, what this looks like as a sponsee, um, you see, I will have a problem and I will ask for input and guidance. And then as soon as the guidance starts being given, I react to it, I resist it, I reject it, and then I reproach the sponsor for providing it and go around meetings warning people off my sponsor because he's giving such damaging advice. That's the piece de resistance. Once, once, you've, once you've, you've, you've sworn at your sponsor and put the phone down, I've done this, you, you go around besmirching their reputation. Um... But here's the interesting thing. I was the one that asked for the input. And uh, what I was taught uh, very early in AA by some really good sponsors who were very helpful to, to me uh, was that if, if I, as soon as I started to argue, they said, um, why don't you call back another time when you've got a more constructive attitude. Now, I've got, to my shame, I've got this very wrong over the years, and I respond to someone resisting anything I'm saying with con con convincing, persuading, cajoling, and arguing. Now, this is difficult because often the, the questions are legitimate and there's a really interesting and useful discussion that needs to be had. So there's some subtlety here. This is not black and white. Sometimes it can take a while to work out whether this is someone asking genuine questions because they genuinely want to understand this and when someone is resisting. It, it, you can't always tell 100%, but you can feel it physically, usually. So it's not to do with the words that you're saying, it's to do with the dynamic that's going on in the situation. So when I feel that I'm pushing up against something, when I'm explaining things, that's when I've learned to stop and reconvene later or move to a different topic, but not to engage in trying to force through the wall of resistance because it doesn't work. The next game is called, someone gave me this, this term for it, pigeon chess. When you play chess with a pigeon, it disregards the rules of chess. It struts all around the board, knocking over pieces and then acts like it won. Um, now, the way this works as a sponsee, I'll ask someone for help, and it's all so innocent. Yeah, I'm in such a situation, you've helped me so much in the past, and I'd really love your input on this. And then they start to provide the input, and then I shift into a different gear, and I, I switch focus. I, I misconstrue what people are saying. There was a sketch many years ago, I've not been able to find, where every single thing the diner says, the waiter misconstrues. So the diner says, does the chicken come with vegetables? And the waiter says, it doesn't come, we bring it. And I would do this with spawn, like whatever they would say, I would find a way of interpreting it and responding it as though I'd misunderstood what they'd said. Um, shifting the facts, so just very gradually changing the constellation of facts during the course of the conversation so that um, the person I'm trying to get advice from is basically operating in the dark, rambling, going around in circles, reopening set settled points and just generally resisting. And to my shame, when I've done this with sponsors or other people, 
I secretly enjoy it. I don't know why, but I do. Um, I, I love being the pigeon. Um, the job as the sponsor, I think, is to spot when no progress is being made and say, honey, how about you go to a couple of meetings, sleep on it, pray, read your little big book, listen to some of these, listen to some of those, have some dinner and we'll talk tomorrow. And then very often just simply pausing and reconvening. If they do call back, it's with a different attitude. And if you tried to battle with it, you would have got nowhere. If you pause and reconvene, often the next day, it's fine. Um, there are another, the, the next two are slightly peculiar ones. They're not, um, they don't look like resistance, but they are. The first one is called heavy weather. From the phrase to make heavy weather of something. This is where you give someone a very simple task and they turn it into the, 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 the labors of Hercules. And, you know, you're expecting someone to do a little bullet point list, uh, which will take 10 minutes and it can be fitted on one, not even A4, A5 piece of paper. But they go and buy a, a full scat notebook. But, uh, and then two weeks later, you're like, how are you getting on with it? Oh, it's so hard. This step work is so hard. It, there's so much to do. I don't think I, I'm going to finish. It's just there's too much bother. Um, I've done this as a sponsee, and it's a way of uh, avoiding progress by making it look as though you're working very, very hard. And then th the brilliant thing about it is you make it the sponsor's fault for how tired and difficult you're finding it. But the fact is you've, uh, you've changed the nature and the scope of the task to make it impossible so that you can't complete it but it's someone else's fault that you can't complete it so it's that thing of you you, you want to get rid of the guilt and make it someone else's fault so that's heavy weather there's a variation of this called vanilla flavoring so vanilla flavoring if you can't find vanilla essence in the little local shop you get vanilla flavoring instead it ain't the same everyone will know and this is where you give someone a task and they change the task. They come back with a completely different task and are very disappointed when you say that it wasn't what they asked. And it's it's a variation of the same thing. Uh, what I tend to do is if there's a suspicion of this, I give people very small tasks, like tiny little bits and see if they can do that and gradually build up. And that usually works. Now, this game, this the game of heavy weather or vanilla flavoring, it happens a lot in step four, where people try to turn the exercise into something else. They're not, and, and sometimes it's not necessarily for obstruction, it's for other purposes as well. So, but gradually getting people used to the idea of doing the exercise as it's presented rather rather than using it for some other purposes. And that is just a matter of very gently training people by giving them very small bite-sized pieces the, the next one the dog ate my homework now you all know what this one is it, it's finding a thousand and one excuses for why whatever it whatever you're supposed to be doing hasn't been done um and uh if you're smart 
you'll you'll find excuses which are t apparently totally beyond your control. But it's amazing when someone shifts from being unwilling to willing, how lots of things which appear to be outside their control suddenly come within their control. Um, the mistake that I can make as a sponsor here is to engage in discussion of the excuses or reasons. And honestly, uh, I've started, I've reverted to what was shown to me a very long time ago. And I resisted doing as a sponsor, which is saying, if you're willing, you'll find a way click, which is exactly what people did with me. If you're willing, you'll find a way. Um, in A Course in Miracles, it talks about um, hiding unwillingness behind a veil of circumstances that appear to be outside one's control. So other people have spotted it too. We have, you know, we haven't invented this. This is a well-established phenomenon. Um, jobs worth is the next one uh, from the phrase something that's more than my jobs worth. So when someone will do the, uh, it was very common within the in the sort of labour disputes of the 1970s in this country where people would refuse to do anything beyond what they were contractually obliged to do and um it's very difficult to sponsor someone when you feel like you're like 87 times more enthusiastic about their recovery than they are um honestly um i think my, my for this to work my heart has to be in it it doesn't, it just doesn't work when I'm mechanically going through the motions. So, and I think it can sour people's experience of the steps if they kind of force their way through it when they don't want, they basically don't want to do it. Uh, because first of all, it never gets done properly. And if it's not done properly, it doesn't go all the way in. It's kind of bouncy, it bounces off. Um, so I, and there's a variation of this called sufferance where people will comply but they'll be face pulling and sighing just to tell you how horrible the task you've just given them is. And I've started to pick people up on the sighing because it's it's kind of an odd, I don't know how aware people are of doing it, but it's really disconcerting as a sponsor when you're really, you're giving your free time to do this and you're just getting sighs and face pulling and eye rolling. <laughs> eye rolling is my favorite one. Um, some people can do all three. They ought to be in the circus. It's amazing. Um, and, and, you know, I've done, I've done it myself. Um, um, pauses as well. Very, 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 after you suggest something, a very, very long pause, long dramatic pauses. Um, I've started uh, with someone a few months ago. I started asking, tell me, can you ask yourself why you let yourself sigh audibly at that point? And the funny thing was the person like immediately recognized it, admitted it. We had a good conversation about it and it never happened again. Uh, so often addressing these head on in a kind of jokey, fun way, say, honey, did you see what you just did there? And people, if you do it in the right way, you can you can bring up almost anything. But the point is to, uh, you know, you've got to be neutral when you bring it up. If you're angry when you bring it up, the anger will telegraph. None of us are perfect. We're all working towards that. But that's the ideal. Uh, uh, 
two or three more, then we'll go on to some some more solutions. Uh, and I'm going to start. I'm going to speed up slightly. Papal dispensation. So this is where I've got a, a decision that I've made, which I know is selfish, and I want my sponsor to tell me that it's somehow in accordance with the principles of the AA or the Al-Anon program, so that I can do it and not feel guilty about it. Uh, 19 out of 20 questions of shall I do X or shall I do Y to someone else in AA, it's because I want someone to give me the dispensation to do the thing that I want to do, but I kind of know is naughty. Papal absolution is when you've already done it and you want them afterwards to tell you that it's okay. Or, and it happens a lot with people who slip or people who act out with sex or food or whatever, is they want to be told it's okay. And with my... Uh, a friend a few years ago who said you need to keep talking about this stuff with me but me telling me that you've done it does not make it okay you need to stop doing it at some point but don't stop talking but i can't give you absolution um here it's my job as a sponsor to push the responsibility for decision making back onto the individual and say, I'm not here to make your decisions for you or to co-sign them. I just can't do that. Um, a couple more little, little games that get played. Checkmate. Um, a, a good example of checkmate, if you've ever played chess, when you're in a situation, you realize if you move the queen forward, uh, the game's over. If you keep the queen where it is, the game is over. Like whatever you do, you're going to be you're going to be checkmated. Your king is vulnerable. Whatever, however you move, your king is vulnerable. Um, one of the great tools, if someone is super resistant or aggressive um, with you as a sponsor to say, sweetheart, this isn't working. So maybe find someone you feel more comfortable with. You seem really tense when you talk to me. So how about you find someone you feel more comfortable with? I think Maybe you'll make more progress because you'll be able to accept what they're offering. Fine. Uh, now, there was a, there have been situations where I asked, suggested people do things and they, they think you're a terrible tyrant for suggesting lots of things and overburdening with them with these unreasonable demands. And so you say, that's, that's fine. That's fine. You, I don't have to sponsor you. If you don't want to do it this way, that's absolutely fine. There are lots of different ways of doing recovery, of doing AA, of doing the big book, blah, blah, blah. So how about you go with someone else? So you get out of being the villain by saying, we don't have to do this. It's fine if you don't want to do this. And I've had this on many occasions, someone says, you're abandoning me. So if you stay as the sponsor offering suggestions, you're bullying them by loading them with tasks. And if you threaten to withdraw the sponsorship, you're abandoning them. If you move forward, you're the villain. If you move back, you're the villain. And in those situations, you can't win. Reason won't work. Just I've just learned to, to bow out gracefully in those situations. And this is not a blamey thing. When something isn't working, don't try and force it with maybe a slight shift that the person goes to someone else, makes huge progress. If they'd stuck with you, they would have been stuck for years. So there's, no, there's nothing wrong with this. I had a whole load of sponsors in my first year and it was a first couple of years and it was a good thing. 
I needed each one. Each one got me to the next stage and then the next stage. Sometimes it lasts six weeks. Sometimes it lasts 10 years. So it's not a sign of failure on either part. Um, due diligence. Sometimes you get very, very closely questioned by a sponsee on uh, what you're suggesting. Now, some explanation is required and it's completely legitimate to ask some questions but sometimes you feel as though you're being cross-examined like again your body will tell you when this is going on uh sometimes it's a way of of, of discounting the advice by basically throwing lots of skepticism at it um the advice i was given actually by course in miracles teacher about how to approach the course in miracles is uh, don't analyze the suggestions try out try them out and then you'll see if they work or not if they don't work fine go and do something else and that's what i say to sponsors who get super questiony before they'll do something is just just try it just try it and if it doesn't work that's fine but you won't lose anything by trying so that you just skirt that completely um so some some things which are helpful these are general solutions here uh to always view the sponsor and yourself as people who are innocent but are trapped in these patterns and so therefore not to take it personally so when i have played games with people it hasn't been personal to the person i've played it with i've been playing it my whole life with all sorts of different people same dynamic again and again and again so it's never personal if as a sponsor you're stuck, what you can do, you can pray, you can call your own sponsor, read chapter seven of the big book, working with others. There are loads of great tips there. Sometimes you, you don't know how to handle a sponsor. You read that chapter immediately. You're like, you've forgotten some really basic things. And Al-Anon literature will sensitize you to all sorts of unhealthy patterns of yourself as a sponsor. Um, helpful ways of handling these situations in the moment. Don't take the bait. You know you're in a don't take the bait situation when you can smell the bait and it's just delicious. Uh, don't argue. Pause before speaking. Whilst you're pausing, pray. Uh, you can suggest reconvening later or the next day. Uh, come rediscuss the purpose of the sponsorship with the sponsee sometimes that slips and it needs to be brought back you can gently come back to the topic at hand so you that so when when you don't take the bait you say you think to yourself why are we here what is this conversation supposed to be, be about and you bring it back to that give them a task to do that's what people did with me give them a task to do come back the next day everything's fine um say one thing at a time and see how they respond rather than doing a kind of 10 minute spiel whatever you say keep it simple um maybe don't explain anything just present an offer and if they don't want it that's fine and don't repeat yourself if you're repeating yourself as i've been told you're nagging and that solves most that solves most situations um if it's persistently difficult i've learned to recognize much more quickly that i'm out of my depth have the grace to know when you're out of your depth, as a friend of mine says. Um, and a couple of final tips. Um, you can use humour with sponsees, but make sure it's good spirited and they're up for it. Not everyone is uh, has got a super well-developed sense of humour when they get sober. So you've got to test the waters gently with that one. 
uh, try and encourage and give credit in the same breath as redirecting or setting boundaries. Don't answer the phone when you're angry. If your body starts to tense up during a call, don't pace around because that will make it worse. Sit down and if possible, lie on your back. It will change the timbre of your voice. It's very hard to shout when you're lying on your back. If you're leaking or if you're flawed, pause and say you'll call them back later. Pray for the right thing to say. And then only call back or provide input once your emotions are completely neutral and you're completely sure of the response. Whilst you're still going back and forth, don't call. Wait till you're clear and comfortable with the response and then uh, give it a go. And if a response feels like punishment, it is. So, And you can always ask, does this feel like I'm punishing the person? If it does, you're punishing. However much you sugarcoat it, you're punishing. So stop. Um, hold it back there's always a better way but the one thing i'd say at the end of this we're not professionals we're amateurs if we get any of the above right like 57 percent of the time we are doing sensationally well and should get, get gold medals we're human beings as sponsors who are taking time out of our days to try and help people while we've got all of the other shit going on as i say we're not professionals we're also alcoholics <laughs> with our own you know issues so these as i say these are ideals that i haven't fully manifested uh sometimes i get them right sometimes i don't they're ideals to gradually inch towards and just the awareness of these itself can be super helpful in just changing the whole dynamic so you're not just running on automatic um that's all i've got alistair as far as presentation is concerned so we've got some time for questions if there are any Super, thank you very much, Tim. Um, excellent, thank you. Um, yeah, at this point, I uh, can open it up for questions. Um, we've got a few more people than uh, last week, so probably if, if you do know how to raise your hand, that would be uh, helpful, and I'll try and get you in order. If you can't raise your hand through Zoom, if you do have a question, kind of wave at the camera, and I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully get to you if, uh, if you're having problems doing that. So, yeah. Open up for questions. Uh, my name is Karen. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, thank you, Tim and, and Alistair. Thank you for um, uh, presenting for us. Um, I don't have a question, but I, ha I don't have a question because, Tim, I'm absorbing everything you were saying and still trying to take it in. And I so appreciate um, your, your labeling. It, it puts humor to it. And, and yet, your presentation was so enjoyable and, and so humorous at times and yet very serious, serious things that we can get involved with, with, with sponsor sponsorship. And I'm, I'm just so grateful that I was able to be here to listen to this. Thank you so much. I'll jump in with one, if I may, Tim. Um, had any experience of someone kind of um, agreeing with the principles of the program except one? So, for example, the, well, uh, explain the phenomenon of craving completely differently and saying, I just disagree with everything in the, on the physical craving in the main book. Uh, and how have you reacted to that? Um, that's, that's, a, that's, a very, that's a very good question. Um, I, I had this with, with I, this actually this precise problem with someone a few years ago. 
and I spent months, months of my life <laughs> trying to put it across this person. And every time I thought it was there, it was basically like trying to make a, 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 a castle out of treacle. Um, you know, with the best will in the world, it just wasn't, it just wasn't happening. One, one of the difficulties, there is, there are certain pivotal aspects of the program so the basic notions of step one physical craving mental obsession uh you've got this this uh the notion of uh uh we had to let go of our old ideas absolutely is an absolutely it's a fundamental notion uh you've got uh the first requirement is that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success there are quite a lot of these actually and the thing is that the structure of the program will collapse if one of these is missing. That's my experience of it. I've, I, I had a very rickety program because of that for years. So I go back to the um, uh, what it says in Bill's story about the foundation of complete willingness, so complete honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. And what the honesty is everything that i've done to date has failed therefore everything must be questioned and that's what opens my mind to something new and being willing to live as though something is true um my job was to accept what was offered not because i thought it was right or not so um when i'm at loggerheads with people i i've i stopped I, as soon as I realize it's happened, I don't try and fight past it because I've never succeeded. But often they go to someone else and they explain it just slightly differently and boom, it goes straight in. So not everyone is meant to sponsor a particular, a particular person. Sometimes there's just some reason why it's not working. So I don't fight it. I just suggest they go on to the next person. Um, hi, thanks so much for the meeting, uh, Tim and Alistair. Um, my question is, I'm working with people on step four and um, asking them to look at what's the new idea or the way that I put it is what's the truth of the situation. And I'm finding that some people, although they've been in the program many years, they have no uh, recovery. So they have no spiritual principles. So they can't see, they can't, they don't have anything to say there. And you know, and then I find it like I'm just feeding things to them. And I'm wondering if you have any tips for that. Yeah, they're just, just very briefly on that. Um, I think I, I get a lot more mileage in step four from uh, recognizing where my thinking is screwy uh, or my morality, where my values are flawed because those are the visible things and uh honestly i i think dan l says this that this is all about subtraction not addition so if you said that uh, talks about as well that you know the, the the i don't know if it's true or not the apocryphal maybe story about michelangelo's david that uh they said well how did you carve david he said well i just took a big block of marble and chipped away anything that wasn't David and I was left with David. And I think you're left, if you, if you 
chip away the BS, eventually you're left with the truth. And the truth is not very complicated. So everyone's okay, really. We've all got slightly funny thinking and let's all be nice to each other. Ultimately, that's what you're left with once you get all the rubbish out of the way. So I, I focus on, on looking at getting rid of what's visible and then the truth, I think, reveals itself. Hi, um, thank you, Libby. I'll call it. Um, yeah, thank you. And thank you, Tim. Um, I guess my question would be any useful tips for um, shutting down a conversation that is is a vent, um, you know, someone venting to me. Um, I find it really hard to do that in a way that's assertive, but kind and loving at the same time um yeah it it depends how aggressive they are (laughs) some people I've had times where I've just I've literally had to put the phone down because I I can't you try to push back and and people get very angry with you um what I've what what I've done as I've told the truth uh I've said I'm finding this a bit difficult to listen to and Honestly, I got lost about 30 seconds in and I'm not taking in anything that you're saying. So how about we have a conversation where we do your turn, my turn, and we'll gradually work through this. So let's start from the beginning. Who's involved? Let's look at the people, then look at what happened and gradually break it down. Um, uh, Or, as I said earlier, you, you get people to just go to a meeting, have a bath, listen to the radio, have some dinner, you know, play a computer, just something to get a bit of distance and maybe come back later. Because this, the, we, I don't think we can work with this. That's, that's how I do it. And that seems to, that seems to work pretty well. Okay. Uh, thank you, Tim. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Sobercast is ad-free, and we'd like your help in order to keep it that way. So if you'd like to help us be self-supporting by pledging a dollar to a month, visit Sobercast.com and look for the donate links. Thank you very much.